Hey, what's going on? It's Boston Rob. This message is going out to Phil Helmuth. Phil, your buddy Josh Arie reached out to me. He told me, you're having a little bit of a rough week. He wanted me to tell you to keep your head up and maintain hashtag positivity. You can do anything if you set your mind to it. Apparently, you're a big time poker player or you aspire to be. I want to tell you to keep your dreams going strong. Remember, I didn't win Survivor the first time. It took me four times, but I never quit. I never gave up. And look at I finally won. So hopefully one of these days you too can rise to the top. I hope everything continues to go well for you. Whatever you're going through, just stay the course and you will end up a-okay. From your buddy Josh. Take care, Phil. <laughs> That's from Boston Rob Mariano. And that was from Josh Arie. He had Boston Rob Mariano of Survivor, who appeared on the show four times and finally won it. Give this message, this inspirational message to Phil Helmuth, telling him that one day he will be a poker champion. One day he will make his dreams come true. And Phil, I agree. I hope that one day you can finally win something in poker. I hope one day you can become the poker star you've always wanted to be. So that was a very touching message that Josh paid for through the Cameo site and got Boston Rob to make this message for you. By the way, you can go on Cameo and get these done for anyone. <laughs> In fact, uh, I played on this show recently messages from the or one message that was from one of the Massey brothers to the other for one of their 40th birthdays. I forgot which one did it to the other, but it was Gilbert Gottfried, which is why I played it. And it was Gilbert Gottfried basically insulting the other Massey pretty viciously. And of course, Gilbert Gottfried didn't know who he was, but it was funny hearing it, especially after Gilbert was dead. But yeah, you can troll people with these cameo messages. Now, most people who get these things, it's, it's a little bit pathetic because uh, they get these to make themselves feel good that celebrities are talking to them or they pretend celebrities care about them. So they basically buy a minute, literally a minute of the celebrity's time to leave them an insincere message, an insincere video message. And I could more see it if you're getting the one to do like an intro for you, like on your voicemail or whatever it might be. But to do it just for yourself, I think is a little bit sad. Now, if you're doing it for a friend, even if it's not a joke, that's a different story because it may be a bit of a thrill for them to get a message from a celebrity they know and like or even one they dislike, either as a joke or just so they can uh, kind of get it as like a little novelty gift. It's a little bit different that way. And I think trolling is actually one of the best usage of these things, <laughs> like what uh, Josh Arie did here. Now, truthfully, at the last World Series, the best player was not Phil Helmuth. It was Josh Arie. He was the player of the year. So I guess compared to Josh Arie, Phil Helmuth did not make his dreams come true last year, even though he had a good series. Anyway, welcome to Poker Father Radio. I am Todd Dandruff Wittellis. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on May 21st, 2022, the time right now, 9.52 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We're drawing closer and closer to the beginning of the World Series of Poker. We will only have one more show prior to the World Series of Poker, 
And then it's going to be WSOP time. We're going to cover whatever is going on. There's always a lot of weirdness, a lot of drama, a lot of fail. I bet there's going to be especially a lot of fail this year because it's at a new venue. Remember, it's moving to Bally's in Paris this year when it was previously at the Rio ever since 2005. So the new venue is going to be ripe for fail, ripe for new problems. And we will be right here reporting all of it. So make sure you listen to Poker Fraud Alert throughout the series because we will have the most honest coverage. And when I say honest, I mean honest. We're not going to look to bash the World Series, but we're not going to kiss the World Series ass. As we've always done, we just report what's really happening. And in some cases, when others have bashed the World Series, I've said, no, 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 I've looked into this and they're actually in the right here. So I will defend them, even when the popular opinion goes against them. But if there's something to be criticized, they will do that too. I want to quickly give you the tentative schedule for the next few months on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I know we've had an erratic schedule anyway, but I've tried to put together a schedule I'm going to keep to so you can know when to expect the show. So I'm going to give you the schedule now for the next, I'd say about two months, between uh, May 28th and July 29th, when you can expect the next shows. So these shows are all scheduled right now for 8.30 p.m. Pacific, sometimes a bit later, but that's tentatively when they're scheduled for. And here are the dates. Saturday, May 28th, Sunday, June 5th, Wednesday, June 15th, so there will be 10 days in between those two shows. Make a note of that. Friday, June 24th, that'll be nine days in between. Friday, July 1st. Wednesday, July 6th, it's only five days in between there. One of our rare shows that takes place less than a week after the previous show. But because it's during the height of the World Series and the main event and all that, then I think we'll have a lot to talk about. Then we will have Friday, July 15th. Friday, July 22nd. Friday, July 29th. So that is our scheduled show list for the next two months. Please make a note of it. Of course, today is May 21st, so the next show is scheduled for a week from today on May 28th. So that's what we are planning to have. Of course, this can change. There can be many things that change it. And if that happens, then just check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert and you will see those changes. We have a free roll tonight. This is the third and final week of the Fuck PayPal free rolls. This is Fuck PayPal week three. $75 donated by Eric Benzamokin, the lead attorney in that class action suit against them for literally stealing people's money. We've talked about it many times on the show. We've had Eric on the show. I've explained it myself. And yes, they are really just outright stealing money from people. Poker players, non-poker players, small business owners, people around the world, a staggering amount of money has been stolen by PayPal, just outright stolen. And this lawsuit is making the attempt to recover this money. And on May 26th, which is going to be just five days from now, so by the time we come back on, I will have a result for you. On May 26th is a very big hearing whether PayPal can compel arbitration here. They are trying because it's technically in their terms of service, but there are plenty of reasons why arbitration should not be granted, one of which is that people have no choice. It's not exactly a fair relationship that you can't just say all that easily, hey, I just won't use PayPal because they pretty much have a monopoly on these services. Keep in mind, they own Venmo too. So a lot of people want to be able to use PayPal, and if they can't, it really hurts your business So 
it's not that simple to just bury in the terms of service you agree to arbitration and then allow themselves to stay out of court. So I, I don't know all the exact legal arguments that are going to be presented there on either side, but I'm just letting you know it's not straightforward in these compelling arbitration situations, no matter what the terms say. But I have no idea which way it's going to be ruled. So we will see. I hope it is ruled that arbitration is not compelled and that this will actually see a courtroom. And if it does, then that's very good news for the plaintiffs. So on May 26th, I will definitely be rooting for Eric and the other attorneys who were on the side of the plaintiffs, including a uh, poker player, including some non-poker players, uh, just everybody in that class, everybody who's joined that lawsuit, I hope they are victorious. If there's ever a time when a lawsuit is just and deserves to go to the plaintiffs, it's this one. This one, I cannot think of any argument for why PayPal's in the right. Very, very unethical what they've been doing. It's just outright theft. And it has hit our community. If you remember, Chris Moneymaker was the most high-profile person hit. And the only reason he's not part of it anymore is because they quickly made it right for him as soon as they heard this thing was coming. So they didn't even want to face the high-profile poker player that was most famous. So they wormed their way out of that one by paying him when they otherwise weren't going to. Very, very sneaky. But hopefully they will get theirs. And hopefully Eric and his partner attorneys in this will deliver this beat down to them and hopefully that will start on may 26th so i'll be rooting for it and he donated 200 dollars to these free rolls the last of which is being used tonight 75 dollars, which is going to be split up as follows 37 for first 23 for second 15 for third 37 for first 23 for second 15 for third on the no fraud online poker room which you can find near the top of the screen on poker fraud alert if you don't have a validated account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which requires a different account than the forum, then you cannot play tonight, but you can play in future weeks. And very soon, I'm going to be taking over the administration of that room. It has been run by Belly Buster for over 10 years at his own expense. He has spent in excess of $5,000. I explained this last week. And he is... Uh, basically uh, retiring from that role, which is understandable, and he's going to be handing it over to me, and I will be running it at my own expense, and I've been in communication with some people who have some ideas on how to uh, lower that expense, which of course is important to me, because Belly Buster is paying $40 a month to run it through AWS, and that was very generous of him, but, you know, if I'm going to be paying i got to find a cheaper way to do it because, well, I think you know why. Anyway, the free roll will be taking registration until 10.10 Pacific Time, which is 10 minutes from now. It is 10 p.m. sharp now. So the free roll started at 9.45 and probably a fairly small field and usually we give away 50 bucks this week at 75 so you can get some extra money it'll be a small field because a lot of people didn't know the show was tonight i will tell you shortly why the show is tonight and was not yesterday i have a good reason for that and yeah get in there free money which i can pay in many ways i can send it by zelle by cash app by bank transfer by 
various cryptocurrencies, if they're worth anything anymore, and by other methods you might be able to think about that could be sent online. PM me Dan Space Druff on the forum to claim your prize. Dive Bar Dave keeps asking, why are you taking so long to pay? Well, because that's what I do. I pay them in batches every few months, just so it's not as much of a burden. So you don't have to keep requesting the free roll money over and over. I do see your requests. I just uh, don't answer them until it's time to pay. But I will be paying out a batch very soon. And if I miss you at that point, once I announce that I've paid out the batches, then definitely get a hold of me and say, hey, you forgot me, and then I will make sure to get you. Also, if you would like to collect in person at the World Series of Poker, uh, definitely let me know, and uh, I will arrange uh, when you can come meet me and pick up the money in cash. I'm perfectly fine with that if you'd like to get it that way. But if you'd like me to send it to you electronically, that's actually the way I prefer. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the phone number. You can also text that number anytime, day or night, 775-372-8355, same number. I don't care if you text me late, early, when the show's on, when the show's not on, doesn't matter. It's a 24-7 text line, and I probably will answer you unless I'm sleeping or unless I have nothing to say to you. But I'll probably answer. 775-372-8355. If you text me during the show, I may read your comment on the air unless you ask at the beginning not to. We also have the Mount Charleston line, which can't be texted but can be called. It's an alternate line into the show. It's in a cabin on top of Mount Charleston, about 40 minutes away by car from Las Vegas. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. Then there's the call to listen line. It's very simple. This one, you just call up and listen to the show. You can't talk to me, but you can listen. And it does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require an app, it does not require a computer or the internet. And if you do have a smartphone, it won't take up even one byte of data. All it requires is a phone call from any phone that can dial the U.S. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or the alternate number, 641-741-1095. Either one will work. They work the same way. And they're free if you can make calls within the U.S. for free. Except with T-Mobile, it costs one cent a minute because it's considered a high-volume number. That's their decision, not mine. And... It never buffers, and it never freezes. Unlike other streaming media, this will never buffer or freeze. It will just work. It's a great thing to call the listen line. And when we're not live on the air, you can also call it up. It works 24-7. When we're not live, it's streaming a random rerun from our past 10-plus years of this show. We are the second-longest-running poker show anywhere in the world. No show, to my knowledge, has gone longer than Poker Fraud Alert, except for the Bernard Lee Show, which began in 07. And one day he'll retire and we will take his title. But Bernard Lee's the only one ahead of us, to my knowledge. We've been on more than 10 years. And it streams reruns that are selected at random when we're not live on the air. That's on the call to listen line. It's also on the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com, where you can listen to the show either live or the reruns. And there's many ways you can listen in the archives if you don't catch it live. We are on iTunes, Google Podcasts. We're on 
the Stitcher app, which, to be honest, doesn't work all that great because sometimes the episodes don't appear, so I don't really recommend that one. But I do recommend Spotify. That's the best one. That gets our episodes within minutes of when they're posted, and it has clickable timestamps where you can click on the timestamp, and it'll jump you to that portion of the show, and you can listen to that topic really easily. And then we also have iHeartMedia, which I recently fixed because it wasn't working because their system is garbage, but I, I got it going. Spent some hours on that. We are on the TuneIn app, which also can be used to listen live. That's the only app that can be used to listen live. We also are on the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line to listen to the archives. And that's a pretty good app, too. That's pretty similar to Spotify, except it has a call to listen line as well. It's a smaller app. And what else do we have? You can listen to the MP3 of the show by just clicking on the MP3 file in the Radio Archives forum. Just click on that. It'll play with any device. You can download the MP3 if you want. Amazon Alexa can be used to listen to the show to say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. Make sure to say it slowly. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. And it will play. We are also on Audible, which is owned by Amazon. So many options to listen to this show. And if you forgot the phone numbers I gave, just go to the radio tab. And you will see them all right there. There's no memorization required. And we have a chat room. Click on the chat tab near the top of the screen, near the top left. And you can go in the chat room. It does require a Poker Fraud Alert account that is validated and in good standing to get into the chat room. And the chat room is only active when we're live. When we're not live, there's nobody in there. A lot of you have been interested in Poker Fraud Alert hats. The hats are going to be a reality. They're probably not going to be ready for the beginning of the World Series because it's pretty close. It's about 10 days away. But we are going to have them at some point during the World Series. So the hats are currently being worked on, and they are going to be made. It's something that's going to really happen. And I've gotten a lot of text messages, people saying, I want a hat. And I'm saying to you, I've given the list of priorities for the hats of who gets them first, who gets them last. But I think I'm going to have enough for everybody. Right now, I'm planning to order 100 hats, which I will ship for free. I'm also going to carry some around at the World Series of Poker and hand them to people who I feel qualified based upon the criteria I gave. It's not very hard to qualify. You just can't be a complete random who never listens to the show and never posts on the forum and just get a hat to keep as a souvenir. I do want that to go to people who actually regularly listen or post on the forum or both. If you see me, though, if you are a regular listener or regular forum poster and you see me around the World Series, uh, feel free to go up to me. And if I have a hat with me, if they've been made by that point, uh, I'll be happy to give you one. And otherwise, I will be happy to mail one to you for free. So these will be distributed the same way they were eight years ago when I also gave them away for free. And I spent substantial money doing so. Because think about it. Not only do I have to pay for the hats to be made... But I also have to pay for the shipping, so it's not cheap when the whole thing's done, but it's just something I'll do every so often to be nice to those who have been loyal to this site and have uh, shown an interest in what we're doing here. So I, I don't want to charge anybody and, and collect, you know, 20, 30 bucks from each of you. I, I don't want to do it, you know? I, I just, I'll just give it away. So I'm going to give it away. Do not send me your address yet. 
I know you're tempted. I know you want to hammer out that address to me to get that ahead of everybody else. It's not how it works. So when I announce the hats are done, which hopefully will be in the next two weeks, but when I announce the hats are done, that is the time to send me your address. I'm not going to collect the addresses until I have the hats in my hand or until like it's a day or two before I have in my hand. It's got to be really, really, really close or I have to have them. So we're not quite there yet. So you can send me the address. I'm just going to ignore it. So don't bother. But that doesn't mean you're not going to get one. I I think everybody's going to get one. And if for some reason there's more than 100 people that are asking for hats, then uh, I guess I will have miscalculated. But my guess right now is 100. If it's less than 100, then it's fine. We'll have extras. If it's uh, more than 100, then (laughs) I guess you guys have to wait. Or if it's way more than 100, I guess I'll have 100 more made. Whatever. We'll, we'll find a way to deal with it. Now, if it's a thousand, we'll have a problem. If it's a thousand, then I don't want to pay for that all. That's going to be too much. It's only so much that I will reach into that Jew wallet and pay for hats. But anyway, that's the hat update. So the update is there's not that much of an update, but we are working on it. It is going to be reality. It is really going to happen. It's not just something I'm tossing around. So you will be getting a hat if you want one, most likely, and you don't have to claim it right now. So just wait for the next announcement, is the announcement. Okay, so here is the agenda, and then we will get going. The reason this show was not on Friday, and the reason I knew last week it probably wouldn't be on Friday, is because I was sick. Now, how did I know a week in advance that I was going to be sick? That's because I took the fourth Pfizer shot of the COVID vaccine. Oh, the privileges of being 50. It's the only reason I was able to. It's because I'm 50. If I were 49, which wasn't all that long ago, but if I were 49, I could not have gotten that shot. But because I'm now the big 5-0, I can both get a vaccine for the fourth time and I can play the World Series of Poker Seniors event and I can join the AARP. I mean, I can't tell you how wonderful it is being 50. So I'll tell you... How I did with that shot, remember I had bad reaction from the second and third shot. So did the same thing happen? I will tell you. Doug Polk is in controversy again. I know you're shocked. He's never in controversy, right? Doug Polk, he never never trolls. He never says controversial things. He never tweets controversial things. No, 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 no. But Doug Polk, yeah, he's in controversy again. This time, nothing to do with poker. Nothing to do with any poker players. He criticized the overweight woman that was featured on the Sports Illustrated magazine cover, which you've probably heard about by now. At least you've heard about the cover. You may not not have heard of Polk's criticism of it. But by the way, that went semi-viral to where people were commenting on Polk's comments on the cover who weren't in poker. There were a lot of people angry at Polk that had never heard it from before. This kind of went around on Twitter, and people were commenting on it pretty negatively. So I'm going to read you what Polk had to say. I'll read you some responses to Polk, and I'll give you my opinion on the Sports Illustrated cover and my opinion on Polk's comments themselves. I have another unfortunate story of a poker pro passing away at a young age. This one was not any result of violence or drug addiction or alcohol abuse. This one was something that... uh, did not involve any crime and did not involve any mistakes on the part of the person who passed away. This was something that could not have been helped. 
Todd Terry, who is a 2000s and 2010s poker pro, though he quit playing in early 2015, passed away at age 48 from a very nasty neurological disease. So it's just bad luck on his part that this happened. And I'll tell you about what disease it was and a little about Todd Terry himself, including an interesting lawsuit he had against Full Tilt Poker that a lot of you don't know about. I have an update on the scammer Dan Bekovac story. Remember Dan Bekovac, who ran the Midway Poker Tour in the Chicago area, and he ripped off all the winners where they didn't get paid? First, he paid them in silver and pretended like the silver was worth more than it actually was. They also weren't supposed to be paid in silver. That was something they found out after they had already entered. Then they, he shorted them anyway. He didn't even pay them the right amount in silver. Uh, really shorted some people big time. The more they won, the more they got shorted. And it looked like they were never going to get paid. However, Dan Bekovac has been successful in recent times playing poker. So, he finally made it right. At first, he started to make it right, and now he has completely made it right. And I will tell you all about the final update to this story and how I presently feel about Dan Bekovac. Another poker player passed away. But this one was not at a young age. But it's never nice to read these stories. I mean, everybody's going to die eventually. Still, uh, this person did live out a uh, decent lifespan. Bob Ciffoni. You may have read his columns in Card Player. He was a Limit Hold'em player. He was someone who wrote books about mid-stakes Limit Hold'em. He had a weekly column in Card Player, mostly about Limit Hold'em. And he wrote some other books, and he was well-respected in poker. He passed away at the age of 81. So definitely one of the older players. And I didn't have personal experience with him, but I'll I'll tell you what I did know of him and how I used to read his column. I'll tell you what I thought about his column, which I read very early in my uh, poker playing career. And uh, I'll tell you a bit about Bob Schiavone, who passed away recently. We have another Druffy Time Theater. This one is not going to be a customer service story. This is not going to be a story about some incident I had with a girl 30 years ago. No, 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 no. This is going to be something more relevant to this show. It's going to be about my late 2000, not late 2000s, but the year 2000, late in the year 2000, transformation into a plus EV gambler. Because prior to that, I'm embarrassed to say, all the way through age 28, I was a negative EV gambler. Even though I was aware of positive expectation gambling, I just was too lazy to learn how to do it. And I'll tell you what finally pushed me to do it, and then what my first experiences were like when I tried to put my book learning into a real casino setting. So I'll tell you about my late 2000 exploits in plus EV gambling and how that also led me to poker. We have an update on the poker paint story. Remember the guy at poker paint, Brett Butts or Butts? I don't know how you say his name. B-U-T-Z. It's funnier to say Butts. But anyway, uh, Danny Maxwell, who's a photographer, has really been after him for stealing photographs by various prolific poker photographers such as himself and then colorizing them differently and then releasing them as art pieces. And Danny has been saying, and I agree with him, that that's theft of intellectual property. 
So I have an update on that story. Basically, Danny's accusing him of stealing his work yet again. And I will tell you where all that stands and what my opinion is of the whole thing. MGM Grand Las Vegas had a $20,000 guarantee tournament. And of course, that means that no matter how many people or how few people enter, there is no way that the prize pool will be less than 20000 That's what a $20,000 guarantee means. So how much did they pay in the prize pool for this $20,000 guarantee tournament? $19,700. I think someone failed math. Because I know, when I was in my first grade mathematics class, and I saw a problem that said number six, 19,700 is blank 20,000. I'd have to write in equal, less than, or greater than. I wrote in less than. So I learned that in the first grade, that 19,700 is less than 20,000. But I guess MGM Grand is run by somebody who believes that it's not less than 20,000 because they're paying 19,700 for their 20K guarantee. And yes, this was intentional. It wasn't a mathematical error. It was not a typo. This is really what they paid. So I'll tell you why and what I think of it. Alex Jones is accused of scamming poker players in Europe. And you may say, what? Why is this not the top story? Well, it's because it's not the Alex Jones you're thinking of. Alex Harry Jones is accused of scamming poker players in Europe. I'll tell you about that. That's a recent story that's coming up on social media. I have an update regarding the leading theory in the Lake Mead barrel murder. You know, where they found a barrel in Lake Mead, which is very low, and there was a dead body in there that's been there for decades, and everyone's been wondering who is that body and who killed that person, and why were they killed? And that is still not known yet, but they know the murder occurred probably in the early 80s, and the person was wearing clothing bought in the uh, mid-70s. But now, it is believed, though it's not verified yet, and it's possible it's wrong, but it is believed right now that the most likely murderer was notorious mob hitman Tony the Ant. Oh. A Japanese man chunked off his entire town's COVID relief money gambling. That's not good. That's our final topic of the normal topics we have, and then we also will have not a coronavirus topic, aside from my description of my fourth shot, but a monkeypox segment. I'll tell you a bit about monkeypox and whether you should be concerned about that this year or at the World Series. Because remember, people are coming from Europe to the World Series. Should you worry about monkeypox? I will tell you that of what I know so far about it as our final segment. So that's it. That's our agenda tonight. Ended up being a number of things. I thought this might be a short week, but looks like we got a lot of stuff to talk about, but we don't have any super long topics, so that's fine. Last week was a shorter show than usual, though it was still well over four hours. I think this week will be longer than that. As far as co-hosts, well, we'll see who shows up. I've let them all know, but I did let them know at kind of the last minute, so they may be sleeping Maybe busy. Who knows? It is Saturday night. Trader Ruski, you know, he goes to bed early. And Calwatt, he's three hours later. It's 1.20 a.m. where he is. So let's get going. 
the Pfizer shot. I got the fourth Pfizer shot. And I'll tell you, this was not an easy decision. I have told you guys many times that I've been on the fence about this. And if I was not going to the World Series of Poker, I would not have gotten this shot. I would have waited. Because they are coming out with an update to the vaccine. Remember, this is the same old vaccine they've had since the beginning of 2021. And in fact, it was developed in 2020. So this was developed based upon the original COVID, which is long gone. This is not even optimized for Delta, which is also gone. And it's definitely not optimized for Omicron, which can break through it. So you may say, why even bother? Well, it still gives you protection, and I'll explain that in a second. But if you wait until probably around the fall, they will have an updated version of the vaccine, supposedly, that will work better against Omicron. So I would have just waited because I'm not going into that many settings that are all that dangerous for COVID. And I just don't want to go through these days of sickness that I get following the shot. It's very easy if you're like Calwatt and you can just get the shot and have no effects. And Trey he does very well with it too. And there's others who do very well. In fact, my own father does very well. He does not get sick from the COVID shot. So for some people, it's a piece of cake. It's like getting any other vaccine where maybe you have a little bit of arm pain and that's it. Unfortunately, I'm the I'm one of the group of people, probably about half the people, who get some kind of significant side effect from the COVID vaccine, which makes it a tougher decision for me to take it than for others. Because I'm not that worried about long-term effects from taking this, though I do think my recent gout problems might have been worsened by taking these vaccines. It didn't cause gout because I had high uric acid for years prior to COVID existing, so it had nothing to do with that. But uh, other vaccines are known to bring on gout problems, so I, I do think that my increased gout problems might be a result of the vaccine. But again, this is just worsening something that already was in me. But aside from that, I'm not worried really about long-term problems from the vaccine. And I'm even less worried about short-term problems because if something was going to happen to me, it would have happened already. So I don't think a fourth shot, there's much danger of me having a heart attack or something like that. And the myocarditis is not really a concern because I'm too old. It's affecting young men, not men who are 50. But really, the reason not to take the vaccine is that the side effects suck. I'm talking about for me personally, because I had two and a half bad days of side effects from the second shot. I had two and a half days of bad side effects from the third shot. And that's much longer than other people deal with side effects. Those that do have the bad side effects, it lasts about 24 hours. For me, I was getting about two and a half times that. So... It's not trivial for me to take it. I have to give up days of my life and be miserable for the days following the vaccine. Now, the second shot, of course, was necessary for the vaccine to work at all. So that was a no-brainer to get. The third shot, by the time I got it, which was in mid-October 2021, which is as early as I could get it, uh, there had already been enough studies on it that showed it was incredibly effective in resetting your protection Because if you didn't get it, then you were pretty likely to get a breakthrough case. But if you did get it, that would 
pretty likely hold off breakthrough cases of Delta at the time. There was no Omicron yet. So that was a no-brainer. And indeed, it probably protected me at the World Series of Poker in 2021 when COVID was right in the room with me 12 hours a day and I didn't get it. So great. Okay. It probably worked. Didn't get COVID. Sucked that I went through bad side effects again. But, you know, I avoided COVID. Then in January, my son got COVID and I did not catch it from him, even though he was not really isolating in the house. So I really thought there was a decent chance I would get it, especially since the vaccine is not effective against Omicron for everybody. But I guess it was for me because I did not get Omicron unless I got it and didn't have any symptoms. But I think I probably just didn't get it. So the vaccine has probably been a success story for me as far as its performance since I was in the World Series in the same room with Omicron with several people having it for 12 hours a day and didn't get it. And I was in the same house with Omicron for a week and I didn't get it. So, okay, good job, but the side effects really suck. The problem was the fourth shot was not getting very good reviews as far as its efficacy. In an Israeli study, as I've mentioned before on this show, it was seen only to prevent symptomatic COVID a few percentage points better than those who only had three shots. So I started thinking, okay, what's the point? Why should I make myself sick for three days if it's just going to give me a few extra percentage points of protection against symptomatic Omicron? And of course, Omicron is 10 times less deadly than Delta and the original COVID were. So what am I really putting myself through this for? That was what I was thinking. But then I read another article, and this is a more recent study. And that article was saying that the problem with the Israeli situation is people were taking it too early. That yes, if you take the fourth shot too soon after the third shot, it's not going to give you very much extra protection and you might as well not bother doing it. But if you get it seven or more months after your third shot, it really does improve your chances of not getting symptomatic Omicron. So I said, all right, well, it has been seven months. That's what it's been. I got it in mid-October. It's currently mid-May. So it's been seven months. So let's do it. If I wasn't going to the World Series, I wouldn't. But since I'm going to the World Series, thousands of people are going to be there. We're all going to be in the same room. It's this relatively small space. Some parts of it have low ceilings. I saw the pictures. And we're going to be in there 12 hours a day. Day after day after day, a lot of exposure, a lot of different people. I mean, if there's one place COVID can spread, it's right there. And I hadn't gotten a vaccine in seven months. And from everything they see, after seven months, it gets pretty weak. So I said, I got to do it. Now, keep in mind, this still doesn't leave me fully protected. It's possible I will get a breakthrough case anyway, because this vaccine really is not made for Omicron. And it's possible to break through. But I definitely am going to have a better chance of avoiding infection having gotten the fourth shot than if I chose not to get the fourth shot. So because I was putting myself in the highest risk situation possible, which is the World Series of Poker, I decided I'm going to get this thing. But I was dreading it. I was dreading it because I knew that it was likely I would get crappy side effects again because I got the second shot and the third shot and they were so similar that I could have set my watch to the not only what the side effects were but when they'd show up it was predictable the third shot 
had a, like the same timeline as the second shot, and the symptoms were very similar, except a little bit worse. So I said, well, the fourth shot, I wonder if that's going to even be worse and again have a similar timeline. If so, I don't want it. It sucks. So I forced myself to do it. I really was not looking forward to it, to say the least, but I forced myself to do it. On Wednesday at 5 p.m., I just abruptly did it. How far in advance did I make the appointment? The same day. That shows you how abruptly I decided to do it. I'm not saying that I was deciding against it and then changed my mind Wednesday, but I was so wavering on the whole thing, and I just couldn't pull the trigger, and finally just Wednesday, on Wednesday, I just like, you know what, fuck it, I'll do it. And I just went on the website and signed up for a same-day appointment and went down and uh, here's a weird thing. You know, you go down there and they take your temperature before giving you the shot to make sure you're not already infected with COVID. So if they see you have a fever, they won't give it to you. So they took my temperature. And keep in mind, my temperature is usually uh, low. It's not 98.6. I usually have a normal temperature of like 97.2, which isn't abnormal, by the way. A lot of people have that. But that's usually my typical temperatures, like 97.2, 97.3. They took my temperature. 95.4. I've never seen that before. Now, it was a digital thermometer that they do without touching me. They just put it up to my forehead, so it may not be all that accurate. But I looked, I go, wait a minute, does that say 95? The guy's like, yeah. I'll go, wait, my temperature's 95. I've never seen my temperature 95 before. Are you sure about that? So he took it again, and it came up 95.7. So I don't know why I was low like that. But it's not a big deal. Which is kind of weird. And then he gave me the shot. By the way, I wasn't cold prior to that. It was not like I was out in the cold or something. I, I, I have no idea why it was that low. But they gave me the shot. And the prior two shots, I had kind of like a weird feeling for the first hour. Like weird parts of me would kind of hurt or feel pressure. I kind of have a weird feeling in my ear or my jaw. It was, it was kind of odd. But then it would go away after an hour and I'd feel fine. This time, that didn't happen. This time, I felt very normal for the first hour, aside from some pain where they injected it. And it stayed that way for, I'd say, about two more hours. So about the three-hour mark, I started feeling kind of tired, kind of low energy, kind of like Jeb Bush. I was low energy. I wasn't sick. I was just kind of low energy. About six hours after the shot, I got it about 5 p.m. So about like by like 11 p.m., I was very tired and I knew it was because of the shot. I knew the shot was draining my energy in some way. But I wasn't feeling sick at all. Just tired. Wasn't hurting other than my arm. Wasn't sick. Just very tired. So I went to sleep around like 11 something. And I slept nine hours and I woke up at 8 a.m. And I was in pain. Body aches everywhere. Just like the previous times. Bad body aches. And I thought, well, here's the body aches. But I wonder if I have a fever. I don't really feel like I have a fever. So I took my temperature. It was 99. So, okay, it's higher than normal, but not much of a fever. By 8 a.m. the previous times, I was already uh, around 101. So I thought, okay, this is a good sign. I've got the body aches, and I, I was still tired despite having slept nine hours. So I knew I had fatigue, too. It was like it was hard to get out of bed. But... I thought, okay, if it's just fatigue and some body aches, you know, maybe if the fever isn't getting there, maybe this won't be as bad. No, as the day went on, we're talking about Thursday now, two days ago, it got worse and worse and worse. 
And by the early evening, it was terrible. So first of all, I had just zero energy the entire day. Like I, I was barely out of bed. I slept when I could, but I wasn't able to sleep the entire time because I was in pain. So it was hard to get in a comfortable position to sleep when everything was hurting. Like all of my body was hurting. But I had this tremendous fatigue. Like to get up to go to the bathroom seemed like just such a chore. I'm like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. I don't really feel like doing this. And I forced myself up. I, mean, I could do it, but it was tough to bring myself to do it or to get out of bed to go get water. I mean, just this every time just seemed like such a major deal to go do. And everything hurt so much. And the fever just kept going up, up, up. And the fever got to 103. So it was just like last time. Last time the fever peaked at 102.8. This time it actually peaked a little higher at 103. And body aches, I think, worse than the previous time. It's hard to tell because the human brain does something where if you go through unpleasant things, the, the human brain will start to make you forget the details. And it's it's kind of like a coping mechanism so you don't dwell on it too much. So that's why if you think back to when you're sick and try to picture how you were feeling, you'll remember that you were sick and you remember you felt lousy. But if you try to picture how you actually felt, you'll have a hard time. And that's your brain that does that. It kind of wipes out that part of the memory. So I can't say for sure that the body aches were worse than the previous time, but I think they were. They were really bad this time. And it was just everywhere. So between the body aches and just the massive fatigue, which also seemed worse than ever, and the fever that was just relentless and just sitting at 103. And I was getting chills. And it was just, the whole thing was so crappy. And the two previous times, I would not take any painkillers because I did not want to interfere with the vaccine working. I did not want to bring down the inflammation. I did not want to interfere with the development of antibodies. I just wanted to let it all run its course. And I did. I toughed it out the second and third shots. However, when the third shot was done, after it was so miserable... And it lasted so long. I said, okay, you know, the fourth shot, if I do one, I'm going to take painkillers after taking it. Not beforehand. I know beforehand you're advised not to do that. But after I take it, at some point, I I probably will take painkillers. I told myself that'll be like the compromise I make with myself if I take a fourth vaccine. So finally at 9 p.m. Thursday, when things were just feeling at their worst point, the fever had gone down a little bit to like 102 something, but everything was just so lousy. I was just so sick of it. I was just done. So I grabbed three Advils, gulped them down, and boy, that made a change real fast. So within 20 minutes, the fever just came crashing down, and I could tell because I got hot. I don't know if this happens to the rest of you, but I have this inverse feeling to whatever my fever is doing. If I have a fever that's rapidly rising, then I get really bad chills. If I have a fever that is rapidly falling, I get very, very hot. If you remember when I had a dental infection last year, I had a rapidly rising fever as I was on the radio, and I actually completed the show. Brandon was on with me, and I faked like I was okay, and I was actually hitting mute while my teeth were chattering. I'm not even kidding. This is in May of last year, and uh, when I got off the show, my fever was 103. <laughs> I was like, oops, yep, I indeed have a fever here. I probably should have ended the show sooner. But I was getting so cold, even though I had the heat cramped up, cranked up to like 85 in the room, I was still freezing because my fever was rising. But here my fever was falling because I took that Advil. And I was getting so hot. So I had to open all the windows and I had to just uh, 
really try to cool myself down as the fever was falling. And the muscle and joint pain that, that started to decrease. It didn't go away, but it was decreasing. So everything became much more tolerable. And within an hour, everything was not all better, but significantly better. Then I got worried. Maybe I interrupted the process of the vaccine working. Maybe I shouldn't have done this. But I said, I, I don't want to go through another day and a half of this. So I, I just couldn't take it. Well, sure enough, the Advil seemed to be the turning point because when I woke up the next day, I was still very tired. So I went to sleep again for a full night, even though I slept most of the day and the whole previous night. I went to sleep another full night for about nine, ten hours. And I woke up and I had no fever. And the body aches were kind of moderate. And uh, I thought, all right, this is a lot better than the third day compared to the last time, probably thanks to the Advil. And I looked into it. It, it turns out that while this isn't well-researched, it's believed that as long as you don't take the painkiller either before the vaccine or immediately after, that you're fine. If you're basically doing it after the side effects show up, you're fine. And I waited a lot longer than that. I waited until 28 hours after I took the vaccine and about probably 15 hours or so into the side effects. So I did give it plenty of chance to work on its own before interfering with anything with the painkiller, if it does interfere. But I have to think I had enough of an immune response in that time. And the antibodies aren't done developing when the side effects disappear. That's why you have to wait about two weeks to really have your uh, protection. So like right now, I'm not all that protected compared to on Wednesday before I took it. I'll have to wait some time. And I, I timed it so I'll have max protection around the time of the World Series. That's why it was timed this way. Was I out of the woods at that point? No. Uh, believe it or not, last night, and that's when radio would have been, but I had a feeling radio was not going to be. That's why I didn't say it was going to be on Friday the 28th. But last night, I, I had like a minor return of side effects. I had like a 100 fever and I started feeling some more muscle and joint pain. Even my throat was starting to hurt a little bit. So no way I could have done radio. And I, I again, went to sleep for a long night, probably another nine, ten hours, and uh, woke up this morning and didn't feel like I was uh, sick anymore, but still very tired. I went back to sleep another four hours. I've slept a shitload of hours between, uh, I'd say, like Wednesday at 11 p.m. and today at 1 p.m. when I woke up. I slept most of that time, which is crazy. Between Wednesday at 11 p.m. and Saturday at 1 p.m., I slept most of that time, thanks to the vaccine. And now I feel normal. I well, not completely normal. My my foot hurts oddly, like but one specific part of my right foot hurts, and the injection part of the uh, left arm hurts. But aside from that, I feel normal. I don't feel sick. I don't feel tired. So. In case you're wondering how I am now, that's the status. I have to imagine that within the next day or two, probably the pain in my foot and my uh, arm will go away. That is the one pretty predictable thing about the vaccine is that the effects of it will disappear. Though from the second shot, I remember there were some lingering effects where I didn't feel quite right for about five days until after it, but I did get all better from it. But, you know, I, I just wanted to feel like I was getting maximum protection for the World Series, given the tremendous risk that's there. And it's not just that I don't want to get Omicron, which I don't, but it's not just that I don't want to get it. It's imagine getting this in the middle of an event. Imagine if I'm doing well and I'm all happy. I'm a, a great day one. I'm going to come up with a nice, nice stack in day two. And I wake up with Omicron and I can't come back. 
So I don't want that to happen. There's two reasons not to get it at the World Series. One is just not to get sick, and two is so you don't ruin an event you might be doing well in. So hopefully I can continue my streak of not having COVID, even when exposed to it. That's why I got my fourth shot. I'm glad I had the opportunity to do it. They really should open this to anyone. The vaccines are wide open. That's how I got a same-day appointment. It's not like it once was where it's very difficult to get the vaccine and you have to fight for places in the schedule. Now you can get it any time, basically. So I don't know why they don't just say anyone who wants it can get it, anyone who doesn't want it doesn't have to, and here's who we recommend should, who we recommend shouldn't, and and uh, you know make your own decision. That, that should be the way it is, like it is with all other vaccines like uh like the flu vaccine you don't have to take the flu shot and in fact i haven't been getting the flu shot i wasn't someone who felt i really needed it because uh the flu isn't that dangerous to my age group so i wasn't getting the flu shot i still haven't gotten it i got it one year and that was the year my son was born other than that i never got the flu shot so they should just make it like that just make it open to whoever wants it i don't know why it's 50 plus so that's not a problem for me because I am 50 plus, but I wasn't 50 plus until recently. It's just the way it fell that when they made something 50 plus, I happened to be 50. So that was my experience with the fourth shot. That's why the show did not happen yesterday. Going forward, this shouldn't affect anything. Now, if I get COVID anyway, which could happen, if I get COVID anyway, the World Series is going to be pissed that I went through this crap and I got COVID anyway. Okay, so let's move on. A Doug Polk topic. Doug Polk, you have to understand, is somewhat of a troll. Doug Polk likes to say controversial things. He likes to do controversial things. And he likes to get attention from people. And I'm not saying he puts out things that he doesn't really mean. But I'm also saying that he will say things knowing it's going to get a reaction And sometimes the reaction he's going for is just people noticing him and going to his channel and maybe going to his poker room. And he doesn't even mind if he gets some people angry at him, as long as he doesn't get them too angry. So he's not looking to become a pariah in poker. He's not looking to become someone everyone hates. But he is looking to be someone who gets a lot of attention, who you think about a lot, who you want to see what they're going to say next. Doug Polk has always done that. That's why he trolled Negreanu for so many years. So this is what he wrote. And by the way, I do think he believed what he wrote here. So I'm not saying he's just making up things to be controversial. But I do say that he knew when he wrote this that it was going to outrage a lot of people. But he wrote it anyway. In reference to the Sports Illustrated uh, 2022 cover with a woman on there named Yumi Nu who is overweight and uh, was on the cover. And of course, uh, this is different than the traditional Sports Illustrated model, who tended to be very thin. In fact, in some cases, uh, thin to the point of anorexic. So this is the reverse. Yumi Nu is uh, large. And uh, while she's proportioned pretty well, all of her is large. She's not even like a larger woman who just has... you know, wide hips and big thighs and a big ass, but uh, other than that, has a uh, a traditionally uh, hourglass frame. She doesn't. You can see that all of her is large. 
Her arms are large and have a lot of fat on them. Uh, you can see on her stomach there's fat. You can see just all over her there's a lot of fat. Now, she's not morbidly obese. And that's started some controversy. And Sports Illustrated, kind of like Doug Polk, is trying to get noticed. And they've, they've had other controversial covers in recent times. They, they had someone who was trans on there, I think, last year. They're trying to get people to say, oh, wow, look who's on the cover now. Because people stopped looking at the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Because why would you? If you want to look at pretty girls, you just have to go on Google and type in whatever you want to see, and you can find it. You don't need to go buy a magazine anymore. So this is very old school to buy a magazine to look at girls in bikinis. So for that reason, they feel they have to reinvent themselves. Now, Sports Illustrated is a sports magazine. But even from that standpoint, uh, sports magazines have always had the problem of being behind because there's publishing time involved, and there's mailing time involved, and sports is something that changes constantly. So you can write about a team of how great they're doing and how well everything's going, and by the time you mail it to somebody, the team is going to be in a, bit, a big slump. So uh, that's always been a problem with Sports Illustrated, and I used to laugh at that when I would read Sports Illustrated, like in the lobby of my doctor or dentist's office, and they'd be writing about something that just doesn't apply anymore because the story was written a few weeks ago. Those type of magazines are really best for writing just stories that are not based upon the moment, like a story about a particular athlete and his background or something that happened long in the past that you may not know about. That's what they're good for. But anything that's current, they tend to not be very good for that, especially in the age of the Internet, where... There's instant stories up there. So something happens in sports, and you see a fairly long article about it already on ESPN. And that's where people get their sports news now, on sites like ESPN. So Sports Illustrated is antiquated, and they're trying to remain relevant, and they're trying to do it by bringing on controversy by being, quote, inclusive. So keep in mind here, Sports Illustrated is not doing this because they've felt bad about how they've featured very thin women on these magazines all these years, and they've caused eating disorders and whatever else. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to atone for this by putting a fat woman on. That's not what they're doing. They're doing this because they want you to notice them and talk about them. And I guess, in a way, they've been successful at that because we are talking about them right here on the show. Otherwise, I would not be talking about Sports Illustrated, nor would Doug Polk. So Doug Polk wrote this. I understand we want to focus more on positive body image, especially in a time when people are more critical of themselves than ever, primarily from social media. But putting obese people on the cover of Sports Illustrated sends a horrible message about health and well-being. Being obese is a choice and will harm your quality of life significantly. It will make your life more difficult physically day to day and will have long-term health impacts on your body. Also, for what it's worth... For way too many years, the women on Sports Illustrated covers were way too thin, and it was good to move away from that. But this is ridiculous. So this got people really mad at him. Really mad. A lot of people got really outraged by this statement. One of them, who didn't get outraged, but was not very happy with the tweet and let Doug Polk know it in a polite way, is his friend, Sean Deeb. Now, you may think, well, of course, Sean Deeb is very fat himself, so of course he got offended. Well, not really, because uh, Doug Polk was talking about what's on the Sports Illustrated swimsuit 
magazine. So that doesn't feature guys. He's only talking about women here. But Sean Deeb also has a wife who is overweight. And Sean Deeb took this a little bit personally, even though this wasn't meant as a dig at him. But uh, Sean Deeb wrote this to Doug Polk. I don't think she's obese, and I think the airbrushing had a worse impact on these shoots on that size of a model. There was some airbrushing here, which made the picture look kind of funny, I agree. As a man who rarely regrets a tweet, this will be one of them, Doug. So he's not saying that he's the man who rarely regrets a tweet. He's saying that, Doug, I think that as a guy who rarely regrets anything he tweets, that after some time, you're going to regret this. So then... Polk decided to come back with a witty remark. He said, this would be like me commenting if someone has a bad haircut. (laughs) So what he's saying here is that Sean Deeb should not be commenting on whether obesity is healthy or not when he's obese, (laughs) which he is. Yeah, Sean Deeb is obese. And Doug Polk saying, you know, that'd be like me talking about someone's haircut because people always make fun of Doug Polk's hair. Sean Deeb said, when you see your wife go through a transformation, if you guys happen to have a child together, I think your opinion will change. Nothing more beautiful than your baby maker helping your offspring thrive. So what Sean Deeb is saying there is, uh, Doug, I know you're married. And, you know, if you have a kid one day and your wife gets to be overweight which sometimes happens to women after childbirth their body's metabolism changes and they start to get fat uh, that sean was saying that this didn't bother him and that he thought it was beautiful that his wife was just loving towards his kids and and and, uh he doesn't worry about her weight now it's probably easier for sean not to worry about her weight because he's obese himself but now i understand his point he's saying that he's not at that point, he's not with his wife for the her body then her weight, whatever she was before. And if she gains weight, it's no big deal. What's important to him is to how she raises his kids and what kind of wife she is. So then Doug said back, I, I'm confused what you mean here. Totally normal to gain weight from pregnancy. Are you talking about after? See, Doug's kind of clueless there. Yes, it is normal to gain weight after a pregnancy. Now, not all women do it. Some women after pregnancy go back to as thin as they were before, but others don't. For others, that's kind of the turning point when they go from fairly easy to keep the weight off to where it becomes very difficult to keep the weight off. It just depends from woman to woman. So, you know, Sean's response was reasonable. In fact, that was the sensitive side of Sean D. How often you see Sean D. being sensitive, but I think it's struck kind of a sour note with him because people have insulted Sean D before for his wife being overweight, which I, I think is dumb for several reasons, especially because Sean is overweight himself. Uh, if, if anything, it's nice to see that Sean, for all his uh, money and poker success, doesn't say, hey, you know, I'm going to use my money to get a hotter wife and I'm, I'm going to dump my wife who's overweight now. Like Instead, he's like, no, I love her even more that she's a good mother and that uh, it's understandable she gained weight from her pregnancy and also he doesn't say it but he he's obese himself so i'm sure he thinks that as well you know, what right do i have to complain about her gaining weight when i'm really big myself in fact he's a lot fatter than she is 
Now, Doug Polk is not like fat. Kind of hard to tell what the deal of Doug Polk's body. Like, I, I, he's he's a guy I always have a hard time really determining what he is because sometimes I'll look at him and I'll think he's like fit and muscular. Other times I'll look at him and think he's like uh, kind of heavy and pudgy and then other times neither it, it's kind of weird it, I, I think he just jumps all around weight wise I, I don't see i don't really know what his personal habits are maybe he goes to the gym and then stops maybe he goes on diets and stops it's, it's very weird i've it seems like i've kind of seen doug polk look different ways body wise and something that was surprising to me i think it's because of the hair that sticks up that faux hawk he has which is very very commonly done by short guys not commonly like they usually do it but if somebody has a faux hawk it's usually a short guy trying to make himself look taller so i just pictured doug polk would be short and i was shocked when i saw him in person he was my height so doug polk is someone who i expected to look different in person mainly based on height not really weight but yeah i've seen in his videos he just seems to look different weight wise every time but getting back to the res- response to him, there were some pretty ridiculous responses that came to him. Someone named Tony Sanfilippo on Twitter, who's Oxide Lounge, exactly as it sounds on Twitter, Oxide Lounge, wrote, Weight and health are not the same thing. Please stop being an arrogant white man. Okay, the first part is, I'd say, half true, half false. So it is true that being skinny doesn't always equal healthy, and being heavy does not equal unhealthy. Now, in general, being a healthy weight is healthier than not being a healthy weight. But being anorexic is actually more dangerous than being overweight in the short term. There's a lot more people who are overweight than anorexic, so overall... There's a lot more people dying related to being overweight or obese than anorexic just because it's more common. But if you had to choose right now between being anorexic or being overweight, uh, you would definitely want to choose being overweight because anorexic presents a lot of short-term health issues that can kill you, whereas being overweight is more of a slow trudge towards an earlier death. So that's one thing. Another thing is that uh, there's a range of how big of a deal it is. So if you're really obese, then it's going to be a big problem for you and you're unlikely to live past like early 50s. If you're fairly obese, if you're not like 600 pounds, but you know, let's say you're, you're 400 or something like that, uh, that's also going to be a problem for you. You're, you're likely not going to make old age or even moderately old age. And that's eventually going to get you too. Now, if you're on the lower side of obese then, again, it's not healthy for you, but it's not as bad as being portrayed. And uh, let's say you're 30 pounds overweight, which is not obese, of course. Uh, Are you much less healthy than someone who is zero pounds overweight? Not necessarily. There's many different things, genetics, lifestyle, and just many other factors that could cause the person who is uh, zero pounds overweight to be much less healthy than the person who's 30 pounds overweight. So the, the person who's uh, zero pounds overweight, if, if they uh, 
frequently drink, if they do drugs, if they uh, just have bad genetics that have uh, some major health issues, uh, they could easily be much worse off health-wise than the person who's uh, 30 pounds overweight. And sometimes being moderately overweight just doesn't affect your health at all. And sometimes even being very overweight will not affect your health at all. Here's a good example. Tommy Lasorda, who was obese for almost his whole adult life, except when he was very young. And he lived to 93. He just died recently, the age of 93. So that's someone you would have never pictured living to the age of 93, right? But he did. So it's not a death sentence for everybody. Now, I'll agree that Tommy Lasorda was an outlier. But saying weight and health are not the same thing, I can, uh, again, half agree with that. It's not as simple as just saying whoever's skinny is healthy and whoever's fat is not. But it's also not correct to say you shouldn't aspire to get to a healthy weight because you should. And then the second part to the bigger problem, please stop being an arrogant white man. What? What does Polk's race have to do with this? And Polk then responded. He wrote, didn't take long for my whiteness to get involved in the comments. And he put laughing emojis. Yeah, I agree. What do you mean stop being an arrogant white man? That's, that's racist, isn't it? <laughs> like, imagine if you say to a black guy saying that, stop being an arrogant black man. Then everyone would jump on that person for saying, you know, why are you bringing race into this? This has nothing to do with being white. A guy of any race could say this. So that was a dumb comment. And then uh, Veronica Brill, yes, that Veronica Brill, she said something similar. She said, Rich white men are experts at everything. Hmm. See, this has been a problem recently. This has been a problem where white men, especially straight white men, have been vilified as ones who are not allowed to have an opinion on anything because they're seen as privileged. And therefore, they cannot comment on anything unless it's directly about them, and sometimes not even then. So you should never say to someone, you can't talk about this because you're white or because you're straight or because you're male. Yes, you can. You can have an opinion on anything. It doesn't matter what you are. Now, you sometimes can't have the experience that someone who is not in your demographic category had. So you may not be able to comment from experience. So I can't comment from the experience of being a woman. I can't comment from the experience of not being white. I can't comment from the experience of being gay because I'm none of those things and I never will be. And therefore, I did not have those experiences and I won't claim to understand it from the firsthand experience of having lived it. And I will say that anyone in those categories will have a better view of the firsthand experience of living that than I will. However, that doesn't mean I can't observe it from the outside and comment. And sometimes an outside observer is better at coming up with an opinion on these things because they're not emotionally attached to it. But definitely, you are allowed to have an opinion no matter what you are. That's pretty ridiculous. So that was a dumb comment by Veronica Brill and by this Tony Sanfilippo. Well, Doug then started to pivot and again made this more about health. Now, he already was talking about health in the original tweet, but now he was especially making about health. So this is what he wrote uh, after a lot of the angry, angry responses came in. He first made this tweet. The, the original tweet was at 7.27 p.m. on May 16th. 
also May 16th, at 9.39 p.m., about two hours later, he wrote, Heart disease kills the most people in America every year. This is because our nation is extremely fat. Well, not necessarily. That's, uh, yes, it's part of it that people being overweight increases heart disease deaths, but heart disease is just a very common way for human beings to die. That and cancer are just two very big killers of human beings. That's just the way human beings are made. So that's not totally accurate, Doug. But uh, you're, you're right, though, that if there were fewer overweight people in the country, if, if more people were of healthy weight, we would have uh, fewer deaths of heart disease, but it would still be a huge problem. He says, I see an incredible amount of, but when did obese mean unhealthy responses? You will on average live a shorter life if you're obese. True. Normalizing that kills people. Where are all the, if it saves even one life, people now? Which he's referring to the COVID protocols that uh, people are saying, you know, why are you complaining about wearing a mask? Because, you know, if it saves even one life, why are you complaining? So he's talking about that. Like those same people who used to say last year and the year before, maybe even still this year, why are you so worried about COVID restrictions trying to save lives? If it saves one life, it's great. He's saying, well, what happened? To you people about saving lives, why don't you ask people to not be obese, to put some effort into losing weight, and that'll save lives. A woman named Christy Louise, who's Wheezy R25, W-E-E-Z-Y-R25, wrote, I'm literally considered obese per BMI and men like you. I work out for an hour almost every morning. I drink a ton of water. I eat pretty well. I go for walks. But because of society and BMI, I'm obese and told I'm unhealthy, LOL. So he got a lot of responses like this. This is just one I'm picking out of the many responses from women who I hadn't heard of before, including this Christy Louise. I don't even know if she's in poker. I understand. And there is an incorrect belief about obesity and people who are overweight, that everybody can control it. It's all their fault. If they just made some changes and lived a more healthy lifestyle, they'd be a normal weight. For some people, that's true. For others, it's false. Now, I don't know if this Christy Louise is telling the truth, but it's a very good chance she is. There are some people with such a lousy metabolism that no matter what they do, unless they absolutely starve themselves, they are going to be overweight. Their metabolism is, is that bad. She says she works out an hour, drinks a lot of water, eats pretty well, and goes for walks, and somehow she's still obese by the BMI reading. Okay, I mean, that really can happen. Now, where she's wrong is that just because she can't control her weight doesn't mean that she's not also unhealthy. It may be unhealthy that's very difficult to control, but... Your body doesn't say, well, because you can't control it, then you're still technically healthy. That's not true. There's a lot of things you can't control about your health or that are very difficult to control that will shorten your life or kill you. And it sucks. And in fact, we're going to talk about someone who died uh, before 50 that had nothing to do with weight, but that he couldn't control. Todd Terry, I mentioned in the intro, who died of uh, a brain disease. But I agree with most of what this Christy Louise wrote, except the LOL about her being unhealthy at the end. It's, it's not really LOL. It's, uh, no, you are unhealthy, probably, but I understand you can't control it. I understand 
how annoying it must be to have people believe you're just lazy and gluttonous when in reality, unless you absolutely starve yourself every day and just feel miserable, that you're going to be overweight and that some people don't get that. And I do get that. And by the way, I'm not one of those people. You may ask, well, maybe I'm just... You may think that I am making excuses because I'm somewhat overweight. I'm not obese. I'm not obese by the BMI. I'm not obese if you see me in person. People on the forum like to sometimes troll me about me being fat. But in reality, while I'm somewhat overweight, I'm not obese. And I never have been obese. But it would be nice if I could lose some weight. I would like to lose like 30 pounds. And... It's not easy to do, but I will say that I'm not one of those people who can't lose weight. I also don't have one of those metabolisms I used to, but I don't have one of those good metabolisms that makes it easy to lose weight. But at the same time, I don't have one that makes it super, super hard. I'm kind of like average along those lines. But I know people. I know people who have a very, very, very hard time losing weight, no matter what they do. So you can't shame these people. And sometimes it's a combination of both. Sometimes people just get so frustrated that no matter what they do, they can't lose weight. They just say, fuck it. You know, I, if I can't lose weight eating responsibly, I'm just not going to eat responsibly. I'm going to be fat either way, so screw it. So you have that too. You have people who could be a healthy weight if they put more effort into it and just don't. You have those that are just really lazy and gluttonous and just don't give a crap and become obese just due to their own negligence in the situation. So you have people who become obese where it is completely their fault. There's a wide spectrum of reasons that people are overweight. And you can't assume unless you watch them, unless you know them well enough to understand why they are that fat then you can't state why. And until you're there, until you're someone who, even if you eat healthy, you're still going to get fat, uh, you can't understand until you're either there or you witness it. And you say, wow, you know, it, it really isn't always a choice. So I understand what she's saying there. Donna Morton, someone else I don't know, Dark Angel 709 I think she is a poker player. I think I see a picture of her playing poker as her avatar. She said, so now you are changing the script. Instead of fat shaming a woman, you're on now about heart disease. Sorry, but anyone can get heart disease. You don't have to be fat to get it. Also, being fit and healthy doesn't prevent heart attacks, etc. Well, as I was saying, that's true and it's false. You have a higher chance of dying of heart disease if you are fat. But heart disease does kill plenty of people who are thin and average. And then there's plenty of people who are fat who never die of a heart attack. But it does increase your risk, that's for sure. Will Jaffe, who does his trademark Tough Convos, which everybody likes. These are very popular, his Tough Convo segments. He's at Dankness3, D-A-N-K-N-E-S-S-3 on Twitter. He came out pretty hard at Doug Polk, not just about this, but about Polk in general. Listen to this. All right, guys. Um, it's been a minute, but... Uh it's time for another tough one and uh it's time to have a tough conversation with an old friend of ours mr doug polk doug i think i speak for the vast majority of the poker community when i say 
you're a fucking idiot, dude. I mean, what are you doing? Why are you telling any woman what to do with their body or anything at all? Just go home to your skinny blonde wife and your little chihuahua and just take take a few days off Twitter. Give yourself a little time out. I mean, you're talking about obesity and, and what's beautiful. Bro, it's 2022 and you still wear fucking hair gel, okay? I mean, and, and what are you doing, man? Making fucking 30-minute YouTube clips about Helmuth while Jake and Ali and Bryn walk around Monte Carlo with their fucking dicks out. Like, why don't you use some of those YouTube chops and that following and that investigative power you got to do some good for the poker world instead of fucking trying to make money off of it all the time? Well, the Lodge, 1500 guaranteed this week. Come down, boys. Come down. And why are you doing so many CoinFlex ads? You're fucking rich, dude. It's pathetic. Seriously. Get it together, man. So the the end where he says the CoinFlex stuff, it's true on Doug Polk's videos, there's just always this CoinFlex logo in the background. And Jaffe was mocking that at the end. Doug responded... Honestly, I probably went over the line here. Some subjects I should stay away from, but I feel really strongly about this one. I mean, we are talking about 5 to 15% APY compounded every eight hours right into your wallet. It's just that easy. I get a little bit too excited about CoinFlex. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty funny response. So he apologizes for pushing CoinFlex, and in the apology, he pushes CoinFlex. <laughs> he doesn't address the rest. I do like the hair gel line from Jaffe. Now, I didn't like the beginning about telling women what to do with their bodies. He wasn't really telling women what to do with their bodies. He's just saying that he doesn't think this should be glorified. And he claimed uh, it's just promoting an unhealthy lifestyle and it will lead to more deaths. And number one, that's not telling them what to do with their bodies. And number two... I don't think it's terrible for people to comment in general what they find to be attractive and not attractive. Keep in mind, this woman on the cover, first of all, she was very aware what she was getting into. She was very aware that she was going to be the first overweight swimsuit model for SI and that there would be a lot of controversy and a lot of people putting her down. Uh, Like She knew this going in. So she signed up for it. She fully knew what was coming. I'm not saying you should just go on Twitter and bash her. I'm just saying that this isn't just some random that Doug is picking on for being fat. Second, I don't think she's going to see Doug's comments. So Doug is commenting on someone who appeared on the swimsuit issue of Sports Illustrated on the cover. He's making comments about what he finds to be attractive and not attractive. Let's forget the health thing. He just says, hey, I don't find this attractive. Let's just leave it at that. He didn't say that, but let's say that was his whole point. I don't think this is attractive. I don't think this should be what should be on the SI swimsuit issue. That's not what it's for. It doesn't have to be anorexic women, but I don't want to see obese or semi-obese women on the SI swimsuit issue. I don't find it attractive. That's not telling women what to do with his body. That's saying what he finds attractive and what he thinks other men will find attractive, and he thinks they shouldn't do it, in his opinion. There's nothing wrong with stating that. You can disagree, but there's nothing wrong with stating that. And if you can't state that, then we're getting into this kind of recent cancel culture sort of way of evaluating 
the way people state their opinions, where everybody's offended by everything. And if you say anything that someone can take as a slam against them, even if it's not about them personally, that you can't say it. And we can't have that. We can't have it where everyone's offended by everything. So look at me. I'm 50 years old. I'm like, what, like 30 pounds overweight? Am I insulted that there aren't a lot of 50-year-olds who are 30 pounds overweight appearing on magazine covers? Am I sad by that? Am I ashamed of that? Do I feel like uh, I have to live up to the body images of the dudes I see on magazine covers who are very fit, who are look like they just stepped out of the gym, who are usually much younger than I am? Do I feel bad when I see these covers? No. And I realize for women it's a little bit different, but just because they have something on a magazine cover doesn't mean that it's going to make everybody feel bad who doesn't look like that. So I reject this whole thing about telling women what to do with their bodies or telling women that he's not telling women anything. He's, he's basically telling Sports Illustrated what he feels they should put on there. Then Doug pivoted a different direction. Shortly after his tweet about the heart health, he said, I think there's reasonably... I think there's a reasonably strong, quote, people should be happy with who they are argument for promoting feeling good about your body regardless of situation. The negative trade-off, though, is that sometimes you need pain to make the real important changes in your life. When I was a Busto 24 tabling small stakes rakeback grinder, I didn't tell myself, this is amazing, this is perfect, I'm proud of who I am. I sucked it up and accepted my shortcomings to try and be the best. If I was content with failure, I'd never have had a successful career. Doug, you should be a motivational speaker. It's kind of a stupid tweet. I was kind of with him up until now, but I don't like that tweet. Doug discovered that he had a lot of talent at heads-up, no-limit poker. And probably at other forms of poker, too. But especially heads-up, no-limit. So Doug came to the discovery that he was better than just a 24-tabling, small-stakes rakeback grinder, meaning someone who seeks to break even and survive on rake back. So he's saying that was what he was for a while, and then he realized he could do better, and, and he put the work in, and now he's a great player. That's because you have the talent, Doug. You could have a ton of people who try just as hard as you did, and they will not get there because they lack the raw talent at poker that you have. So great, Doug. It worked out for you. You were successful. You put the work in, and you had the talent, and you did really well. It's like when you watch athletes on TV. It's not just the ones who are working hard that are successful. They also have to have had raw talent. If they had average talent at their sport, and they worked very hard, they would not be in the pros because they would lack the raw talent. So that's not a good example. You didn't get where you are just because of hard work. Now, he is saying something there that I do like. There's one line in this whole thing I like. The negative trade-off, though, is that sometimes you need pain to make the real important changes in your life. I don't know if he meant it this way, but if he did, then I agree. And that is, sometimes you need to hear something negative about yourself before you make a change that's positive. Sometimes your best advice comes from your enemies or from your critics. I'd like to tell a story of uh, when I was playing No Limit Hold'em Cash 
which I just kind of learned on my own from feel. I didn't really learn it from books or anything. I was a limit holding player for a bunch of years, and I just tried no limit and just try to feel my way through. And as a result, I made some mistakes. So one of the big mistakes I was making was I was continuation betting like every flop. And that was a big mistake in No Limit Hold'em. But I was doing it. And uh, friends saw I was doing it, but they didn't say anything because they didn't want to make me feel bad or get in any kind of argument with me. or Like, they didn't want to say, hey, Todd, we see this hole in your game. You should correct it. They just they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to intrude. They didn't want to say anything critical, so they just uh, kept their mouths shut. However, when I was playing one time on Bodog, back when you could chat there, before it was Bovada, I was playing No Limit on there. And a bunch of the players there didn't like me on the No Limit side. And they didn't know who I was. They just the screen name I had on there, they just didn't like. And they started insulting my play. And these were winning players on there. I could see they were winning players in their stats. And they were making fun of my C-betting almost 100% of the time. And I said, wait a minute. Why are these guys mocking me for this? These are good players who are winning all the time. You know what? I bet they're right. So then I looked into it and I noticed, yes, I'm making a mistake. That's not the right thing you should be doing in No Limit Hold'em Cash is C-betting almost every time. So I then learned when I should be C-betting and when I shouldn't be. And that greatly improved my game. And I also took it to No Limit Tournaments as well and improved my game there as well. So I would have eventually learned this, but I learned it sooner. This is back in the 2000s. I learned it sooner because people who were trying to make fun of me were making fun of me about something that was actually true that I needed to improve. So I said, thank you very much, and I improved it. So it's funny how I got that advice from people who didn't like me. Now, I don't know if that's what Doug's trying to say, or if he's trying to say that you just have to go through pain yourself to improve, meaning like hard work or just unpleasantries such as dieting. But if he is saying that you sometimes need to hear it, you need to hear negativity to improve yourself, I actually agree with that somewhat. I always say when it comes to people who are criticizing you, you should pay attention to what they say. Because some of the time, they're just trying to find anything to criticize, even things that are not true or mostly not true. But sometimes what they're saying is true and nobody else will say it because they're being too polite. So sometimes you need to listen to what those criticizing you are saying because that might give you some hints on the ways you can improve yourself. A plus-sized Minnesota girl on Twitter who goes by Mandy Minx and she's a poker princess, but it's kind of spelled a funny way on Twitter. P-K-R-P-R-N-C-S-S. She's from Minnesota and she's the uh, live-in girlfriend of a player who goes by Nikki Too Tricky, who's also from Minnesota. But she's uh, Mandy Minx on there is her name. PKR Princess is her handle. She wrote, I feel the only way Doug Polk can move on from this hot take is by paying reparations in the form of a main event seat to a fatty female poker player. And I volunteer, K thanks. I mean, I'd put myself in, but I'd rather spend the $10,000 on food. <laughs> so she had a good sense of humor about this. But she actually calls herself like a, like a, what does she say? She, she puts her own looks down on her Twitter profile. 
Yeah, she said she's a solid 4.5 out of 10. That's right on her Twitter profile. Then Doug continued to walk it back about an hour later. A person named Andrew Hanna at Flip for Chips on Twitter said, I can understand the point about physical health, but you lose me bringing up beauty. Even if you aren't a fan of thicker girls, surely you can admit this girl is very pretty. Body positivity is seeing beauty in every unique human package. And Doug said, yeah, if there's anything I change about my tweet, it's the beauty line, because really that's subjective. It's not really about whether I find her attractive or not. It's really up to the individual and doesn't matter what I think. Should have just stuck to the health points. No, not necessarily. I know Doug was trying to say that this is promoting unhealthy lifestyles in the attempt to be inclusive. But there's a secondary point to the whole thing that shouldn't be forgotten. And that is, we don't have to say everything's beautiful. What we should be getting away from is attaching too much value to looks. So rather than saying everyone's beautiful in their own way, every look is beautiful, every weight is beautiful, everybody's beautiful. There's no such thing as as physically beautiful because it's subjective and everyone's beautiful. That's not true. Yes, there's different tastes one can have of what is beautiful, but what is beautiful is really something that is an average of what society thinks. Yes, it will vary from person to person, but you'll see a lot of common opinions along the way. And that's what separates beauty from averageness from ugliness. And while we can seek to be more sensitive about those who are not that attractive and not make them feel bad for it, We also shouldn't lie and say that everybody's beautiful. But what we should do, and what is the most healthy, is to say, let's not get too hung up on looks. Let's not derive someone's value from their physical appearance, which is going to decline anyway as they get older. How many beautiful 75-year-olds do you know? So, since everybody's going to eventually lose their looks, why not focus on who they are as a person, or what their contributions are to society? or their intelligence, or their character. And if the message is to value people based upon those factors more than their looks, well, I can get behind that. But I can't get behind just lying about what's beautiful. You can say everyone's beautiful. You can say, look at this person over here. They're just as beautiful as this other one here, even though 99 out of 100 people would pick the second one as more beautiful. So you can say whatever you want to try to make people feel better, but everyone deep down knows it's not true. So we don't need to redefine what beautiful is. We don't need to force covers where you put overweight people on the magazine. I think they all said like an older woman on one. I don't, when I say older, I don't mean like 40. I mean like a lot older. I think there was an older woman on one of the covers. Like They don't need to do this. I know why they're doing it. It's for attention. But you don't need to do this. You don't need to say... A 60-year-old woman is just as beautiful as a 25-year-old. No, she's not. You don't need to say a woman who is uh, 300 pounds is uh, as beautiful as one who's uh, 140 pounds. Uh, Usually that's not true. You don't have to redefine beautiful. Even if there are outliers who like certain types over others. Now, I've said before, and I'll say it again now, that I'm actually someone who isn't all that into girls who are thin. And I am someone who has never 
really cared in a negative way if a woman is uh, somewhat overweight. If they're too big, yeah, then uh, at that point, it, it starts to not be attractive to me. But uh, if, if, if they're just overweight, then that's not a problem. In fact, in some cases, I like it better. But still, I don't think they should redefine what is considered beautiful based upon what I think or based upon what is politically correct. I think it really should be what society at the time finds beautiful. And that adjusts, that changes slowly over time, but it never changes too much. And it changes naturally. You can't force the change for what you wish it would be. So it's fine to comment on the beauty part. You can say, why are they doing this? Why, when the majority of men buying this magazine are probably a lot more attracted to a woman, at least, who isn't very much overweight, they may not want to see a, an anorexic woman, but at least one who is uh, someone who is either fairly thin to average, why would you not have that on the cover instead of someone who's uh, clearly very overweight? Since most men aren't going to be as attracted to that, why are you putting that there? Other than just to create false controversy. That's a good question. And if the answer is, well, we're trying to make all body types become accepted, you say, well, you get them accepted by telling everyone to stop being so hung up on looks. Instead of saying, yeah, let's be hung up on looks, but believe everybody's beautiful. I have never been a believer that we should look at things how we wish they were rather than how they are. We should always look at what is reality, not what we wish reality to be. And if we want to see things improved, we should try to change our reactions to that reality rather than what the reality is. So I think that Doug got pressured into walking this back more than he should have. And you know what Doug is really thinking. What Doug's really thinking is, I don't want to see a fat chick on the SI swimsuit thing. It feels weird. It feels forced. They're doing it for attention. This is promoting the whole idea that it's totally fine to be obese, so it also has a health implication. The whole thing's stupid. Why are they doing it? You know Doug thought that when he wrote it. You know Doug still thinks that now. He walked it back somewhat because he got a lot of pushback, including by a number of people who found this tweet, because he has a pretty big following. So eventually this caught on to other people who weren't in poker, who didn't even know who he was. Like they created Reddit threads about him. And when he noticed this was getting big, he didn't want to become the poster boy of total insensitivity and public enemy number one beyond poker. So then he started to walk it back. That's what happened here. I believe his first tweet was more along the lines of what he really thought. Veronica Brill somewhat redeemed herself. Remember, she made that stupid tweet about rich white men and how they think they know everything. But she did a parody of Doug Polk, which I'm going to play to you, which is actually pretty funny, especially if you watch it. It's called Doug Polk Talks About the Importance of Women. And instead of just going on and ranting about what a jerk he is, she got creative and she did a fake video as if she was Doug Polk, even got hair to kind of look like his. And also imitated Tim Riley, who she 
pretended was on the show with Doug Polk. So she played both parts, Doug Polk and Tim Riley, in this six-minute video. And she had a lot of little details in the video that were making fun of Doug. She was very, very detail-oriented. I will give her the thumbs up for this one. It's pretty funny, very detail-oriented. And this is what she should have done in the first place instead of ranting about rich white men. So let's listen to this. What's up, guys? Doug Poke here. I know some of you got upset today at what I said on Twitter. And you know what? I don't know why, because no one really cares what women think. But because my wife is a woman and she's a size two, and after she has a baby, she's going to stay a size two. Otherwise, I just won't talk to her anymore. Uh, I decided I'd have a feminist on the show today. Is the feminist a woman? No, because no one really wants to hear what women have to say if they're not a size two and hot and Actually, even those two things, no one really cares. But I'm going to have one on nonetheless, just to please my audience. Because you know what? I care about you guys so much. That's what it is. I also hope that all of you understand and appreciate how far removed we are from International Women's Day and that I tweeted all of that in a strategic way so that women could still have their one day a year where people pretend to care about them. So I just wa- I want to give myself some credit right now for keeping that distance from International Women's Day. I also think this is a great time to talk about the innovation that the Lodge Poker Club is going through. We're going to be the first in the nation to have a body fat scanner. And it's in pink, so it's only for the ladies because we don't really care what size the men are as long as they bring their money. But the women, you go through a fat body scanner. If your fat is above 9%, Any percentage above that is an extra $5 in rake per hand. I want to support fat women. Fat women are great for our poker economy, and more fat is better, which means more rake is better. In fact, I think this innovation should be brought across the United States. I'm renting a billboard again this year at the World Series of Poker, and I'm going to insist that everyone... Use the body fat calculator for women because more fat is better. I am about the body positivity movement and more rakers better. She actually changed the billboard. She showed a picture of it saying more rake for fatties is better.com. Today on the podcast, we have an ACR professional poker player and a feminist, Mr. Tim Rayleigh. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, yeah, but I'm not a pro for, uh, for ACR. Oh, I think thought you were an ACR pro. What are you if you're not an ACR pro? Yeah, man, I'm just an affiliate fucking, you know, like so many dudes just like stole that spot from me. So like, yeah, I'm in my fucking late thirties and just an affiliate, but you know, like one day I'm going to get my time, right? (laughs) Yeah. So Tim, uh, just tell me your thoughts on women's body positivity, you know, like your experiences with women and body positivity and how you've been a good influence on women. Uh, What is that sound? Is that your notifications? Your phone's just blowing up. Yeah. Sorry, dude. That's just my notifications. I just, you know, I, I like, I'm, I just got to send my dick pics out to all the ladies but i'm on a break i'm on a break for my wife so like it's all cool man it's all cool like you know it ain't no thing like my wife knows i was on a break from her you know if they say anything i'm just gonna tell my wife to beat the shit out of them you know like it's not a big deal yeah yeah 
Yeah, but bo- body positivity is like, uh, oh, shit, yeah. Sorry, my wife's pissed. Uh, yeah, body positivity is super important, man. Like, we can't have all these fatties out here just, like, trying to break up, you know, what we got going with all these, like, you know, really pretty girls, you know. Uh, but I, like, I, I like all of them, you know. Yeah, I don't discriminate. I'm a, I'm a pure blood, you know. Like, I haven't had the vaccine uh, uh, for all sorts of poker, if you're listening, uh, my vaccine card's real. It's real. Okay. It's real. Uh, but yeah, like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pure blood. Like I was saying, I'm here for the ladies, like shout out to the ladies that, uh, you know, every lady in poker, I've, I've been in their DMS, you know, I support all of them and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just here for them. So yeah. Shout out to the ladies, body positivity, no fatties. Yeah. Cool, bro. Cool. Yeah. Really appreciate you bringing more women into poker with your great personality and your great attitude and like sliding into all those DMs, trying to be like a super positive, you know, influence on all women. And, uh, yeah, like really appreciate the hard work there, Tim. I want to take this time to thank our sponsor coinflex.us. Uh, just to let you guys know, we are not Bitcoin Latinum. I know that there are only a few poker players that are involved in crypto projects right now. And I'd like to say that although Bitcoin Latinum has been pretty stable at uh, zero for a while, uh, we are not Bitcoin Latinum. And uh, that's our that's our slogan. So uh, just to let you guys know, uh, coinflex.us. Uh, not Bitcoin Latinum. Okay. So uh, whether or not we're going to go to zero, I don't know. I don't know. But right now we're not. Uh, 80% of the market is, but uh, we're not. So cool. Just uh, subscribe to my uh, crypto channel, guys. Okay. So that was pretty good. <laughs> Even better if you watch it on video. It's on her channel, Veronica Brill. So that redeemed her, in my opinion, in this whole situation. More humor, less uh, virtue signaling is always best. She had an issue with Tim Riley on Twitter a while back. That's why I think she included him there in that little parody. Here's the strange thing about Tim Riley. I got a phone call that I missed on my cell phone from a Timothy Riley. And I go, what? Why is he calling me? I didn't give him my number. Like, I don't have a problem with Tim Riley, but like, why is he calling me and how did he get my number? So I messaged him on Twitter and I said, this is going to sound weird, but did you call me this morning? And he said, no, I don't even have your number. I said, that's so weird. So I gave him the number that it called and I said, is that your number? He said, no. So just by coincidence, one of these spam calls, like one of these auto warranty calls, you know, that crap you probably get all the time. I got one of those with a random number that they show on caller ID, which isn't really the number calling you. And it just happened to be one registered to some Timothy Riley that was not related to this Tim Riley. Very strange coincidence. It seems like this is dying down now. And I guess Doug Polk is going to get past it. I have to imagine this wasn't a net positive for him, even though he did get attention. He got a lot of attention outside of poker that was bashing him. And a lot of people in poker reacted negatively to this. I don't think he got as much positive reaction to this as he had hoped. And usually Doug Polk is on the side that tends to get the positive reaction. He always ends up on top in these situations where 
more people agree with him than disagree with him. But this was one of them where he did not. I'm not saying that he had zero people disagreeing with him. I am saying that more people disagreed than agreed, and some of them were very angry, especially a lot of women in poker, including a lot of women who otherwise are not that associated with poker and you've never heard of before. So I think he probably does regret having tweeted that, and that's why he started walking it back further and further. But I I think he should have just stuck it out. I think he shouldn't have tried to retreat to the whole health thing because people weren't buying it. I do think the health thing was part of it. I think he was just kind of a double-edged sword here where he felt, one, why is this even here? Why are they even doing this? This isn't what guys want to see. And two, it promotes unhealthy body types that people should be seeking to get away from. I will agree that if the choice is between being obese and not being obese, you should seek to not be obese because it is much healthier to not be obese. So it should not be normalized that obese is beautiful. It can be normalized that some people will be obese and you should respect them and value them and that they may bring many things to the table that shouldn't matter as far as how their body looks, that's fine. But it shouldn't be normalized that this is beautiful and things people shouldn't worry about because there is a health issue to this. And second, as I was saying, you've got to be honest about what people prefer and not just go by what you wish they preferred. I mean, I would be happy if everybody thought that 50-year-old guys who were 30 pounds overweight were the most beautiful men out there. But that's not what's believed. That's not what society thinks, and I'm not insulted by it. So not everybody has to be beautiful, and you don't have to get your value from that. It's just one of these things where you don't have to change reality to reach the correct perception to reality. And I think too much of the former is happening and not enough of the latter. You do have to watch out these days on social media what you say. As much as I hate it, I'll admit that's true. Because the problem is there's a lot of ways that you can be taken out of context. There's a lot of ways that people can twist things to mean things differently than what you're claiming. And there's a lot of ways that people can assume you mean things that you don't. So let's even look at what Will Jaffe said to Doug Polk about how he's trying to control the way women look. Now that's what he's not trying to do. Doug Polk never said that all women have to look such and such way. He was just saying that this issue should not have a woman who looks like that on the cover, in his opinion. So that does not mean he's trying to control anything. But unfortunately, that is the conclusion I saw a lot of people come to. Some guys, some girls responded to him saying pretty much exactly that. How dare you, some white guy, come forward and say what women should look like. And unfortunately, that's the place a lot of people go to. So sometimes you do just have to watch what you say, or otherwise people take it in a way you don't mean it. And sometimes no matter how much you try to explain it, then it doesn't matter. It's still going to come over that way. And then if you try to walk it back, then they can see you're being dishonest. So that's why you can't even walk back these things. If you are going to come forward and just say things that you feel, then just stick to them. Because once you start to walk it back, then you look like that nothing you say can really be trusted. You just have to stick to it. Unless there's something that people weren't understanding. 
if there was something that wasn't clear and you say, no, 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 this is what I really meant, that's fine. But clearly he meant both beauty and health in his first tweet. So he should have just stuck to it. So I'm kind of mostly on his side on this one regarding the opinions he expressed. I do think it's good that they're getting away from the anorexic models. And there was a worse anorexia problem in prior decades, like in the 70s and 80s, than there is now. It is a positive message to put out to women that you don't have to be super skinny to be attractive. I think they should also put out the message that there's many men out there, myself included, who find women attractive who aren't skinny. So you don't even have to remain skinny for men to find you attractive if that's important to you. It's not a choice of uh, not care what men think or knock yourself out to be skinny so you're attracted to them. You can also not be skinny and plenty of men will still be attracted to you. So that could be put out there too. But they don't have to redefine what mainstream beauty is. And as Doug said, it's good they got away from showing anorexic models on there. And if that were the only decision, if they said, look, we're not going to show impossibly skinny models anymore because that's not a realistic body type and we don't want it to cause eating disorders and we know it has, so we're going to stop this. So we're going to still show fit women, but not anorexic-looking women. That's going to end. We're not doing that anymore. Nobody has to starve themselves to be able to be on our magazine cover. Okay, I understand that. And the truth is, most men don't want anorexic-looking women. And I've told women that before who've told me that they need to lose so much weight, like like women who are already skinny are like, oh, I've got to lose 20 pounds. I go, no, you don't. <laughs> I go, you'd actually look better if you didn't lose 20 pounds. You'd look far better now than you would if you lost 20 pounds. And I think it's important for women to know that. So if... SI does not want to promote the belief that women have to be impossibly skinny to be attractive. That's fine. I can give him credit for that. But this is too much the other way. And this comes from someone who is not really into skinny women. 775-FRAUD-55-775-372-8355 from the 505 area. Honestly, when hot chicks like Veronica speak out against body shaming, it seems like virtue signaling. As a former athlete turned fat ass, I can tell you more weight isn't better. (laughs) So this guy is saying that uh, he was once an athlete, now he's a fat ass, and he thinks that Veronica, who is thin and fit herself, and always shows off her body on Twitter, that uh, he thinks it's uh, virtue signaling. Let's move on to the Todd Terry story. Todd Terry was a poker pro who was a former lawyer who then had to stop being both. And it's a pretty sad story. And anyone who posted on the 2 plus 2 forums probably knows who he is because he had over 16,000 posts on the 2 plus 2 forums, which is a lot. And he was a very active contributor there. He was well-liked. He was someone who got along with most people. He was someone that you really couldn't miss if you read the 2 plus 2 forms a lot in the 2000s and early 2010s. I didn't really know him personally, 
but I had heard of him. I had read his posts. I thought decently of him. Since we didn't really interact, you know, he wasn't a friend of mine, but he was not anyone I ever thought badly of. He is younger than me. He was born in uh, late 1973. So whenever someone passes away who's younger than me, I find it to be really sad. Because it's too early to die. But at age 48, Todd Terry passed away last week. According to his obituary, which is on cleveland.com, because he was from Ohio originally, he died on May 17th, 2022. Actually, only a few days ago. It wasn't last week. And he had a battle with a disease called frontotemporal dementia, also known as FTD, which is described as a devastating, incurable neurological disease. So apparently this has been almost 10 years that he's known he had it. And he finally fully succumbed to it on May 17th of this year at the age of about 48 and a half. This is something that the cause is unknown, something you can't prevent. Even if you knew it was coming, you couldn't stop it. So you could have told Todd Terry 20 years ago, hey, this is going to happen to you in the early 2010s and kill you in 2022, and there'd be nothing you could have done to stop it. The only cause that is sort of known is that there is a hereditary element to it. So it was seen that people who have this more often have someone who's related to them that had it too than those who uh, don't have it. So so basically, uh, there's some hereditary element probably, but even that is not as strong as you might think. There's a lot of randomness to this. And as far as I know, this didn't occur to anybody else in his family. So this may not even have been something that could have been foreseen at all. So it's very sad when someone's just hit with something like this. It's one thing if lifestyle mistakes cause an early death. You know, if somebody develops a drug addiction, a drinking problem, or they just live very recklessly and they die early, that's still sad. But not as sad as somebody who does live responsibly and gets taken out by something like this, which is just a very bad, incurable neurological disease, which not only kills you early, but you degrade mentally and physically as it takes its toll on you. You may say, pretty unlucky that he got it at this age. Wouldn't someone with dementia usually get it in old age? Well, not this kind of dementia. Frontotemporal dementia most often shows up in people aged 40 to 65. So he was probably around 38, 39 when it was found, which is very close to 40. So he's kind of right in there for the range where it most likely strikes. However, FTD does hit people who are younger and older. So it really can hit at any age, but the common ages to find it are 40 to 65, and he was almost in that. So this is a middle-aged person's disease, and it just hits out of nowhere, and then you start to decline. And it's slow, so you don't die the next day. 
but it eventually gets you. And in his case, he probably found it when he was like 39 years old, and now he's 48 and he's gone. But it took its toll long before that. It uh, affects behavior and personality, as a lot of uh, forms of dementia can. And uh, symptoms include behavior and or dramatic personality changes. Some people will start swearing all of a sudden when they didn't before, stealing. Uh, Sometimes they'll become sex addicts. I'm not saying these things happen to him. I'm just saying what's happened to others that have been seen with this. Uh, Deterioration in personal hygiene habits. Uh, Socially inappropriate, impulsive, or repetitive behaviors. Impaired judgment. Apathy. Lack of empathy. Decreased self-awareness. Loss of interest in normal daily activities. Emotional withdrawal from people. Loss of energy and motivation. Inability to use or understand language. So people can eventually learn how stop learning how to talk and they, they won't be able to communicate anymore. Uh, hesitation when speaking. Less frequent speech. Distractibility. Trouble planning and organizing. Mood changes. Agitation and increasing dependence. Also can have physical symptoms such as tremors, muscle spasms, weakness, rigidity, poor coordination and balance, difficulty swallowing. Also, hallucinations and delusions may occur, but these are less common. Usually what you're going to see are behavioral language changes and uh, less commonly physical symptoms, but those will come as well sometimes. There is not a single test that can donate it can diagnose FTD. You can't just like get a blood test. Yep, you have it. But usually by examining the symptoms, they can tell. They can also do uh, CT scans or MRIs of the brain and see some signs of it. There are no treatments. You cannot cure it. You cannot slow the progression. Sometimes they can mask some of the symptoms such as controlling OCD or anxiety that's brought on by FTD by existing medication for those. And if there's insomnia, they can give sleeping aids. And antipsychotic medication can reduce the irrational type behaviors. But these are just band-aids. They don't actually prevent the progression of the disease. And eventually the person is going to die from this as well, which is what happened to him. If you look at Todd Terry's poker and 2 plus 2 posting history, it tells somewhat of this story. He did not act irrational in any uh, public setting, whether online or live, to my knowledge. His last post was on 2 plus 2 in November 2013. And this is posting very actively all the way through there. He just abruptly stopped after that. My guess is that It was in November 2013 that the FTD either caused him to lose interest in 2 plus 2 or he realized that he was not of sound enough mind to continue posting there without coming off like something was wrong. And he chose to stop. To my knowledge, he didn't make any weird or inappropriate posts there. So it seems like he was at least uh, either aware enough to quit posting or just lost interest in posting at all. He continued playing poker all the way through early 2015 because I see a cache he had 
as of January 2015. However, after that, he didn't play again. Or if he did, he didn't cash. I have to imagine his poker career ended around that time. But what is notable is he played at least 14 months after he stopped posting on 2 Plus 2. I am surprised that whatever it was that made him feel he could not post on 2 Plus 2 anymore, that he felt he was able to still play poker, and did, and actually was able to cash in something as late as 2015, in January. But after that, he must have also been able, unable to do that, because this was someone who was playing poker for a living, and poker was a big part of his life, so to just walk away from all that over seven years ago, obviously that was a decision that happened because he was unable to continue doing so. He did not win any World Series of Poker bracelets. He did rack up $2.3 million of caches between 2005 and that last one in early 2015. He did make some final tables at the World Series of Poker and at the World Poker Tour. He was well-liked by the poker community, and his game was well-respected, especially by those who knew him on 2 Plus 2. Many people who knew him, especially former 2 Plus 2 posters, posted tributes to him when news of his death came out this week. I don't know if he made anyone aware of his condition. I definitely wasn't aware of it, but I wasn't close to him. I didn't see anyone, even people that were friends with him, I didn't see anyone posting that they knew about this before. I didn't see anyone say that they were shocked to learn. Like, I didn't see someone saying, wow, we're, we were close, I didn't know this was happening. I have to imagine any close friend of his would know because you, of the changes he was going through. But it seems like his friendly acquaintances in poker, people who liked him but weren't close to him, nobody had any idea. So he probably was not public about this. Now, something about Todd Terry you may not know is that he was one of the players who sued Full Tilt in 2011 for that whole debacle on Black Friday. Because remember, when Full Tilt shut down to U.S. players after April 15, 2011, when they got busted by the U.S. government it turned out that they had stolen our money on deposit and could not pay anybody. So Todd Terry, who was a former attorney who walked away from his law practice to play professional poker, uh, I don't believe he was the attorney leading this lawsuit. I think there was a separate attorney bringing this, but uh, Todd Terry and a few other people attempted to file a RICO suit against Full Tilt in 2011, and then it was made available on Scribdy, on the Scribdy site, so you could read the whole s complaint. And then someone even showed up on 2 Plus 2 with like a burner account and posted it. Probably one of them just didn't want to directly link it to themselves. And everyone was able to see it. This lawsuit was brought by Todd Terry, Nick Hammer, Steve Seagal, not Steven Seagal, the actor, by the way, and Robin Hoogdahl. And they were the plaintiffs against Full Tilt. Now, you may ask, who are Nick Hammer, Steve Seagal, and Robin Hoogdahl? I have no idea. Never heard of them. Todd Terry is the only one of the four I'd heard of, but they were the plaintiffs in this suit. And uh, there were a number of defendants that were linked to Full Tilt in some way. Tiltware, Vantage, Philco, Pocket Kings, and various others. And then uh, also Ray Batar, Nelson Burtnick. And uh, Howard Lederer, Phil Ivey, Chris Ferguson. Uh, the only notable full-tilt owner 
who was not listed there was Tom Dwan because he was added to the roster very late. So what happened with that Rico suit? Well, that Rico suit was dismissed and it did not uh, end up successful, of course. So that suit was dismissed in early 2012. But Todd Terry was not to be deterred and they filed a second suit. Now, before we get to that, I will tell you about the first suit and the reason it failed. Because it's of interest. There's a kind of a little interesting side note to this. So the judge in that case said, it remains unclear whether the direct cause of the plaintiff's injuries was the decision by the U.S. Attorney's Office to temporarily shut down and seize full tilt assets or was the subsequent decision by one or more of the defendants. Now, I don't like that decision because it was not unclear. The judge is trying to say, hey, you know, maybe it was Black Friday that caused full tilt to be broke. No, (laughs) it's not. It was not unclear. It was pretty clear that full tilt had spent all the money on deposit. It's very simple. You have money on deposit. That's player money. And it either stays or you steal it. There's no such thing as the player money is gone and it's the government's fault for shutting us down. No, the player money should always be there no matter what the government does. Unless the government seizes it, which they didn't. So I don't agree with that ruling, which was now 11 years ago. But anyway, they did file an updated lawsuit. They filed a class action suit then in 2012. This class action suit had the same plaintiffs, except that I think they added on one other plaintiff who I don't really know. Just like I didn't know any of them except for Todd Terry. But they filed a similar suit, this class action. And they had this suit against uh, Howard Lederer and Chris Ferguson instead of all of Full Tilt. And they accused those two of conversion, meaning unauthorized control of, of another's possessions, and unlawful dominion and control over player funds. So basically, they were suing Howard and Chris for stealing other people's money. So it was a similar suit, but not the same and not the same defendants. These two were also defendants in the first one that got dismissed, but there were a ton of other defendants. And the first one was a RICO suit, a racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization suit. This one was not. This was just a class action suit against Letterer and Ferguson. Now, if you saw news of this in the recent news about Terry passing away, because some of these outlets that covered it did mention that Todd Terry sued Full Tilt and then sued uh, the former Full Tilt owners, uh, Letterer and Ferguson. So that was mentioned. But what these other outlets don't mention is what happened with that lawsuit. And you'll probably read things that it was settled for an undisclosed amount. Well, that's not true. The amount was not undisclosed. I know it. I've known it for six years. And I'm going to tell you. I don't know if we covered it here six years ago, but I'm going to tell you right now. Because it was settled. And I know exactly what it was settled for. It was settled quietly. They tried to keep it under the radar. But this isn't one of these things where 
you never know what it was settled for. So first of all, to my knowledge, this is the only lawsuit that was settled involving full tilt where the plaintiffs got anything. I don't believe there's any other full tilt related lawsuit where anyone got paid something except for this one. So I will give them credit there. So what did they get? What if I told you that each of the plaintiffs got one million dollars? Would you be impressed? What if I told you they didn't get that, but they got one hundred billion dollars? I bet you'd be really impressed. But no, they did not get a hundred billion. They didn't get a million either. So what do you think they got? They did get something. Each plaintiff got five hundred dollars. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Five hundred dollars. Why would they settle for five hundred dollars? This is in January two thousand sixteen. The settlement was agreed to by both sides in late December two thousand fifteen, and then approved by the presiding judge on January sixth, twenty sixteen. The case, which was known as Segal, that is uh, Steve Segal, et al. versus Letterer et al., it was dismissed with prejudice, meaning that they could not refile a similar suit. So why would they ever settle for $500? Well, because there is an, addition, an additional 260000 which was paid to the attorneys of the plaintiffs. So basically, the plaintiff's attorneys racked up 260000 worth of fees in the time that this lawsuit was going on, which was coming up on four years. And Letterer and Ferguson offered, okay, look, how about I pay your attorneys so you're not going to owe them any money? They'll be made whole. And I'll pay each of you a token sum to show you won this, that we didn't dismiss it with nothing, but $500, so it's really not any real money. And they said, okay, we'll do it. Now, why would they have agreed to that? Well, a little thing happened in 2015 that changed what the injury was to these parties. And that was the full tilt remissions process. Remember? Because poker stars bought Full Tilt from the U.S. government. And that money that was paid, which is $750 million, was then used to pay back the players from the U.S. who got screwed by the closure. So, most people got their money back who were from the U.S. The only people who didn't were the ones who didn't ask for it or a few red pros that weren't eligible. Everybody else got their money back, including all the plaintiffs. And what was their injury at that point? They got the money. They didn't get paid interest, but I mean, that's not a whole lot of money. And I guess they could claim that the lack of use of that money during that time could have hurt them, but they would have to show that without that money, they couldn't go on with their poker career as they otherwise did. Like they, They'd have to show that really made an impact on their bankroll. And I'm guessing they probably couldn't show that. Or even if they could, it becomes a tougher process to prove injury, to prove that they would have won going forward. 
So anyway, without actual damages anymore, given that the government paid them back through the remissions process, that really weakened their case. So then Letterer and Ferguson, who really didn't have anything to do with the remissions, Letterer and Ferguson and the rest of them signed over full tilt to the government shortly after Black Friday. That was their agreement, so the government didn't prosecute them. The government said, we want full tilt, surrender it to us, it becomes our property, and then we won't prosecute you. And they're like, okay, here it is. (laughs) So they handed it over. And then the government then sold full tilt to poker stars. I mean, this didn't happen right away, but that was the way this all happened. So the government basically seized full tilt and got the owners to officially sign it over. And then poker stars bought it as a combination of a fine and actually buying it. And that got them out of hot water. And then the government had $750 million to pay the players back and then keep the rest. So that was basically the story. So then this lawsuit was kind of left in bad shape. And then they had to figure out what to do with it. So the plaintiffs were like, hey, look, we racked up a lot of attorney's fees here. And just because the government paid people back, this has nothing to do with you guys. So we're still not dropping this. But at the same time, they knew they were in much worse shape than before. So pretty much the whole decision was made on both sides to end this. And Letterer and Ferguson cough up the attorney's fees of uh, low six figures and each plaintiff gets $500 to signify they won. For whatever reason, this was not reported very much in poker media. The only reason I know about it is because it was written on flushdraw.net by Haley Hintz. And that's why today, when there's these Todd Terry stories out there, they're like, well, it was settled for an undisclosed amount. No, it wasn't. See, this is why you should listen to Poker Fraud Alert, because I find the truth. I don't blame them for settling at that point for that, by the way. I see what happened to their case. It's just kind of unfortunate timing. I mean, it's good everybody got paid back, but for their case, it was unfortunate timing that they didn't get to conclude this before everybody got paid back. Because if they had proceeded with this, they may have been able to either beat Letterer and Ferguson in court or get a nice settlement out of them. And once this happened, it was kind of too late for that. Now, what did Todd Terry have to say once the settlement was made? I guess it's possible there was some kind of confidentiality cooked into that settlement that I don't know about. But whether or not there was, I have a feeling I know why he didn't say anything. And that is probably because he couldn't. This was in January 2016. Remember, the last time he had even played poker was a year before that. And the last time he'd posted on 2 Plus 2 was more than two years before that. I have to imagine by January 2016, which was already now probably about four years into his disease, he probably had degenerated enough into not being all that uh, there anymore. I have a feeling he wasn't in a position to really comment on anything. Because really the last we saw of him in the poker world was over seven years ago. So it's very sad for his family that they just had to watch him deteriorate like this for all these years and then die at 48. It's a very sad story. He was married. His wife's name 
was Andrea, according to this obituary. He did not have any children. His parents apparently are still alive. And he has a sister who's still alive, as you would guess. And he, apparently he has, uh, quote, numerous aunts and uncles that are still living. So it's pretty sad they all lived, outlived him. He grew up in Salon, Ohio, S-O-L-O-N. He graduated with top honors from Salon High School. And he went to uh, Harvard and then NYU Law School. And he was a defense attorney in Manhattan, was involved in several high-profile news trials. I don't know which ones. But he was uh, very public that he was just outright quitting law to play poker. He just decided he had more of a passion for poker and that even though he was successful in law, he just didn't want to do it anymore. Some people admired that he was willing to dedicate himself that much and walk away from a successful career. It's one thing to go from a college degenerate who doesn't have a career going yet into poker, but when you're already a Manhattan defense attorney who's been involved in many high-profile cases, you may say, well, that's pretty much a way to print money at that point. Why would you even bother to quit that and go into poker? I mean, if you want to play poker on the side, great, but no, he wanted to be a poker pro, and he was. And then this got in the way. So that is sad. I admire that he tried to sue first Full Tilt and its associated little subsidiaries and that he also sued the principals involved with it. And then when that failed, he went after Lederer and Ferguson. And even though he didn't get a lot of money out of them, that wasn't really his fault. But I admire them for trying here. And it's very possible that they would have gotten something much better had the remissions not happened, which was not a sure thing at all, if you remember from back then. So anyone who tried to hold the owners accountable for what they did there, I hold in high regard. So for that alone, I respect him. But it's really too bad how some people just get these unfortunate genetics that kill them at a young age, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. Strangely enough, two people who went to my temple who were near my age, one who's actually born the same year as me and was in my grade, went to high school with me, another who was a year older than me, and I didn't know quite as well, but I also knew him, uh, they both died of brain cancer. So they're both gone. And again, nothing they could have done to stop it, nothing they did to cause it. Pretty unusual to know two people who died of brain cancer at that age. But I do. They're both from my temple. They weren't related. They're both guys. But I felt really bad for both of them. The one I knew better, the one who was in my grade, was a really smart guy, too. And what was interesting is this temple was a conservative temple. There's uh, three grades of Judaism. These temples are either Reform, Conservative, or Orthodox. And as you might guess, Reform is the one that will stray the most from traditional Judaism and Orthodox sticks to it to the letter and conservatives in the middle. So this is a conservative temple. And this guy was gay, it turned out, which I, when I knew him, I didn't know he was gay. And that's because I, I only knew him through high school. And in the 80s, nobody was out in high school. And he didn't really come off as gay. So 
I didn't suspect that at all. There were some people in high school I suspected were gay, but he wasn't one of them. But anyway, he was he was gay, and he ended up uh, marrying a man, even before it was actually legal to do. And he adopted kids with a man, and I, I don't know if they adopted him or if they did uh, artificial insemination to uh, surrogate, but whatever. They think they had a, they had a few kids, and. Uh, the temple actually uh, recognized all this. They recognized the marriage. They recognized uh, all that. And uh, I, I was surprised. And this was before gay marriage was all that accepted in the country. So I was surprised the conservative temple actually did this. And they, I guess they were a little ahead of their time that way. But he was a nice guy. I mean, we were never friends, but uh, he was always nice when I interacted with him. And really, really smart. And he ended up getting a, a doctorate. And uh, yeah, at just age 48, he was dead of brain cancer. So I feel very bad for people who are dealt that lot in life. And sometimes everything seems normal. And just one day, something starts going a little bit wrong with your health. And you're like, what the hell is this? And then you find out it's that. And you just go, oh, shit. <laughs> Imagine just getting that type of news when you're at that age. It's one thing to be 80 and find out that you've got something like this, but when you're late 30s to find out that you've got this incurable dementia that's going to change you and can kill you within a decade, it's pretty bad. So rest in peace, Todd Terry, one of the good guys in poker. And even though I didn't know you well, I respected what you did. We're going to give you an update here about the Dan Bekovac situation. Dan Bekovac, if you remember, was the Midway Poker Tour scammer. The Midway Poker Tour was a disastrous uh, poker tour that uh, had a big problem in Chicago where they held an event and then first they announced that everyone's going to be paid in silver instead of money. Then they paid them in silver and valued the silver more than it was really worth. And then they just outright shorted a lot of people too, including someone who was a member of Poker Fraud Alert who came and reported it here. Dan Bekovac did not deny this. He would tell his own version of the story, which didn't seem very true. And he kept claiming he was going to make it right. He wasn't meeting what he was promising and it became pretty clear that he was full of shit the whole way. It's not totally clear what happened and how this happened, but it wasn't just a matter of circumstances beyond his control. Chad Holloway was in kind of a weird position with this whole thing. Now, remember, he's a poker news reporter. He's very well respected. He's a very good poker reporter. Poker news is also a for-profit business that makes its money by promoting entities in poker. It promotes a lot of online poker sites. They promote a lot of poker tours. A lot of their articles, in fact, are advertorials. In fact, Poker Fraud Alert once got an advertorial, even though I didn't pay for it. I'll quickly do a little uh, side story on this. I've told it before, but if you remember Robbie Davies, who uh, has also since passed away at a young age, Robbie Davies, who was in charge of Poker News at the time, uh, at first he didn't like me when he was 
assigned to deal with Neverwin Poker back when they owned uh, were owned by Poker News back in 2008. But he later came to like me and actually listened to this show. And eventually, he offered to do a free advertorial for Poker Fraud Alert on Poker News. And uh, so they did an interview with me and they wrote up a story about Poker Fraud Alert. And it was uh, like, it was almost like a promotional piece on Poker Fraud Alert. I mean, it's really what it was, but I didn't pay for it. He just did this uh, as a favor to me, which I appreciated. I didn't ask him for it, but uh, he offered this and I took it. But they do plenty of these things, except uh, unlike in my case, they get paid for it. So when you read things on Poker News, sometimes these are paid promotional pieces. Now, they do real news as well, and I, I respect a lot of what they report on. And usually Chad Holloway doesn't do advertorials, but occasionally he does. And he was sent to report on the Midway Poker Tour. And he was only reporting on it because uh, Poker News was paid to be there. Well, what was Chad Holloway going to do at that point when it started to look like a scam? So here he was paid by the Midway Poker Tour to be there and report positively on it, yet he sees a scam unfolding in front of his eyes. Well, a less ethical man would have either just not reported on any of it or helped the Midway Poker Tour, which paid his bills, cover it up. But no, Chad Holloway was ethical, and he took the lead in reporting this entire situation. And he was pretty aggressive about it, too. So the one who reported the most by far on the Midway Poker Tour scandal was Chad Holloway, who was originally paid to report positively on them. And he didn't do this because of any kind of personal gripe. He did this out of ethical responsibility to the community. So I respected him tremendously for this. And I already respected him prior to that. I'm just saying I really respected him for that. He really drew the ire of Dan Bekovac, who was the one responsible for this whole thing. In fact, he was in some events with Dan Bekovac. Just coincidentally, Dan Bekovac was playing some events that Chad was. And they actually got in some verbal arguments and Dan Bekovac told him to fuck off. And there were some pretty testy uh, exchanges between the two. So Dan Bekovac was very, very bitter about the, how aggressively Chad Holloway was reporting about all of his antics. There have been other times where, you know, since this all happened, this happened in uh, October of 2020, but there have been times since then that Dan Bekovac has won money playing poker and people thought, oh, okay, maybe he'll make it right now. And then he didn't. For quite some time, about 70% of the prize money was unpaid and Dan just was not making it right. And people were getting pissed because Dan was showing up to a lot of poker events in the Midwest and just wasn't paying anybody. And he kept stalling and stalling and say, okay, I'll pay people soon. He wasn't paying people. When he won things, he wasn't paying people. In November of 2021, Bekovac said to Poker News in an email, things are getting much better for me financially within the next 40 to 45 to 60 days max. I should be in a position to pay out the eight guys that didn't get paid for the Midway Tour. By the way, the, these were the eight top finishers. So it's not like he paid all but the eight min caches. Like he, he paid the easiest ones to pay first so he could check off those boxes. But the ones who were owed the most money were the most screwed and also were the last to get paid. 
So they were still unpaid for 70% of what they had won. So nothing happened. These 45 to 60 days passed. He said 45 to 60 days max. Well, not true. 60 days passed and no one got anything. Now we go all the way to March of 2022. At that point, Dan Bekovac won the MSPT Riverside, which is the Mid-States, Mid-States Poker Tour Riverside event for 193k. Well, finally, Bekovac decided that he's going to start paying people. So he started paying some people, but he still didn't pay everybody. However, then he won another event, the MSPT Firekeepers event for 252K. He also set a record for having four MSPT titles. Apparently, nobody has more MSPT titles than Dan Bekovac. Isn't that nice? So last week we talked about Maurice Hawkins, the all-time World Series of Poker ring champion, the guy who's won the most rings of anybody in the world, who ripped off this guy uh, Garcia, Rich Garcia, who is uh, calling him out and who Hawkins even admits he owes money to and Hawkins admits he's broke. You have that. And then we have Dan Vekovac, who scammed all these people with the Midway Poker Tour who then is the all-time title holder for the Mid-States Poker Tour, which he does know. So at that point, with these two large wins, 193K and 252K, which uh, adds up to about $450,000, and within about two months, he won these two, he finally had enough money to pay people back. So then... Bekovac made everybody whole. So now everybody has their money back. Now, he didn't pay them interest or anything extra. But at this point, he wanted to talk to Chad Holloway. You know, the guy he told to fuck off and is really rude to and is really nasty to. Well, at this point, he wants the conversation with Holloway because then he can brag about what a great guy he is. And he was one of the few scammers who made people whole. In a podcast interview with Poker News, Bekovac said... I reached out to you in November before I even won anything, and I asked for the list to get things going because, you know, it's one of those things I want to take care of, even though, you know, it wasn't necessarily my responsibility. What? It wasn't his responsibility to pay people from his poker tour? (laughs) But, you know, the burden was put on me. Yeah, somebody put the burden on him. You got to feel real sorry for the guy who ran the poker tour and who lied to everybody who played the event and who lied about the value of the silver that they didn't think they were playing for in the first place, and that shorted people 70% and promised over and over that he was going to pay them. Like, whose responsibility is it if it's not his? What is he talking about? It's not his responsibility. So then he said, it's just one of those things. I don't like to owe people money, and I don't like the feeling of people thinking I owe anybody money. So it was always in my head that these people need to get paid. Obviously, I started a business that was doing very well. That's why I reached out to you and said, let's get these guys taken care of. He said what happened was that they uh, were unable to pay people because of their charity partner, because this is a charity tournament. That's what makes it uh, legal by Illinois law. He's blaming them. He said they didn't tell me how high the markup was at the time. It was going to be a small markup. 
in my opinion, small markup, five or ten grand, you know, not 30%, not 75,000 markup for silver. That's just insane. And I told them, I said, if you guys do this because I believe it's the charity running the tournament, not us, we're promoting it. And I, I told them, if you do that, I will not be here tomorrow because it's going to be an absolute fucking chaos when these people realize that 30% of their prize pool went to some guy in Wisconsin who supplied them with silver coins. It's not going to end well for anybody. See, he's telling only part of the story here. This is at the point when he was panicking and was trying to find a way to pay people because his story was that uh, he wasn't allowed to pay people more than a certain amount in cash due to Illinois law so that they had to pay the rest in silver. And then at the last minute, they tried to see who they could get to sell the silver. It was only someone who wanted to sell it at markup, so they they just uh, accepted that, and that's why the amount paid was a a 30% uh, markdown for them of what they were getting compared to what it was really worth. Uh, the, The problem here is that it didn't just stop there. It wasn't like everybody got paid in silver the amount that uh, they bought it for, and everybody had to just take a haircut on the profit that the silver seller took. That He just didn't pay everybody for the full amount of what was owed. He also claimed that uh, he offered an alternative involving certificates that would have gotten people paid in full the following day. Well, I don't know if that's true, but even if that was true, I can see why, with all that shadiness going on, you take what you can get at the moment. You don't hope he pays you tomorrow now they did pay a few people in the following weeks but uh it did seem like the people they paid were number one the smallest cashers and number two were ones that they knew personally for example one of the smaller cashers not the smallest but one of the smaller cashers was the guy who brought it to poker fraud alert who is friends with uh brandon drexel gerson and you know we, we know him well he's been around for a long time and he was not friends with Dan Bekovac. He didn't really know Dan Bekovac, but he was one of the smaller cashers, and he didn't get paid for, until fairly recently. He got paid sometime after the uh, March 2021 win. So what happened was uh, Dan paid some of the smaller winners out of that uh, March not 21 March 2022 win. So the win from two months ago. Dan paid back some of the smaller winners, and then when he got the second big score in May, then he paid the remainder of people. Now, why did he do it? You may say, well, he could have just not paid anybody. I mean, he's, got, he's gone all this time. He's gone a year and a half without paying anybody, and he's been playing all these events. And nobody's kicked his ass, and nobody's done anything to him. No one's even uh, attempted to seize the money legally. No one's attempted to sue him. N- nothing. Like, so why didn't he just continue the way it was? Well, I I think that he wanted to get this monkey off his back. I think he didn't want this dogging him, whatever he did. Because he enjoys these tournaments. He obviously enjoys poker. He's obviously pretty good at poker. The guy has won four Mid-States Poker Tours, which is not the World Series of Poker, but it's not simple to win four Mid-States Poker Tours. Because these are... Decent level buy-ins. These are eleven hundred, uh, another eleven hundred, another eleven hundred. It looks like these are all eleven hundred. The ones he's won. So it's not huge money, but it's not like it's all donkeys entering for seventy bucks. So these are probably a lot of decent players that enter these who live in that area, and he's won four of them, including two in a two-month period: one on uh, March seventeenth, one on May twelfth. So he's probably somebody who 
wants to keep playing. He's probably going to go to the World Series. He probably wants to become a uh, successful and known player and respected player. And he doesn't want the story to constantly be, hey, here's that scammer who ripped off everybody at the mid states po- at the uh, Midway Poker Tour and uh, hasn't paid anybody. Look, look at all this money he's winning. He's paying nobody. What an asshole. So now he can change the narrative. Now he can say, look, this wasn't my fault. The charity screwed me. They made me pay in silver. They marked up the silver. And uh, I reached into my own pocket when I finally could and paid everybody. I'm a great guy. Now, that's not really what happened. It really was largely his fault. He did a lot of shady things. He made a lot of promises he didn't keep. He was a dick to a lot of people about it. There's a lot of stuff he did very wrong here. I can confidently call him a scammer in this whole thing, even though he's a scammer who eventually made it right. Though he didn't pay interest, as I said. But uh, aside from that, at least he finally made it right, which most poker scammers don't. So I'll give him credit for that. But he should at least acknowledge, now that it's all over, that he had some wrongdoing, not blame this on others. He can say what led to it. I don't think this was a premeditated scam. I don't think he went into this thinking, ha, 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 I'm going to scam everybody and rip them off and disappear. I don't think that was his intention. I think this is more of an unintentional scam, that he messed something up here, and then when it all went wrong then he just ran away from it. And it just so happens that he's been successful in poker in the last few months and has been able to make this right. I will say that there are many who have been in his shoes that hit big scores and then just don't pay people they owe. They just would rather keep the money themselves and continue to degen it off. So I will give him credit for at least taking this money. It's not like he won millions. That's the other thing. He, it's not like he, he won the main event of the World Series and he has 10 million bucks. He's like, okay, I'll pay you guys the, the 100K I owe now. Like, it's not like he did that. He, uh, he did take a decent percentage of what he won here to pay people. So, okay. I will give him credit there for at least doing the right thing ultimately. But it would be nice if he just admitted that he screwed up and didn't blame everybody else. But the way he makes it sound in this interview that he had with Poker News is it was everybody else's fault. Everybody blamed me. Oh, well, I guess it has to come out of my pocket. That's just the way life works. I'm the victim here. When the whole thing's said and done, everybody's made whole except me. I'm out money. I got screwed. Poor me. But, oh, well, that's the way life goes. (laughs) You can't take that attitude. In fact, people will think much better of him if they just think he's reformed. If he says, I didn't mean for this to happen, I was trying to run a real and successful poker tour. This was not a premeditated thing I did. It was just mismanaged. I'm sorry, I messed up, and I kind of panicked and ran away from it for a while because I couldn't pay anybody. And now I can, and I paid everybody, and now I hope everybody is okay and I hope we can move past this and I'll never get myself in this situation again. And there were other allegations about him prior to this, by the way. So this is not someone who even had a pristine reputation prior to this whole debacle. So I have mixed feelings about this. I'm happy he paid people and most scammers don't. But he was a scammer in this situation. He did not attempt to make things whole. He did not attempt to 
pay people at all until he really had a lot of money to start doing it. It's not like he started making small payments over the years and he's finally done now. It's kind of, I happened to hit this, so here's the money. And it's not like he's been truthful. There's been a lot of lies, a lot of contradictions, but I guess a happy ending. So in a way, good for him, but in a way, I'd like to see some more responsibility taken. And he could take the responsibility without legal liability because he's made people whole. He's paid them. So if they were attempt to sue him, they couldn't really claim any injury here because they got paid ultimately. So this would be thrown out of court if they tried to sue him. So he might as well just be honest at this point. Especially because I don't think it was a premeditated scam. In some of these situations, it really is a premeditated scam. At least to the point where they will do this fully knowing they're never going to be able to pay anyone. They'll hold events fully knowing that uh, nobody can get paid. We've seen some of those. This one, I think, was just a complete mess and just super mismanaged. And then he just ran away from it. But it was not all the charity's fault. And he was the one in charge. So it was ultimately landing on him. Can't blame the charity here. So I just want to give you that update. All right, did you hear enough about death with the Todd Terry story? Would you like another story about death? I know you do, so we're going to do one. Another dead poker player story on this very lighthearted show tonight. I considered spreading these out, but I, you know, let's just rip the Band-Aid off and do the second death story out of two. So Bob Chafoni, CIA. F-F-O-N-E, Bob Schifone. I hope I'm saying his name right, because I've never heard it pronounced, I've only read it. But I've read it a lot over the years. He was a poker author, a columnist on Card Player, and an old-school poker figure. He passed away at the age of 81. This is a different type of death than Todd Terry, who died at a young age. 81 is actually above average for the lifespan of a man in the U.S., which is still in the 70s. So he made it past that, and 81 is a decent lifespan, especially for a dude. But still, when you hear about a name in poker that you've heard for a long time that's passed away, you you think, oh, that's kind of sad. This person's gone. I never met Bob Schifone. In fact, I believe he was mostly out of active poker play not too long after I entered poker. So I entered poker in 2001, January 2001. I'm going to tell you more about that when we get to the Druffy Time Theater segment we do. But this segment is about him, not me. So I first became aware of him by reading Card Player Magazine. What I used to do when I would go play poker live, as I would go sit down and I would look for Card Player Magazine, which was free. You just go find it in the Card Player bin and pull out a free magazine and you'd sit and read it. And when you're waiting for hands to complete that you're not part of, then you page through the magazine and read the columns of which uh, were usually written by most of the same people every week. In fact, even Phil Helmuth had a column. Daniel Negreanu had a column. And 
Bob Schifone was someone who's not as well known as Negreanu or Helmuth, but he had a column too. He wrote a column at the time on Limit Hold'em. So that's why that was interesting to me. Now, in the early 2000s, Limit Hold'em was the dominant poker game. That quickly changed in 2003 when No Limit Hold'em got on TV and everybody wanted to play that. But when I first started playing poker, Limit Hold'em was the dominant variant. It had taken over for Stud, which was the previous dominant variant. So I was interested in reading his column, especially because he wrote about middle stakes Limit Hold'em, which is exactly what I was playing. Things like uh, 2040, 3060, 4080. In 2001, Bob Schifone was like 60. So he already was an older guy then. And I'm not sure how much poker he was actually playing at the time. I don't believe I ever played with him. So while I, I didn't really keep track of what poker he actually played during the era I was playing, I just know I didn't run into him in the Limit Hold'em games I played. And that surprised me because... I would have expected I would have, given that we were both Limit Hold'em players, and I, I played a lot of middle stakes. If you look at his Hendon Mob results, he did play all the way through 2019, probably stopped when uh, COVID came, but he did seem to be playing the World Series of Poker. But it doesn't seem like he was playing super regularly. In fact, it looked like he had a spell for almost a decade where he did not play at all because he had a cash in a seniors event in April 2006 and then his next cash was almost 10 years later in November 2015 at a Heartland Poker Tour event but then he did cash in some events in 2016, 18, and 19 at the World Series in 16 he cashed in $1,000 PLO and $1,000 uh, seniors championship then in uh 2018, he cashed in the seniors event again, and in 2019, the super seniors. So he may have just stuck to the seniors events in the final years he was playing. As far as cash, as I said, I don't remember seeing him. But he mainly wrote about Limit Hold'em in in Card Player, and I did read his articles uh, for that reason, and I, I would go to his article every week that I would read the magazine because I'd be interested in seeing what he wrote about. And he really specialized in writing about middle stakes limit hold'em. He was best known for writing the book Robert's Rules of Poker. And he also wrote books on Omaha and uh, Pot Limit Poker, which nobody really plays anymore. And uh, he was one of the earlier authors on No Limit Hold'em. He wrote a book called Pot Limit and No Limit Poker, which at the time uh, people didn't know how to play very well. And uh, he wrote this along with uh, another guy named uh, Stuart Rubin, who I'm not familiar with. And uh, this wasn't just on Hold'em, though. This was Pot Limit and No Limit Hold'em, Omaha, Lowball, Stud, uh, stud eight or better, and London lowball, whatever that is. He did not win any bracelets. He did almost win a World Series of bracelet on a few occasions, and uh, 
maybe his best moment tournament-wise was finishing third in the 1987 World Series of Poker main event that was won by Johnny Chan. Of course, that was a much smaller field back then, so it's not like finishing third today where you'll get something like $4 million. Back then, it was uh, much less significant. In fact, his entire tournament earnings was like 347000 Bob Schifone was also a very good chess player, also an excellent uh, backgammon player and bridge player. He was the former president president of the Michigan Chess Association, and he was given the title of uh, Life Chess Master by the U.S. Chess Federation. He also got an honor from the American Contract Bridge League. So there's just a guy who was good at these strategy games and goes back many years and Unfortunately, his younger years were when poker were not was not as lucrative as it became after the boom. So when he was playing all this stuff more actively and probably had more energy, he just didn't have the type of opportunities to make the big money that came later. There was an article on Cards Chat written by Chris Wallace, and Wallace called him the world's first poker coach said that he had no idea that poker coaching was a thing until he heard about Bob and that he called Bob and that Bob was friendly, charming, and helpful. He said, when I told him my goal was to play poker for a living, he assured me it could be done and he thought I could do it. He said, I only took two lessons from Bob, but I talked to him on the phone a few other times over the years. So he claims that uh, this is before anyone was doing poker coaching. And Chris Wallace got this coaching from Bob after uh, reading the book called Middle Limit Hold'em Poker, which was about the middle stakes Hold'em games, which were the inspiration for his columns and card player as well. In fact, I, I'm i not sure if these columns he wrote in card player were taken directly from the book or if they were taken partially from the book. I know they always talked about this Middle Limit Hold'em Poker book in card player and that he wrote it. But I was, it was never clear to me if he was just taking pages out of the book for the column or, or if uh, he was updating them or if he was just writing things similar, whatever. But I, I enjoyed the columns. It uh, was always interesting to read about these uh, Limit Hold'em hands and what he would say to do and what I would do. And I was still learning at that time. I don't mean like learning how to play, but I was trying to learn how to get better because the first two years I played Limit Hold'em, I was pretty much breaking even. And it was only in 2003, my third year, that I started to win. When I was reading his columns, as I got to be better myself, I did start to notice that he had more of a uh, 1990s play style. And I remember discussing this with one of my friends who learned limit hold him around the same time I did. And I said, you know, if you read Bob Schifone's columns, I, I think that he's folding too much here. I think in, in this discussion he's having, I wouldn't fold here. What do you think? And my friend would say, no, I wouldn't either. And we both kind of concluded that he was playing a style of poker that in the 1990s you would fold, but with a lot more aggressive players in the 2000s that were bluffing a lot more and semi-bluffing a lot more that you couldn't fold in a lot of these spots. So I don't know if that also 
had to do with why he wasn't playing as much in his later years. Maybe the game changed too much, and he just didn't want to put in the time and effort at his age adjusting to it. Because, like, I would read these columns, and they were well-reasoned. And at first I'm going, well, why is he folding so much? There's a lot of folding in these columns. And I go, I couldn't fold here. And that's why I had to bring it to my friend, who was a good player. And I said, what do you think? Would you fold here? And he's like, no. So I I think that could have been some of the reason that he didn't play as much. I'm just guessing here. Could also just be because he didn't enjoy it as much because it was harder to sit there for these long sessions of poker once he got older. But he wasn't that old then. As I said, he was like early 60s at that point. I'm also not sure why he took some time off the game, at least from tournament poker, for what looks like about a decade. I don't know if there were health problems or he just got got sick of playing or he just got sick of tournament poker, but it was like right into when poker tournaments were most popular in 2006 is when he just vanished, at least from his results, and didn't reappear until uh, twenty, like late 2015. And then it looked like he was playing seniors events, which he could have played the entire time. Uh, this Chris Wallace, who wrote this tribute to him on Cards Chat, said that Middle Limit Hold'em was the first book that relied extensively on hand histories. And yeah, that's what I was talking about, where a lot of the book is describing specific hands and what he did and why he did it. Which were interesting to read as, as columns in Card Player. He also said that Bob admitted that he went broke. He said Bob was so honest that when he went broke, he told people the truth about it. I don't know many poker players who do that, though I do know an awful lot of them who've gone broke over the years. Bob would just say, it's not a big deal. You just get a job and build it back up. That's how he ended up moving to California and getting a job as a floor man at Hollywood Park, though working for someone else didn't agree with him. It wasn't long before he became a prop player at Hollywood Park instead, rebuilding his bankroll and playing as high as 15300 probably limit hold'em, for a brief time, though he mostly stuck to smaller limits. And while he was known for writing about fixed limit hold'em, Bob was also a fierce advocate for the big bet games, also arguing with Mason Malmuth over the value of big bet poker. Which is funny, because Mason will play no limit hold'em now. He prefers Limit Hold'em, but Mason, you will see him most commonly at 2040 Limit Hold'em, but he will sometimes play 2-5 No Limit, or even sometimes uh, 5-10, while waiting to get in the 2040 game. When No Limit Hold'em became the dominant game of the poker room, Bob felt vindicated. People had doubted him for years, but now it was clear he was right, and the Big Bet games were here to stay. Yeah, that's true. As I was saying, he did write that book about pot limit and no limit poker of all forms and at that point people didn't want to really play that and when i was in commerce i remember in 2002 you'd see occasionally a pot limit hold'em would go and occasionally a no limit hold'em would go but for the most part there wasn't much interest in it and it was only after the boom that it became the dominant variant so i guess Bob Schifone kept saying, look, this is something that's going to be popular one day. People should try playing it. And they're like, no, 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 no. This sucks. Let's stick to Limit. Now, I prefer Limit, but that was foresight on his part to see this. Apparently, he was good friends with Dan Harrington, and Dan Harrington would back Bob when he was broke. 
apparently Harrington backed him both in tournaments and in cash games. And Harrington trusted Bob enough to be honest about his cash results because that's the problem with backing someone in cash games. You have no idea where they really win in their sessions. So if they come back and say, I won $1,000 and they really won $2,000 and they give you your piece and they really shorted you, you have no way to know unless you had somebody in the game who's really watching closely what he's winning versus what he buys in. So you really do have to trust someone when you back them in cash games. And Harrington, who's known to be notoriously cheap, actually trusted Bob so much that he backed him in cash games. But Bob did have a very good reputation for being honest. Bob first gambled in the 1950s in pool halls, but he was only a teenager then. He started to play backgammon for money when he discovered backgammon parlors, and he got very good at that. He played chess with some greats like uh, Bobby Fischer. And his book, Robert's Rules of Poker, which I mentioned earlier, had a consistent set of rules for the variants of poker. And he actually was an advisor for the states of New Jersey and Florida about rule sets for legalized poker, about the way these games have to run. Anyway, Bob Schifoni was not a major name in poker that everybody's going to know. But anyone who read Card Player back in the 2000s probably knows who he is. And old school players probably know who he is. And he's one of these guys just kind of in the background of the game in a way. But if you pay attention, he was there. And he contributed a lot more than a lot of people realize especially with his early book about No Limit and Pot Limit Poker. A lot of these games he wrote about, not just No Limit Hold'em, but these other forms of uh, No Limit and Pot Limit games uh, were really not played very much. And now a lot of them are. Look how big PLO has gotten. That's the second biggest variant now. So RIP to Bob Schifoni. Looks like he led a good life. And looks like even at times when he was down, when he chunked off his money and was broke, that he had friends that trusted him that were putting him back in action and led him to put himself back in decent shape. And he even said, hey, I got a job sometimes if I uh, couldn't get anyone to back me, which is a lot more than I could say of a lot of players today who won't do that. They just will either keep searching for backers or scam people to keep in action. They won't just go get an honest job. So he went to go work at Hollywood Park at a regular job until he could build it back up at one point. So you got to respect that too. Anyway, if you want to read the whole tribute to him, you can go to Cards Chat and read this article by Chris Wallace. It's presumably uh, Chris Fox Wallace, as some people know him. And uh, it's one of those names I haven't thought of in a while, but when I heard he died, I go, oh, that's too bad. I knew he was old, but still, not something you want to hear about. I've got to look what time it is here. Okay. I see what time it is. Hello, can I Nigel Fabersham here? This is Druffy Time Theater. Ah, oh, you didn't know another one of these is coming so soon after the last. 
But yes, for whatever reason, even with 12 topics or so this week, Drew thought, oh, let's throw in another topic about me, because I don't talk about myself enough on my own show. Let's talk about myself yet again. Make the show which otherwise would have been six hours into seven. Like anyone really has needs that. Um, here it goes. On with it. Thank you, Colonel Fabersham. This is Druffy Time Theater, which is a segment where I talk about myself. Usually stuff from the past, sometimes in the distant past, sometimes in the recent past. And often these are personal stories that have nothing to do with poker or gambling. And I decided this week enough is enough. This week, I am going to stick to the theme of the show, and I will do a segment about myself, which does have to do with poker and does have to do with gambling. It has to do with both. Because there's only so many times I can talk about stories from 30 years ago with girls I dated or almost dated or wanted to date or customer service battles I've had with large corporations. There's only so many times I can tell those stories. So isn't it time that I told you a bit about my poker and gambling history? So that's what this episode is going to be about. And it may not be as entertaining or offbeat as some of these other stories, but it at least fits with the theme of the show. So we're going to talk this week about my transformation from a negative expectation donkey into a positive expectation gambler. Because there was a transformation. I didn't just fall into positive expectation gambling, though I should have, but I didn't. And I will tell you what caused that transformation, and I'll explain that transformation as it occurred. So let's start way back. Let's start the 1970s. The 1970s was a decade where I could not legally gamble and couldn't even illegally gamble because I was a little kid. If I attempted to gamble in the 1970s, I would have been kicked out very quickly. In fact, I probably would not have been alone to have been able to have done it, even if I wanted to. I kind of did want to, but I knew it was impossible. But my parents took me to Vegas in the 70s, and they would gamble, but they were low-limit recreational gamblers, and they weren't really into gambling. They would go to Vegas as like a vacation, and they kind of did all the Vegas touristy stuff. They went to shows. They went to nice dinners. They gambled. And those were the three things you'd do at the time in Vegas. They sometimes swim in the pool or whatever, but you know, there was it was mainly shows, nice meals, and uh, and low stakes gambling. And when I say low stakes gambling, it was just blackjack. That was all they played. I remember in the car when they were discussing basic strategy and kind of quizzing each other for the rules of when to hit and stand. But they were not positive expectation gamblers, nor did they think they were, which is why they played low stakes. They could afford to have played higher stakes, but they did not. They were just doing it for fun. But I was kind of fascinated by the whole thing. And they did tell me that the house has the edge. They did tell me that people will lose over time if they play enough. They did say if they get lucky and win, that they really did just get lucky and that Eventually, you'll lose. But they still did it. 
And I don't remember how often we went. It wasn't like all the time. But I don't remember if it was like once a year, or twice a year, or three times a year. I know it wasn't more than three times a year. Probably closer to twice a year. But I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to remember that because I was a little kid. But they would go there and uh, they actually had babysitting services, which they don't have anymore. They haven't had that in a long time in Vegas. But hotels actually had babysitting and child care services at the hotels in the 70s. So my parents could leave me with them when they'd go gamble. And they weren't like big degenerates, like staying out all night till 6 a.m. doing this. You know, they, they do it for a few hours to have some time alone and uh, then would pick me up. Once I got a little bit older in the early 80s, then they were able to just leave us in the hotel room and I would kind of take care of my brother and sister and we just wouldn't leave the room. We'd be told not to leave the room and I was responsible enough not to do that. I wasn't always responsible at that age, but in that way I was. So I would watch my younger brother and sister in the room when they'd go out and gamble and they didn't need those services anymore. But I was the oldest kid. So when I was too young to watch myself, then they had to leave me with those uh, babysitting services, which I remember a little bit too. Don't remember that much, but I remember a little bit about these babysitting services in the 70s. I remember they were kind of fun, actually. But I was fascinated with Vegas and with gambling and the whole culture that surrounded it. I was very fascinated by it. I couldn't wait to be 21 to do it. And I did not feel the same way about something else that a lot of people are excited about to turn 21, and that is drinking. I never saw the appeal in drinking alcohol. And people who know me, they know that I don't drink alcohol. When people try to get me to drink alcohol, I, I keep pushing away from it. I go, no, no, I don't want to. People keep, like will try to insist I drink with them. And I, I, I really don't want to do this. And it's not because I once had a problem and I, I'm afraid to fall back into it. I just never liked drinking alcohol. It never had an appeal to me, but gambling did. And I couldn't wait to be 21 when I could gamble legally. I did gamble before I turned 21 when I was like 15. And at that point, I was tall enough to at least be the height of an adult man. I didn't really have the body of an adult man yet. I was too skinny, kind of looked like a 15-year-old boy, which I was. But I was tall enough to be like kind of a short to average sized uh, man. And uh, what I would do is I'd go to the back of the casino and play video poker and have my face to where it faces the wall. And hopefully nobody can see my face and see that I clearly look like a 15 year old and hope nobody notices. And, And for a while I got away with it until I finally got caught. And this was low-stake stuff, and not that I had much money to gamble with then anyway. But I, yeah, I'd play quarter video poker. And I had my dad play some sports bets for me. Actually, you know, I'd have him cash the sports bets. They actually let me play sports bets, believe it or not. Like, looking like a 15-year-old, I could walk up and play his bets, and they accepted them, which was pretty amazing, because I didn't look anywhere near 21. But I, I was dumb enough to try to cash him, because I figured at that point they'd want ID, and I was not going to let them confiscate my ticket. So if I won, I'd give it to my dad. Anyway, once I turned 21, 
I had thought what I was going to do was just go to Vegas for my 21st birthday. For whatever reason, this didn't happen. Well, actually, I do know the reason that didn't happen. Unfortunately, I learned that um, it wasn't that easy to go to Vegas when you're in college and you're going to miss stuff, especially because I had a pretty demanding major. So because my birthday was during the school year, I didn't want to just bounce and go to Vegas and miss a bunch of stuff. So like tests or whatever was going on. So I, I couldn't find the time to just go leave. And I turned 21 while I was in college. So I, I didn't go for my 21st birthday. But a few months later, I was in Vegas actually with my dad and my brother. And I briefly gambled, but we were on the way to somewhere else in Utah. So it wasn't like a Vegas trip. So I still didn't get that much gambling in there. I probably gambled like 45 minutes, especially because my brother had to kind of just sit around because he wasn't 21. So I don't remember the first time I actually went where I could really gamble. I think I was 22. I think it was the following year. Eventually I went and I stuck to blackjack and... You know, sometimes I got lucky. Sometimes I didn't. I would try to find $3 games with decent rules, but I could not count cards. I did not attempt to learn how to count cards. And I knew I was playing negative expectation blackjack. I just kind of hoped I'd win. I just kind of bet and hope it works out, like most gamblers do. But like most gamblers, it didn't. Over time, I was losing. I wasn't going so much to where it was really making much of a difference in my overall finances. And otherwise, I was uh, responsible with the way I saved and spent money. And I did have a job working as a programmer. So this wasn't affecting me in a negative way. But over the years, as I went to Vegas in the 90s, I would lose. And I never played higher than $5 a hand. That was the highest I ever played. Now, I never lost more than like $300 on any trip. So as I said, I never had any kind of devastating losses or even close to that. In fact, the thought of even losing $1,000 gambling just seemed crazy to me at the time. But I was bleeding away money slowly on these trips. Now, they were more generous with comps back then, so I was getting some value back in comps, but not enough to cover what I was losing, even though I wasn't losing that much any trip. And that's the way it was going for me with Vegas trips, including when I would take whatever girl I was dating at the time to Vegas. I think it was in uh, 99. My brother, who was uh, at this point also over 21, in fact, he'd been over 21 for a few years. My brother learned to count cards, and so did a mutual friend of ours. But I did not. They encouraged me to learn, and I said, yeah, yeah, yeah I will eventually. But for whatever reason, I just uh, didn't put the effort into, into doing it. It kind of just felt like something that was going to be too hard and cook the fun out of gambling. And I just didn't really have enough interest to actually go forth and do it. It was one of these things that I thought I should do, but I couldn't bring myself actually to do. My brother and this other guy, they started to move up stakes 
because they were playing positive expectation blackjack. So they no longer were sticking to $5 blackjack. They were moving up to 10 and even to 25. And in card counting, you also have to multiply your bets in order to be positive expectations. So they were betting more than $100 on certain hands. And I was still sticking to the $5 flat betting at the low limits. And I really should have just learned it at that point because I saw my brother had done it successfully and he wasn't a professional gambler or anything. I mean, he was uh, working on becoming a doctor and uh, he was just doing this recreationally, but he wanted to be positive expectation. Same with that other guy who, again, was doing this recreationally, but also wanted to be a winner. But I saw they could do it. So I should have said, hey, I can do this too. And I don't know why. I don't really understand what my reasoning was then. I can't even explain it when I think back to this. But what changed? Why did I turn around and learn how to count cards? And what led me to poker? Because I hadn't played poker yet either. At this point, in uh, the year 2000, I was 28 years old. And I worked a regular job, hadn't played poker yet, and was still going to Vegas maybe, you know, two, three times a year and flat bidding $5 blackjack. In July of 2000, I went to Vegas with my then-girlfriend, not anyone, any of you know, and that was the weekend I wrote about in a blog. You can still find this blog on Poker Fraud Alert in the blog section. It's the infamous million-dollar contest weekend where I could have been the contestant to win a million dollars plus a house from the Dodgers and wasn't because I went on that Vegas trip. And I'm not going to tell that whole story now because I've told it before on the show. I'm forgetting which episode, but I know I've told it before. But it was a story where they had a contest where you could call up and predict which Dodgers player was going to hit for the cycle that game, meaning the player who hits a single, double, triple, and home run all in the same game which at the time, it had not happened since 1970. And this was the year 2000. So it hadn't happened in 30 years. It hadn't happened since before I was born. It didn't seem likely it would happen at all, but it could. So you'd pick which player you would think it's going to happen with. And I had a way to get through to that contest whenever I wanted to at will, which was legal, by the way. I had a a legal way to get through by use of auto-dialers that could get me into the contest whenever I wanted. And it was completely legal, and the radio station was completely aware of what I was doing, and they didn't stop me. And I could have been the contestant for this, and I was the contestant a ton of times prior to that and didn't win because the Dodgers didn't hit for the cycle. But I said, when the Colorado Rockies come in, I'm going to make sure, or when the, I said, when, the, when the Dodgers would come to the Colorado Rockies, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to be the contestant for all of those games because that's where they have the best chance to do it because the air's thin there. It's easier to get hits. And I'm going to pick Gary Sheffield every time because he was the player who had the power and speed combo. And then I scheduled a Vegas trip for the beginning of that series. So I'm like, oh, no, now I can't do it because I won't be around to use my auto dialer. So I was unable to do it for the beginning of the series. And one of those games on the Monday that I was going to be driving back home was the game where Gary Sheffield had everything but the single. All he had to do was hit a single 
and he'd hit for the cycle. And he had one or two at-bats left. And I had to hear this while driving home. I guess I am telling the story again. Anyway, fortunately, he didn't hit for the cycle. They hit him with a pitch, and then they walked him. So he never really got the chance. But I would have been the contestant had I been home. So that was the most significant thing that happened on that trip. And boy, that would have devastated me had he hit for the cycle, knowing that I would have been the contestant if I hadn't been dumb enough to schedule that stupid Vegas trip on that same weekend. But something else happened that trip. I lost $500, which is the most I'd ever lost in Vegas. So first I lost 500 bucks, and on the ride home with my girlfriend in the car, I had to hear Gary Sheffield almost hit for the cycle, which would have won me a million bucks plus a home had I been the contestant, which I would have been because I had a way to do it. I figured out the way the entire thing worked, and I had a legal way to be the contestant whenever I wanted. And I was planning this, and then I stupidly made a Vegas trip on the one of the dates I'd planned to do it. And it almost really screwed me. Now, after he didn't do it, after the Rockies robbed him of it, I was happy I wasn't the contestant because I would have been so pissed. And I've talked about this before. But that trip made an impact on me. There was kind of two emotional things that happened that trip. Number one, I lost more than I ever had. I had very bad luck and I lost 500 bucks flat betting $5 at blackjack. I didn't go crazy and start raising my bet. I kept at the $5. I was disciplined, but I, I lost 100 bets and I lost 500 bucks. So I lost 500 bucks and I almost watched the opportunity to win a million go away. So these two things together kind of slapped me in the face. And I got back from the trip and I said, what the hell am I doing? Why am I going to Vegas to knowingly lose money? Because you can't beat mathematics and I'm going there playing a negative expectation game and I'm sitting there pissed when I lose money. Why? That's the way it's supposed to happen. That's why the casinos are operating. That's how they can hand out comps. That's how they hire all these employees. That's how they build these elaborate hotels and features there. It's off people like me who are walking in to play negative expectation games with the belief that somehow it might turn out different for me. So I said, what am I doing? And running over here to do this, running to Vegas to play negative expectation games, I almost cost myself a million dollars plus a house. Wow. So I declared to myself after that trip, right after that trip, that Monday night when I got home, I declared it's going to be different. I am going to learn how to count cards. So I then looked up on a search engine. I forgot which one I was using at the time in 2000, maybe InfoSeek. And I just looked up on a search engine how to count cards. And it led me to a blackjack forum, which had a link to a text file, which was written by a guy who called himself Porkbelly. I remember his pork belly with an I and with one L, P-O-R-K-B-E-L-I. I think you could even still find it somewhere on the web. 
but it was an old text document written by Porkbelly that wasn't even new in 2000. It was kind of like a beginner's guide for learning how to count cards. And I liked it because it was just quick and easy to digest. Because to learn a high-low card counting strategy, it doesn't require a big, thick book. The basics of it can be explained in a text file like that. And that's really all you need to get started. So I read how to do it. And the very basic premise, which was a lot simpler than I thought it would be, was that you're counting how many twos through sixes are coming out of the deck versus tens and aces, which are equivalent in the number there are in the deck. There's the same number of twos through sixes overall as there are tens through aces. And then you're ignoring the sevens, eights, and nines. Now, there's some theories that have come out since then that have shown that uh, there's better ways to count cards than that. So I'm not saying that's the optimal way to count cards, but that was the way I learned. And that is positive expectation. That had been mathematically proven. So you just have to keep track of that. You don't have to remember every card coming out of the deck like Rain Man. So that's still harder than you might think. And Pork Belly explained very eloquently that learning how to do this in a home environment, like practicing with a deck or running it through a simulator on the computer where you're doing it, that's different than being in the casino itself where there's going to be a lot of distractions, a lot of noise, and just the nervousness of playing for real money versus play money. So I came up with an idea. I said, how do I prepare myself for playing in a real casino, knowing that's the case? Well, I figured, what if I make it harder to do on my simulator than it will be in real life? And that's this way, when I do play in real life and I have the nerves for playing for real money and the distractions and the noise, that it will still seem easier. And so the way I made it harder was I made it faster. I made it to where it deals very fast and where I act fast where I don't sit around thinking, what's the count now? What was the count before? Where I just run the deck really fast on a simulator on my computer. And I played on the simulator at least an hour a day. It was not a website. It was a program I downloaded. And I would just play blackjack against the simulator. And the simulator wasn't even made for card counting. It was just a free blackjack program where you could set how far down in the deck it deals and what the rules are. So I would set all that and then play. And then I would try to count cards. And then in the simulator, you can also go through at the end and see what's left in the deck. So I would do that. And then I would see if I was correct with my count. So I was seeing how accurate I was. The results didn't really matter. I wasn't even keeping track whether I was winning or losing because it was fake money. It was just on my own computer but I wanted to see if my count was good. So at the beginning, I I made some mistakes with the count, but I got better and better. And the thing was, I played fast. I did not give myself time. I was blazing fast through every deck. The reason I was blazing fast is because I figured it would feel easy once I'm there in the casino and it's not blazing fast. And that will counteract the other aspects of playing live, which will be harder. So that was my plan. Then I set a date to try to enact the plan. 
So I targeted a date in October of 2000 to do my first positive expectation gambling trip of my life. And I was going to bring that same girl. Now, by this point, our relationship wasn't great. It was going downhill. We lived together by this point, but we, we hadn't been together all that long. We lived together mainly out of convenience because she was hitting massive traffic going to work in downtown LA because she lived in uh, North Orange County. And she said, I, I'm just so tired of this traffic. And she wanted to move. And I mentioned that where I lived at the time, they had some traffic going to downtown LA, but much less than she was encountering from North Orange County. So we decided, at first she was looking for apartments near me, and then we just decided it made more sense to just have me move from a one-bedroom apartment to a two-bedroom apartment and for her to pay half the rent. So that's what we did. So it was kind of just a money-saving move for both of us, and we had been together for several months by that point, so we weren't totally new, but we probably were not at the living together phase, and we were not like really serious. It was an exclusive relationship, but you know, I wasn't super into her, and to be honest, she wasn't super into me. It just wasn't that great of a relationship, even at its best point. But anyway, it was starting to decline by late 2000. But it wasn't so bad to where I wasn't going to take her. So I went with her on my first uh, positive expectation trip in October of 2000. And she knew what I was doing there and why I was going. And she was there and watched me lose the 500 and almost lose out on that million dollars. So she understood. She was not interested in learning this herself. She was fine with watching me. She wasn't someone who was bored watching it. So you know how some girls, they just don't want to watch guys gamble. And I understand that. But she wasn't one of them. She didn't mind watching the gambling. She, she thought that was interesting. But she also didn't really want to gamble herself. So we went to Vegas, and I was a little bit concerned. Like, what if I just lose here? What if my first attempt at this, I lose? How many times do I try this before I give up? And I found that the double-deck games I wanted to play... It was at the Imperial Palace, which wasn't a Caesar's property at that point. That the double-deck games I wanted to play that were pretty good were $10 at Imperial Palace. And I had heard that there wasn't a lot of heat there from the pit bosses that would, uh, or the eye in the sky that would ban you for card counting. So I thought that was a good place to start. So I was playing the $10 games and spreading my bet as high as $50, depending on the count. And... I did well. I started off winning, and it never really stopped. So after my weekend there, I got in the car to drive home with her, and I was up for the trip, $1,450. That's a nice start. Remember, I had lost 500 and that was a record loss for me. I had never won anywhere near 500. So this is the biggest gambling win I had in my life, this 1450. So I was very happy with it. And it was my first foray into positive expectation play. Now, I was aware that I got lucky too. I was aware I couldn't expect to win at that rate. That I was not going to win the equivalent of uh, 145 bets every time I played and that I would lose sometimes. 
But that was my first attempt. It was successful. To show you how the relationship was going, though, on the way home, I was very happy with myself. We're driving through the desert. And I told her, you know, I'm really happy this first trip went well. Because, you know, winning $1,450 on my first try, that, that's very encouraging. Had I lost $1,450, I don't know if I'd want to come back here and try it again. I never lost that kind of money before. But I'm, I'm happy it went well here. I was kind of nervous because I know that it's positive expectation, but not by that much. It could have easily gone the other way. So I'm happy it went this way. And I looked at her. She wasn't smiling. In fact, she looked kind of pissed off. And she said, yeah, well, it figures. It figures that's my luck. I said, what do you mean? She says, no, no, it's just, that's just the way my life is. I said, what? What do you mean the way your life is? She says, oh, no, I just, you know, I just see the rich get richer. And, uh, you know, people like me were just going to be struggling our whole lives. Now, first of all, I wasn't rich, so I don't know why she was saying that. And second, she wasn't struggling. She had a good job. She made less money than I did, but she was doing fine. She did not have any kids. She had nobody else to support. And what was she complaining about? Like, it's not like she was someone who was doomed to working minimum wage jobs for her whole life and had three kids to support. This is someone with no dependents who had a decent job and a college education. And I was like, I, I don't understand. Like, you're doing fine. She says, no, no, I know. But, you know, I'm just not going to have things like this happen. Like, I'm not going to just go win $1,400. I go, well, you can learn this too. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. I have no interest in this. Go, well, if you have no interest in this, then what are you complaining about? No, no, I just, I, I just see other people who don't need the money and then they win and then, you know, people like me who just really, really love to have $1,450, it just, it just doesn't happen for me. I just know this would never happen for me. So, it just, that's just the way life is. So, I'm going, what the fuck? Here, I'm so happy about how this worked out for me. And that was the whole purpose of the trip. And she's sitting here making it about her and actually mad that I won the money. So, I said, what are you hoping here that I would have lost? Like, are you mad that I won money? Would you be happy over driving home right now and I lost 1450 She's like, no, I'm not saying that. I mean, I'm happy for you, the one. I'm just, you know, I can't help thinking. It just figures that's the way it is. I go, wow. (laughs) I cannot believe I'm having this conversation. Well, that relationship didn't last that much longer, as you might have guessed. But that was kind of related. The end of that relationship was kind of related to my second trip. Now, you knew I'd want to go back fairly soon after that successful foray into positive expectation gambling. So I went back two months later in late December of 2000. I figured I'd do more of the same, except maybe I'd try some additional places so I don't get booted from Imperial Palace. Well, it was in that December trip where I got kicked for my... For my it was in that December trip where I got kicked from my first casino. And that was Terribles on Flamingo, which is now called Silver Sevens, I believe. But I played there, and a mafioso-like pit boss went up to me, and I was losing. I started off immediately losing, and 
I was starting to come back. I was probably like $300 away from even. I think I was down like 700 at one point. I got within 300 I think I was playing $25 a hand there, so that's why it was happening faster than the $10 tables previously. Anyway, I got back to within like 300 and they gave me the boot, which is common when you're card counting. If you start off losing, they'll often just wait to see if you tilt and lose your head and don't play a positive expectation game anymore. So as long as you're still losing, they'll let you keep losing. But if they see that you have kept your head and you're now coming back, they're not going to wait for you to come back and beat them, then they'll kick you at that point. So that's what happened to me. So this mafioso-looking pit boss came over and pulled me to the side and said, yeah, we're going to have to ask you to cash out your chips and leave. You're too good for this joint, is what he said to me. I didn't question it. I knew what that meant. So I said, okay. And I left. I cashed out and left. So that was my first ban. was from Terribles. Went back to Imperial Palace. I won some money back. I don't remember my final result of that trip. I think I lost a little bit. I either won a little bit or lost a little bit. It wasn't a very interesting overall result either way. What was more interesting was the fact that since I wasn't with my girlfriend on that trip, I went by myself. I met up with some friends there. But I remember calling her the night before I was going back. And she seemed kind of cold to me. When I called her the next day from work, and she was at her work, so I called her from work to work, she broke the news to me that she thought it was time that we broke up. And you know what my response was? Okay, I agree. Seriously, that's what I said. Because that's how I felt. Like, I was kind of thinking about when should I say this to her, but I wasn't quite ready yet. So when she said it to me, I'm like, okay, you're right. <laughs> Let's break up. Like, I've never had a breakup be that mutual before. That was a, a super mutual breakup. It was just a matter of who said it first. So I guess she had time to think when I was away and decided that she was done with me and I thought the same of her. And we broke up. It's a little bit awkward for the next few weeks because she was still living with me. She did try to find a place as fast as she could, but, you know, it takes time, so it's kind of awkward living together. It's a whole different story. But let's get back to the gambling stuff. So, okay, I was a blackjack player at that point now, at the end of 2000. But where's poker? Well, in October of 2000, I bought a book called Winning Low Limit Hold'em by Lee Jones. Yes, that same Lee Jones, who was the manager of Poker Stars for so long, And I read the book, and I was excited to play poker. But I guess not excited enough because I didn't actually go do it. But finally, in January, I decided to go to the Hustler Casino, the same Hustler you see on Hustler Casino Live. I decided to go to the Hustler Casino and play my first hand of poker. In fact, I remember the date. It was January 17th, 2001. Part of the reason we had a little delay in me doing this was I actually started seeing a new girl really right on New Year's. So that kind of took priority. 
So about two and a half weeks later, I, I decided to finally try poker, which I'd been meaning to do. And I broke even in my first session, exactly even. Then I won a little bit in my second session. But I was really enjoying it. I really liked Limit Hold'em. And I really, really just wanted to play more and more. I instantly liked it. It was funny because reading the book, like I understood it and I wanted to try, but I didn't even go try for a few months. So just reading about it wasn't that exciting. But once I played, I'm like, oh, I love this. So then I started playing a lot of poker. And I still played blackjack, but it was uh, more poker focused from that point forward. But as I said, it took me until uh, 2003 to become a winning player. And I was positioned perfectly once I got good enough to be a winning limit hold'em player that I also had this big influx of players into the game from the poker boom. And I didn't just become a winning player because we had a bunch of terrible players come in from the poker boom. I actually started becoming a winning player first before the poker boom. Like right before it, I started having some very good months online. And then shortly after that, we had the influx of players. So there we went. And I I won't bother to go into the rest of everything. But that was my beginnings into positive EV gambling. And it really took that one trip in July with the $500 and the million dollars to slap some sense into me. Poker is a tougher thing to judge whether you're positive expectation because it's not something you can judge mathematically because it's a game against other players. Blackjack, it's just you against the house and either you're playing with an edge or you're not. So that can be computed, whereas your edge in poker cannot. So poker, you just have to be honest with yourself. Am I better than the other people here? And am I enough better to overcome the rake? And if there's some expense to play, such as travel, am I good enough to overcome the rake and the expenses? And if you're not, then do you still want to play? But that's uh, where it all came from. I eventually uh, moved to Vegas after I quit my job. I was still working for a few more years. I quit in uh, 03 with a regular job. I moved to Vegas the following year. So that was the beginning of all that. And it could have been a much earlier beginning. I did regret I didn't get into blackjack card counting when I could have in 93, when I was 21, because it was much easier to get away with then. They clamped down a lot on the card counting. They looked for it much more. They were much less tolerant of it when I started than they were in 93. So I was old enough to have still been part of it in some of the good days of card counting, when that was much more viable as an option to make a lot of money, and I just didn't do it. So I regretted that. But at least I was positioned to play poker before the boom and be good enough to win when all these new players came in in the early 2000s. So that was good. Anyway, if you are a recreational gambler, which I know some of you are, you might want to learn 
how to increase your edge. And it's easier than you think, and it's even easier to decrease your negative edge. Just watch the pay tables, watch the rules, things like that. Just pay attention to things like this. I understand that positive expectation gambling is not for everybody because it can be very tedious. It can be a lot of work. It can be boring. It can be frustrating because if you lose, you have to quit when you're no longer positive expectation. That can be hard to do when you're down and you want to get unstuck. I understand. I have these feelings too. So it's not for everybody. And if you're gambling for fun, then it can be hard to adhere to these rules. You also have to sometimes think, why am I doing this? Why am I throwing away money? You know, sometimes you want, you're going to just want to think, wouldn't it be nice if the odds were in my favor? That's getting harder and harder to do. And you're not going to get the comps that you'd be getting if you're a negative expectation gambler. And it's getting harder and harder to appear to be negative expectation, actually positive. There are still ways, but it, it's becoming more and more work, more and more difficult. And a lot of ways to get banned and kicked out. And with all the consolidation happening in the industry, too, that also has become a problem. Where if you get kicked out of one place, you can be kicked out of a ton of places. Okay, so moving on, we're going to talk about the update to the ongoing saga with Poker Paint. Now, Poker Paint, if you remember, is and was an art project that originally got a lot of good reaction from the poker community. People thought it was cool until it was learned the source of the material that was being used. So a company called Poker Paint showed up on the scene a few years ago, I think either in 18 or 19. It was started by a young man named Brent Butts, B-U-T-Z, who otherwise is unknown in poker. And he has a style of like a colorful picture so he'd take a real picture of somebody, of a real person in poker, and colorize it in a pretty interesting way to where it's clear who the picture is of and what they're doing, but it doesn't look like a photograph anymore. It looks like uh, uh, an artistic version of them with a lot of bright colors. So people liked the look. People thought it was cool. He showed an example of one of Negranu sitting at a poker table with chips in front of him. And it wasn't totally clear where these originals came from. People thought maybe he took the pictures himself. Maybe he just saw these people and drew them. It wasn't clear. Because since these are in this format, you can't really tell if it's a photo or if it's something that was just created and drawn from scratch. But that answer came pretty quickly after Poker Paint was publicized by poker journalist and player David Lappin. In September of 2021, David Lappin tweeted, NFTs have taken the poker world by storm. My latest article is how Poker Paint is getting in on the latest craze by launching their own NFTs, which they did. Well, this brought unfortunate attention to poker paint because some of the poker photographers 
clicked on this link and noticed their pictures were right there. So Brent was not drawing these pictures and he wasn't observing these people and yeah, taking these pictures himself. He was taking pictures that were already published by photographers, by professional photographers, and then colorizing them in this new artistic format, which you can't do because a photograph is a work of art. Whether you consider it a work of art, it doesn't matter. Legally, it is an artistic work. And I actually agree, it is an artistic work. Because a lot goes into taking a good photograph. It's not just a matter of walking up and snapping a picture. You have to get the timing right. You have to get the angle right. You have to take a picture that people are going to find interesting or find appealing. And it's harder than you think. So there are photographers who make a living by taking pictures of poker players and selling them or licensing them in some ways, or sometimes they will work directly for a poker outlet. But these people are not doing this as a hobby, and they do own the rights to these images. So this poker paint guy, this Brent Butts, he can't just take these images and then make his own art from them. You can't do it. It's legally not permissible, and morally it really isn't either. So this whole thing already played out the first time back in September when uh, Eric Harkins, one of the photographers, tweeted, it's been brought to our attention you are skinning copyrighted images, including ours, without prior consent or license. Please cease and desist all sales of images or reach out to the original photographers for license permission. So there was a lot of arguing back and forth. And most of the poker world... In fact, almost all of the poker world was on the side of the photographers. Daniel Negranu even tweeted about this and drew a lot of attention to the subject, and he was on the side of the photographers. The reason it's so easy to take the photographer's side is not just because they're legally and morally right, but because they are seen as background working class employees of the poker community. These people are not rich. These people are not making big bucks, what they're doing. And poker players like to support the hardworking people behind the scenes in the game. So when people like Negranu see them being exploited, then immediately he and others like him will take their side. And that's fine. Haley Hotstelter tweeted a conversation that she had previously had with Brent Butts where he had actually asked her for permission and she said no and he used the photo anyway. So she was demonstrating that he goes ahead and does it anyway even if you say no. Most of them he never even asked. But with her, for whatever reason, he did. Now we've talked about all this before. And this has gone back and forth a number of times. Uh, A few days into this whole controversy on September 27th, He put out a statement, which I'm not going to go read. You can go listen to our segment at the time on that one. And he was saying that he's uh, going to try to work this out with them. The problem is that this never completely got worked out. By the way, I tried to give him advice directly on, on Twitter DM. I tried to give him some 
advice. And he's heard the segments I've done on him here. So he's aware I'm talking about him. And, you know, I don't have a personal problem with the guy. He doesn't have a personal problem with me. And I've told him, honestly, where I feel he's wrong. And he is young. He was 25 in September. I don't know if he's 26 now. But I understand if you're young, you sometimes don't understand how intellectual property law works. And I don't believe he entered all this believing he was stealing other people's work. But now he's learned it. And unfortunately, they're not coming to an agreement. And now he doesn't know what to do because he doesn't really want to stop. But these photographers don't want to deal with him. So in February of 2022, and this was about like four and a half months after the whole shitstorm started, Eric Harkins tweeted again. On behalf of the photographers Joe Girone, Haley Hotchdelter, Drew Amato, Danny Maxwell, and Jane Furman, you've probably seen their names on a lot of these photos that have been taken at the World Series, we thought it would be appropriate to update everyone on the poker paint situation. Joe Girone and I have no- negotiated in good faith with Poker Paint in the past two months to develop a licensing agreement protecting photographers, players, and player likenesses. Although the agreement would, uh, would address everyone's concerns, we do not trust the agreement would be fully adhered to. Therefore, we have chosen not to enter into any business collaboration at this time. Thank you to all who have been supportive throughout this process. So that's interesting. So they're basically saying that the agreement was satisfactory, but they're afraid he's just going to violate it. So they're kind of afraid it's going to go one way. That for whatever reason, they think that they will allow him to use these photos under certain circumstances, and then he's going to screw them anyway, in their opinion. So they don't want to enter it with him. I don't know what led them to believe this, but that is what they came away believing. So they said, we're not going to make any agreement with you. And then the whole controversy kind of died. But I will say that Poker Paint wasn't all that active after that. And I saw he occasionally tweet about something or other that he was doing, but he kind of fell out of people's conscience for a few months. Well, here we go again. May 19th, 2022 from Danny Maxwell, one of the more vocal people against him the whole time. Danny wrote, Retweets appreciated on this. Once again, Poker Paint is back to his old ways of using photos he has no permission to use. I'm blocked from viewing his page, so I won't be able to respond to him directly. And then he showed a Poker Paint art piece on uh, Justin Smith, a.k.a. Boosted J. And it shows Poker Paint tweeting, Shout out to Boosted J and the future movie he's writing and producing about the crazy life of Doyle Brunson which he is, and I almost made that a topic tonight. I just didn't feel like talking about it yet. He goes on to write, With the 2022 World Series around the corner and the poker epicenter for the next couple of months, I've asked people to avoid having any dealings with him or buying any of his, quote, art. Myself and the other poker photographers are looking forward to a good summer of taking pictures. So then Poker Paint responded. I guess someone showed him the tweet, even though he had Danny Maxwell blocked. Poker Paint said, if I knew this guy took the photo, I wouldn't have posted it. It's incredibly annoying. (laughs) He doesn't get it. So I think 
Danny Maxwell was saying he took this particular photo. Danny's either saying that it's his photo or somebody else's photo that he recognizes, but whatever he says, Poker Paints back to his old ways of using photos he has no permission to use. And so Poker Paints says back, if I knew this guy took the photo, I wouldn't have posted it. It's incredibly annoying. Well, you can be annoyed, Poker Paint, but, and, and I told you this personally, you know it. Here's the bottom line. If somebody else takes a picture of a poker player, whether it's someone you've argued with on Twitter or someone you haven't ever dealt with before, unless they said, yes, poker paint, you can use my photo for your art, then you can't use it. It's that simple because it's their photo. They put time and effort and in some cases money into taking that photo. And yes, money. Like, if they're at the World Series or some other tournament taking this picture, you think they're necessarily staying there for free? You think they travel there for free? You think their equipment they're using was free? So this is their business. These are the pieces that they produce as part of their business. And then you're taking that and not compensating them and you are making your own pieces from their work. You can't do it. So you can't say, well, Danny, if I knew this was your piece, I wouldn't have touched it. I've told you the whole way. You should only use pictures you take or pictures that other people give you permission to use. And that's it. And anybody else, you have to either ask their permission or just not use it. And if they say no, don't use it. And I know you say it's annoying, and I know there's a lot of great pictures you would love to use for your art here, and there's a reason for that. The reason these are great pictures is because these people do it for a living. That's how they're making money taking the pictures, and that's why they don't want you to use these pictures without compensating them. That is why. That is probably why that you don't travel the poker circuit to take pictures of these players. Because it's expensive, and your pictures probably won't be as good. So, I don't know what you did to make them think they can't trust you, aside from what you did in the first place. But I don't know what caused the negotiations to break down. And I know that you really do want to work with them. In fact, uh, Haley Hotstelter, who hasn't really uh, said much recently about this, but she finally chimed in on May 19th. She said, Hey, Brett, I've left you alone for the most part, but I just want to give you a suggestion that Googling images isn't the best route to go here. When you Google something, it specifically says images may be subject to copyright. So then his only response to that from Haley was, Why can't we just work together? (laughs) Why can't we just be friends? Why, Haley? Just let us work together, please. They just don't want to. It's like asking someone, why won't you date me? Or why won't you be my friend? Well, because the person just doesn't like you. They just want nothing to do with you. Sometimes it's your fault. Sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes it's partially your fault. Whatever it is, they want nothing to do with you. So at that point, you can't just appropriate their work. The funny thing is, if you approached these people in the first place and said, hey, I'd like to do this. Let's collaborate. Here's a sample of what I do. Some of them probably would have said yes. 
I know you approached Haley and she didn't want it, but some of them probably would have said yes. Because as I said, these are not rich people. So if they had an income stream coming in from you reusing their work and giving them a fair piece of it, they probably would have gone for it, at least some of them. But it looks like you've pissed them off enough to where they're just not going to cooperate with you at all. And the more times you keep taking these pictures and using them for your own, the less likely they are to forgive you and work with you one day. Now, it might be too late completely at this point. Some people probably wonder why this guy has not been sued yet. And I don't know, because I'm not friends or even a friendly acquaintance of any of these people involved. I know of them. They know of me. But I'm not close to any of them. And I've really never talked to any of them. I've even told to Poker Paint, I said, you can take a look at my Twitter. You'll see none of them even follow me. So, as you can tell, we're not buddies. I'm just stating this from a truly neutral perspective. If I had to guess, they're probably not suing him because he's probably viewed as uncollectible. He's young, he probably doesn't have much or anything, and it costs money to initiate lawsuits. And he lives, like I think, in D.C. or something. So, even the venue of this is in question. It's just a lot of trouble to sue someone who probably can't be collected from. But eventually they might do it. Especially if they make a big enough deal, then maybe someone like Negranu or some other deep-pocketed poker pro who's sympathetic will fund a lawsuit and then they can probably get some kind of injunction preventing him from doing this. Or at the very least, they can get a judgment to where anything he does sell, they can just immediately get the proceeds. So Poker Paint, you haven't been sued yet. So I think you should just quit this before you piss them off enough to where it happens. Either they can pool their resources together and sue you, or they can run some kind of GoFundMe page and raise the money to sue you. They're not, they're not just going to take this for eternity. You can't just keep slapping them in the face with this and then expect them to do nothing. So I really think the only reason it hasn't happened yet is because they think you're broke. But even if they do think you're broke, that doesn't mean they won't eventually sue you for this. So I know you'd love to work with them at this point. And I know you probably regret the way some of this went down. You have to just be realistic of where this stands. And you have to understand intellectual property law. And whether you agree with the law or not doesn't matter. The law is the law. And you can't just decide you disagree with it and do things your own way because you'll find yourself in trouble. They're aggressively enough observing what you're doing to where you're never going to fly under the radar with this either. The funny thing is you may have actually flown under the radar with this if you didn't uh, release that whole NFT thing and have David Lappin publicize it. This may not have been known for a long time because I, I believe he existed for a few years doing this and, and no one caught it, what was really happening here. But I think even once it was caught, just... If you said, hey, I was, I'm young, I didn't realize it, let's make a deal. I think that could have worked. But for whatever reason, the negotiations didn't work out. And I think it was too late. I don't even know if this poker paint guy is a bad dude. Like, I don't get the idea like he's intentionally being a jerk. I think he's just kind of a little bit delusional about what he should be able to do. 
I think he kind of believes, like, I should be able to do this. They should just work with me, and I'll give them a piece, and what's the problem, and why are they being dicks and not letting me? But what he needs to understand is they can just say no. Nobody is owed usage of someone else's work, even for a piece of it. If you own a piece of work, you can just say, no, nobody else is using it but me. And it's perfectly fine to say that. Let's say somebody came to me and said they'd like to use portions of Poker Fraud Alert Radio on their own show and that they'll pay me such and such for using it. If I were to say, no, you know what? I don't want this to be part of any other show. I just want it to be on this show. That would be within my rights to say. And they couldn't just get pissed and then steal my show anyway and use it without my permission. Now, if I was approached with that, I probably would say yes. Because I like when people get to hear this show in any way they can. And if I get compensated for it too, that's great. But if I didn't want it, that would be every right of mine to say that. Because this is also an artistic work. This show right now. This is something I'm creating. This is something that is my property. And it's something you can access and listen to for free. But you cannot use commercially as your own. You can't even use it non-commercially as your own. But especially not commercially. That's especially a no-no. Unless I say it's okay. So same with these photographs. That's just a fact. He's got to realize that. I don't understand what his end game is here. Does he just want to aggravate them enough to where they finally sue him? I don't know. It's weird. I understood more at the beginning where he just was kind of ignorant to the whole thing. So poker paint, that's my advice to you. This comes from someone who has no personal problem with you and someone who is not friendly at all with any of these photographers. I don't know them other than their names and they don't really know me other than my name. Caller, you're on the air. What's going on, Poker Fraud Alert family? This is Christopher Bitchell here with Scam Through Life Vlog. Listen, I uh, I heard you talking about scammers, and uh, I, I figured this would be a good segue to call in since I'm a scammer. But uh, anyway, um, I just wanted to address a few things about me that, that's been going on in your forum. Um, I, I don't read your forum, but I wanted to address those things. Listen, I moved to Texas because I'm a professional gambler and I wanted to be closer to casinos. So I moved to Texas. I see. Now, Christopher Bitchell, you called last week and I actually got some positive reactions to your call. I got some texts saying they enjoyed your call on the show. So uh, when I saw your number calling coming through, I figured I had to answer this. But I, I do have to ask you a question here. You said that you moved from Vegas to Texas to be closer to casinos. Now, there's no city in the world that has more casinos than Las Vegas. So why, if you're a professional gambler, why would you move away from the casinos? Listen, like I said last week, don't ask questions. Questions aren't good. I moved to Texas to be closer to casinos because I'm a professional gambler and I heard that Texas has really good vegan food, and I'm 99% vegan. Yeah, it's... They have really, they have really good steaks. 
mm. really good beefy steaks here in 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 Texas, and I like vegan food. Yeah, I've noticed in, in uh, I've seen videos of yours where you've gotten steak, you've gotten lobster, uh, you've gotten a lot of traditional vegan meals, a lot of uh, ice cream. Also very big on uh, big with vegans. So I, I I've seen you keep vegan. I, I know you say ninety nine percent. We must be seeing the other one percent of the meals, but uh, you know we can't ever watch every moment of your life. But yeah, Texas. I I know if a lot of v- vegans have moved to Texas because of the renowned vegan cuisine that's available in all cities in Texas. Does that make sense? Like I I, I used you know I, I travel around the entire United States. I make my wife you know she she make she she has to carry the baby everywhere. We go everywhere together. Um, I spend all my time with her because I'm a a professional gambler and, um, you know, it doesn't matter that my kid is, he, he can't even talk, but it doesn't matter. But listen, you know, I was going, I, I went to Florida and then I, I went to Ohio and, you know, when, when I was in Florida, I really liked these, Florida ceiling windows that I seen, but then I, I went to Texas and I saw Texas ceiling windows and I, I told Stacy Mitchell, we have to get these Texas ceiling windows. And that's why we moved to Texas because I'm a professional gambler and Texas ceiling windows. That's true. You know, I remember one time I had a Florida ceiling window and I posted a picture of the room and a really smart guy said, ah, a Florida ceiling window it must be in Florida. I know where you are. And I said, crap, this guy must have like ESP. How could he figure that out? A Florida ceiling window means you're in Florida. So, yeah. Yeah, he, he's probably dead broke Dallas Hater. Probably. So, so you're in Texas, and uh, is there anything else you're doing in Texas besides gambling at the many casinos there? Talking off, Bob, but we're not going to talk about that. Okay, well... Well, I, I, I have a new guy too. His, his name is Keith. I like to suck him off. Mm. Well, I'm glad you're finding uh, interesting things to do there in the new place you've moved. You know, a lot of times people move, they don't get to know people very fast. So I'm, I'm glad that you've uh, made uh, friends already where you've moved out there. Uh, you've, you've taken right to the community. Yeah. And um, I got a new offer. I offered you the 99% discount last time. Um, but I'm going to be holding a masturbation mindset class pretty soon. And, uh, we can do it online. We're going to share, share videos. The masturbation mindset. Now, how does that work? Do you, uh, you have to get in the mindset before you start? Yeah. You got to be in the mindset to masturbate around guys, but you're not gay. You're not gay. Yeah, see that I've never tr- I've never had that mindset before. I've never tried that. I've never even thought about trying that. But uh, I know certain people have. I know certain guys who are married and have kids and claim they're heterosexual that they may have done that around guys and on multiple occasions with with no women present. Doesn't mean you're gay. Maybe not. I I know certain people don't believe it means that. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I just wanted to address all the dead broke jealous haters in the thread. I know, you know, you don't really talk about the threat too much on the radio show, but I just need to, I don't even read the thread. I don't even listen to the show. Yeah, I, I heard know. you talking about the scammers, so I had to call. 
Yeah, well, okay, well, uh, thank you for calling the show you don't listen to and talking about the thread you don't read. I appreciate that. All right. Please remember to like and subscribe. I will. Good night, Christopher. Hit the thumbs up button. <laughs> All right. Christopher Bitchell, the sequel. Call again. Let's talk about the happenings at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. The MGM Grand has a poker room. It's not one of the biggest poker rooms, but it is a poker room. It is in Las Vegas. They are presently running a poker series. And some of these events have guarantees. Now We've had a lot of topics on this show about guarantees and bad behavior on the part of venues that screw people involving guarantees. And there's various ways to screw players when guarantees are involved. So what is a guarantee? A guarantee is very simple. It is the minimum prize pool that the event will have no matter how few people enter. There is no way a guarantee event is supposed to ever have the prize pool less than the guarantee. It's just not supposed to happen at all or it violates the guarantee and players are getting screwed in some way. But there have been ways the guarantees have been manipulated. One of them is when a venue cancels a tournament if it looks like it's not going to get enough entrance to meet the guarantee. Because if it doesn't meet the guarantee, that means there's money coming out of the casino's pocket to make the difference. So that means they're losing money on the event. So if they see that is on pace to happen, then they will sometimes cancel the event which is very unethical. Then sometimes casinos will stuff additional players in there at a discount in order to pad the price pool and have less come out of their pocket. Because if they're paying the money anyway between what they've gotten from entries and what the guarantee is, why not throw additional players in there by bringing more people down by cutting their buy-in in half? Like the Westgate did that a few years ago, and that was caught. And sometimes there's attempts to promote that an overlay, meaning that the guarantee is not going to be met and that there's going to be more money in the prize pool than there otherwise would be if there wasn't a guarantee. Sometimes there will be false promotions that an overlay is going to happen or highly likely to happen even though the operator of the casino knows that what they're doing is getting people to come down, believing that they're going to be playing with an overlay, but then that promotion itself is making people show up and then the guarantee gets met. Another way that they add that's very unethical at some rooms is where they add flights. They just keep adding flights until they get enough people. That's another very, very unethical way that rooms will get out of having to pay overlays. They still just keep adding flight after flight after flight, making excuses of why they're adding flights until they get enough to cover the guarantee. Well, a new one occurred, one I've never seen before, at the MGM Grand. And at first, I was scratching my head, like, what exactly is going on here? Because it wasn't a lot of money involved. In fact, it was very little money. So there was a 20K guaranteed tournament at a Omaha 8 or better event and it was event number 11 in their current series they're running. 
and it was a $300 buy-in with a $20,000 guarantee. And it says entrance 76, prize pool 19700 Then it lists the places they're paying, which is places 1 through 10. And when you add them all up, it does add up to 19700 So wait a minute. It's a $20,000 guarantee, and the prize pool is 19700 <laughs> I uh, what did they fail first grade math? How are they paying nineteen thousand seven hundred if the guarantee is twenty thousand? If it can't be less than twenty thousand, how is it less than twenty thousand? And why is it so close? So I thought maybe this was like a calculation error, a computer error. Uh, maybe someone hit the wrong button. I didn't know what to say. Like, why would they scam $300 of all things? Didn't make any sense. Why would the MGM Grand do this? So I was kind of curious. I even tweeted at them. They didn't answer me. I asked other people who play these type of events who I thought might have been there. I asked them, what do you think of this? They didn't know either. Well, finally, someone came up with an answer who had been playing the event, and they sent me something. And I was like, ah, okay, this person figured it out. So one of the people I asked about it sent me from the structure sheet. It said 1.5% of total price pool will be withheld for Grand Tournament of Champions on July 17th. So what they're doing is taking 1.5% out of the prize pool of every event And that is going to be used for this free roll for, I guess, all the winners to play on July 17th against each other. So it's like a promotional free roll that they're taking out of all the prize pools to build up the prize pool for the free roll at the end, which is only open to winners. So then the question comes, is this something ethical? Now, the good thing is the MGM Grand does not appear to be actually stealing money from anyone because they're paying this back out via the July 17th free roll. So that's the good news. They also verified that this is what's really happening, not in a response to me, but they did tweet out the prize pool from this event and they actually put that $300 is going to this. So that's definitely where it is going. I didn't know this at the time when I was asking about this and posting about this on Poker Fraud Alert, but I know now that definitely is where the $300 went, and it makes sense. You know, $300 is 1.5% of 20 k The question is, is this right? Because this was an overlay. Now, you may say, wait a minute, 76 times 300 is more than 20000 So how is that an overlay? No, it's not, because not all of this 300 goes into the prize pool. This thing is uh, raked enough between the rake for the house and the staff fee that since less than 300 goes into the prize pool, it was going to be less than 20000 So they were going to have to cover some of that money. Now 300 of that money is going to that free roll. And you can say, well, even with no guarantee, whatever was raised, 1.5% would have gone there, right? And I would have said, yes, 1.5% of every prize pool is going to that free roll. 
whether guarantee is met or not. And then you may ask, well, is it disclosed on all the structure sheets? And I would say, yes, it was. So then you might say, then what's the problem? Well, the problem is this violates what a guarantee is supposed to be. A guarantee is supposed to mean we are guaranteeing this prize pool is this much. Not we're guaranteeing this prize pool is this much minus the things we're taking out of it. No. Guaranteed means you're going to be playing for this much money. That's it. All the prizes together are worth this. That should be it, period. Otherwise, they can start justifying taking much more money than this out of the pool for a bunch of things. They can say, well, it's 20000 minus 1.5% for the free roll at the end, minus 3% for staff tips, minus 2% for the janitor, minus uh, 1% for some hookers we're going to hire to blow us in the back room. Like, seriously, they, they can't just take away from the guarantee and say, well, it's in the structure sheet. We're guaranteeing this, but we're, we're taking out these portions. But don't worry, we're doing this to every prize pool, so it's fine. No, not really, because a guarantee is supposed to mean just that. We're guaranteeing you're playing for this much. And anything short of that is not a real guarantee. So I don't like this. This isn't a scam. There is no theft going on here. I don't know if it's legal. It probably is. But I don't think it should be. I think it should be very simple as far as guaranteed tournaments go. That once they are announced, and once they take a single buy-in, that they are committed to put it on. Unless some sort of natural disaster prevents it and closes down the entire room. And it would have to be some natural disaster meeting a certain threshold, not just because it's uh, windy and rainy outside or something. But short of that, once they take a single buy-in, they are committed to put it on and pay out that guarantee. And that they cannot add flights, they cannot cancel it, they cannot allow buy-ins for less than the full buy-in amount. They cannot comp any buy-ins that everybody entering has to put up their own money in full to enter. And that nothing can be taken out of the guarantee to where the prize pool becomes less than that. That they want to take out any money for the free roll, they can only do this out of money that's past the guarantee. But guarantee should be guarantee. They should have these rules in place in every place that poker tournaments are allowed. People should have the confidence when they go play a guarantee event that it will go, that they won't add flights, and that they won't run it for less than the guarantee. And furthermore, I would love it if venues could agree that they're not going to put out promotional material when they're not getting as many entries as they hoped, telling everyone there's going to be an overlay, or strongly implying there's going to be an overlay. They can say we have this many entrants, and we need this many more to reach the guarantee. They can put out factual information, but they shouldn't be putting out anything saying that uh, we're on pace not to make it, or we're on pace to fall this far short, or there's probably going to be an overlay. None of that language should happen either. 
that's kind of secondary. The other stuff's more important. But I also feel that people shouldn't come down believing an overlay is almost guaranteed, no pun intended, and then it doesn't happen. Because sometimes people will run down there believing that they're playing with this little added bit of positive expectation, and then they don't get it. And it especially affects players who are mediocre, ones who are going to average players that think, look, I'm kind of a break-even tournament player. This is going to be, for once, I'll be able to play with an edge here because there's going to be an overlay. Nope, no overlay. So it's not the venue's fault if a lot of people show up at the end and what would look like was going to be an overlay becomes not one. But it shouldn't happen because the venue makes people think one is happening. But this situation, this should be very straightforward. If it says 20K, make it 20K, not 19.7. So I didn't like that. Not a major thing, not a major scandal. Only $300 difference. And I wasn't in that tournament, in case you're wondering. So I'm not bitching on my own behalf. When I became aware of this, I, I didn't like it. I don't like when there's little things done like this to trick players. Just be honest. Do you want to make it a 19.7 guarantee? Then make it that. Make it 19.7 guarantee and explain that the other 300 is going to the free roll. You can do that too. So the 19.7 guarantee plus guaranteed 300 in free roll. I'd be fine with that too. Just be honest. Have people know what they're expecting. I've always said the basic rule of ethical business is that the customers get what they're expecting and they're not surprised by anything in a negative way. If it's a positive surprise, great. If it's a negative surprise, not great. If the average customer will be disappointed with what they get versus what they believe they're getting, then you are screwing them in some way. That is in all industries, not just poker. And I've used this when I've argued with businesses before, when I've gotten screwed in some way and when something was very misleading and they try to convince me that it wasn't or that it's okay. And I say, look, if the would the average customer be tricked by this? Would the average customer understand this? And if the answer is no, then yes, something unethical is happening here because people are expecting something you're not delivering. That's all. They just have to be clear. If you want to text me or call me, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. From the 530, got two texts from him. The first one saying, I was playing tournaments at a casino called Atlantis in Reno until I came to find out that all rebuys got 50% taken out for who knows what reason. At what point is too much to be taken out? Yeah, that's crappy. And this is one of these things like they can disclose it and get away with it, but yeah, I wouldn't ever play there again after that. And then he said, the idea of taking money out of tournament funds to use it for promotional material or whatever reason without players' consent is unethical. I agree too. And that is a good point, that this free roll at the end, this tournament of champions that they're having on July 17th, that is promotional material. That's not something the players are asking for. That's a promotion that they're funding with the prize pool. And the big problem is it's coming out of the guarantee. So I agree with you. Okay, moving on. Some recent news about an alleged scammer that's operating out of Europe named Alex Jones that uh, has been posted to social media. 
And I, I figured I'd mention this on this show because this person wants the story to get out. And, you know, there's a lot of people who already have a problem with Alex Jones. Mr. Jones, I'm going to hand you a copy of what I have marked as Exhibit 4. You ever seen that before? I don't remember. You're not sure if you've seen this before? No. Okay. You'll see up at the top it has a timestamp, 12-14-12? Yes. You know that's the date of Sandy Hook, right? I don't know. You don't know that? Well, okay. Is that the date? It is. Okay. It is, Mr. Jones. You will admit, I mean, you've done mocking imitations of Sandy Hook parents crying, correct? No. I want to play you a video clip, too, from September 24th, 2014, and November 11th, 2016. Will you play the video clip called Crying? And then you've got parents laughing on <laughs> And then they walk over to the camera and go, and, I mean, not just one, but a bunch of parents doing this. Then we see footage of one of the reported fathers of the victims, Robbie Parker, doing classic acting training where he's laughing and joking. And they that was Alex Jones and the Sandy Hook lawsuit. Yeah, that was pretty offensive stuff. I can understand why the parents of the Sandy Hook kids were pretty unhappy about this whole thing and why they sued him because he was claiming this was a hoax. By the way, Mark Randazza, who was involved in the Postle case defending Veronica Brill and also defended Vital Vegas from the Sahara, he defended Alex Jones here, which, as I've mentioned before, then affected the Postle case somewhat because the nonprofit group that was assisting Postle was presumably doing so because they hated Randazza because of his involvement in this uh, Sandy Hook case. So that was an unfortunate uh, connection here, which they really shouldn't have gotten involved in because this is an entirely different matter. And just because they didn't like one of the attorneys involved, that didn't mean they should have uh, done things that went against unrelated parties such as myself but let's get back to alex jones so alex jones is accused of scamming poker players in europe but not this alex jones no 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 no. i'm talking about alex harry jones who i haven't heard of before but i've heard of him now alex harry jones is known in poker as Exhibit A poker and Ascari poker. And apparently a lot of people are owed money from him, including uh, Ape Styles, who's a well-known player. They posted some screenshots as evidence, and they released a YouTube video about whom we're going to play. It's called Outing Poker Scammer Alexander Harry Jones. Hey guys, what's happening? It is Lucas Robinson here, aka Robin Poker, as I'm known in the poker industry. Um, I am just doing this video to basically fill everyone in in the poker industry and let as many people know in the poker industry about a person called Alex Jones. His full name is Alexander Jones, um, aka Exhibit A Poker aka Ascari Poker is his new name, apparently what he's going around um, calling himself. So this video is a long time coming. Um, I've basically got a whole document linked down below. Google documents that I put together, uh, which took me probably about 15 hours at the time, about a year ago. Um, yeah, 
which goes into all detail on this case. But I just wanted to do a YouTube video. Um, I thought it'd be a bit easier to kind of roughly explain why this guy called Alex Jones is a scammer and why I wanted to do this video to basically let as many people know in the poker industry as possible about him. Um, so if you could please do as much as possible to share this video around social media. Um, yeah, do as much as you can to share this round. So this guy never scams anyone in poker again um, because he's still out there scamming people and he's still out, out there and I know for a fact he owes people money as I'll get into. Um, so let's go into the brief, uh, let's get into information about him actually. So the information that I have about him is his full name is Alexander Harry Jones. Um, obviously, like I said, he is, um, in the past, I knew him as Exhibit A Poker that he streamed on and that was his Twitters and Instagrams and his um, PokerStars account and his GG account and his ACR account were all Exhibit A Poker. And now apparently he's um, under the name of Ascari Poker. Um, in the document, there's all links to his Twitters and stuff like that, right? And his Instagrams and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, he is originally from Daventry, um, Northants, UK. Um, he's a big Leicester fan. He then, um, at the time that I kind of knew him, was living in Australia and New Zealand. Um, yeah, and there's actual, I've actually got a, a address for him um, that he actually linked himself um, during all this case on his Discord. So just, yeah, it was public publicly shared in this Discord, which is why I have it. So that's all that's in the document. Um, so let's get into how I got to know him. So I was doing the challenge start of um, January. Um, start of January um, 2021. I then one day get a message from him basically saying how he loves uh, my challenge. He loves my story. And to give me extra motivation to finish my challenge, he wants to offer me a 1K ticket if I complete it into, say, the scoop main event. And, um, and then I think he said something like, um, he would just get his buy-in back and I get to keep the profits, which was like insane because I'd never played a 1K before. It was like, yes, wow, amazing. And, um, so I thought he was a sound guy and, um, he gifted loads of subs, 395 subs in total over the space of five months. And, uh, my dad did say just be careful about him because like, but my dad always said beware of, of, um, strangers bearing gifts. What I thought he wanted out of this is he wanted to start his own stream. So I was like, you know what? I'm getting a bit of an audience behind me. I thought maybe he wants to um, jump ju jump on my audience a bit and then grow his stream quicker, which I thought, you know what? If he's put me in 1Ks and he's and he's a sound lad and he's gifting all these subs, why have, I, why have I not got to trust him? He had no way of me not trusting him anyway. Then I started to be suspicious though because he started asking me for transfers. So he was like, because he's in America, he can't um, basically put on money on ACR. So if I could, um, I don't know, send him money um, via his UK bank account and he could wire me some, etc. Um, so on the document, there's obviously all evidence on case. Okay, so let me stop here in case you don't understand what's going on. This guy who is doing this expose was some kind of streamer who was doing some kind of challenge and was trying to run up a bankroll or something. 
but he wasn't like a high stakes player by any means. So this other person shows up, this Alex Jones, and said, hey, I will put you in to a 1K event. I'm going to put you in and there's going to be no upside for me. If you cash 2K or more, then you keep the profit and just ship the buy-in back. If you if you enter and use cash less than 2K, then you can actually keep the whole thing. I'll actually eat the whole 1K. You can keep the whole thing. So let's say you cash 1,700. You can just keep the whole 1,700. If you cash like 2K, then uh, send me the original 1K back and keep the other 1K for yourself. So that's why he was talking about how that's incredibly generous. He's never seen anything like this before, which is true. I've never seen anything like this before either. It wouldn't make sense. Who would ever offer that? Because there's no upside for them. No matter how nice you are, it's like that's just giving away money. So he said that he received uh, $2,100 for both him and his dad to play a $1,000.50 buy-in on PokerStars. And I guess this challenge he did was actually to play 1,000 hours of uh, poker in 100 days and record it on Twitch. So that's what this this Alex guy claims that he became a fan. The guy who's narrating this is named Lucas Robinson. So he said that he refer he received this money via a bank transfer. So that that's what was going on here. That's about where we are right now. And so he's kind of suspicious and you know even though his dad was given some money, he said his dad warned him that beware of strangers bearing gifts. And that's true. When just a stranger shows up out of nowhere and wants to do a lot of generous things for you, then you do have to sometimes wonder what are they looking for in the other end. However, I can tell you, as someone who does a show myself, that it's more complicated than that when you do a show which provides people free entertainment. Because I have had people do very generous things for me over the years here for running this show and have expected nothing in return. And I've appreciated it very much, but I can say that there have been strangers bearing gifts involving this show that were not looking to scam me or anybody else, but just were doing it as a way to thank me for providing this show to them, which they know doesn't run for profit. So it's very possible this Lucas guy thought, okay, this is just a high-stakes regular who enjoyed his Twitch stream and just gave him this very generous offer. But then he was saying that he's getting uh, a little concerned because this Alex guy kept asking for transfers with stories that he just couldn't get the money online. So, hey, buddy, can you just uh, temporarily loan me this on ACR because I can't get money on there because I'm not a U.S. player, blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, he started getting a little suspicious that, crap, I don't know this guy very well. What if he doesn't pay me back? What if that's the whole point of this generosity at the beginning? Let's go on here. ...of um, him uh, asking me to send the money. One case was um, that really made me suspicious was his mum needed 10K that he couldn't send her. So if I could send him 4K bank account and I'm like, I haven't got the money, so I can't. Um, 
I did lend them money once where I actually sent Ape Styles um, 2.5k and I assume Ape Styles then sent um, him ACR, which then he tr- would wire transfer me um, the 2.5k, which he did end up transferring me, but it did take a while. Um, took me a good couple of weeks of um, asking for it. Then this is where it became fucked up and um, this is when he showed his true colours. Unfortunately, there was a guy called Andy Mack that I passed away in my community. He was a big part of my community. And um, it, at the same, exact same time, unfortunately, I found out my nan was dying of cancer. Um, it was just a fucking, it was just the most horrendous time of my life, to be honest. Um, even just thinking about it now, it's just absolutely crazy. Um, so I basically come up with an idea of like, why don't we try and raise money, do a stream and raise money for Andy's family? He had a 15-year-old daughter and... Um, we thought it'd be a good idea. So um, Exhibit A kind of organised that. He organised a charity tournament with Party Poker because he was affiliated with Universal Poker, um, stuff like that, right? So we raised a load of money um, and um, a fellow streamer, Ben 10 raised some money. I raised some money on my stream. Party Poker donated some money from that tournament and then Universal Poker donated $500 as well, which is sick, so... Um, overall, we basically raised $6,363, um, which 3300 of that was meant to be his donation towards Andy's family. Um, and he was the one that we all sent the money to because he was the only one di- in direct contact with Andy's mum. So you'll be, be, be basically see all that. Um, Uh-oh. We already know where that's going to go. That this guy, Alex Jones, was collecting all the money for this charity drive for this guy in the community who passed away and he was communicating with the guy's mother and he collected all six thousand three hundred dollars and i have a feeling i have a feeling and i haven't watched this video yet you're watching it along with me for the first time i have a feeling that that sixty three hundred dollars did not make it to andy's mother on the document so then um he then said he sent the money to andy's mom which we had no Thing, like no thing not to believe him right um why would he not send money to a family of someone who's just died like there's no way that anyone would try and scam a family like that right um but this is when i became suspicious so it wasn't from that i then became suspicious of he then done a discord message saying he was stopping streaming and um he was gonna start up a stable he then tweeted a couple of days later saying Exactly these words. There are two types of families in life. Nice ones and the ones that call the police on you from the other side of the world at 4am local time, telling them that you're suicidal when in reality you just refuse to send them X amount of dollars for the fourth time. For the fourth time in a week. Guess which one I have. Um, 11th of October, he then announces he's going in the dark for a while. So this is when I became very suspicious and I'm like, if he's owing his, mon- his family money, did he ever send the money to Andy's mum? And and this for me, I, I was never in contact with Andy's mum. I just left it to him because I was mourning my nan and I just thought he was the one that suggested it and I kind of trusted him because, again, like he put me in a 1K, he's gifting all these subs, he was affiliated with Universal Poker, which I thought was, was is a good company, by the way. Um, he then ended up fucking them over as well. Um, so, yeah, so I then... Um, he then sent a Discord message basically saying all his accounts were down, blah, blah, blah. 
then found out he owed people money in his Discord because he basically was selling action through his streaming. Um, and then he also streamed as well, by the way. So I, I was like, why would he show his face if he's, I just, he had everything in his power to be like, right, everyone trusts him, right? Yeah. So if you didn't understand this whole story here, I guess the whole thing started to come apart when this guy Lucas saw that the alleged scammer Alex Jones was tweeting that he had a family member that was uh, calling the police on him and saying he was suicidal and all this other crap just because he wouldn't send that person money. And that made Lucas think, wait a minute, if he's battling with his family members over money, like that's kind of odd here. And I wonder if that also means that he's broke and if it also means that he never sent that 6300 over to Andy's mom. And so that's when things started to come together and he started hearing about him owing money to people in his Discord channel. And yeah, we've seen things like this before. So then found out on his Discord he owes a lot of people money because he sold action in the Venom and he didn't play certain flights. So he sold, say, three or four bullets and he didn't play two bullets. So he owed people money. But then he done a Discord message saying that his accounts were closed, blah, blah, blah. Um... So, yeah, this going into too much detail um, because it's all in the document. But basically what ends up happening was um, I then got a message from um, someone in Universal Poker saying, was I, um, they donated $500, was, and they asked, was I directly con- in contact with Andy's mom to send her it? And I was like, no, Alex sent it directly. So then they basically told me that um, they found out Alex's dodgy and owes people money um so that's why they're worried about that 500 dollars. and that's when i became like wow really worried um i think i think maybe before that um oh no no it was at that point i then was like right i need to contact andy's mom myself so contacted her um sent her a nice message asked her if she received the money which she said she hadn't so i knew at this point that like he was an, a scammer and he was an absolute scumbag because he had said, and I've got evidence that he said that he sent the money. I then messaged my mod, old boy who I trust more than anyone in poker. Basically, just getting advice because I didn't know who to speak to, man. Like even my dad, I was like ashamed to speak to me dad because my dad had told me to to not uh, to keep an eye on on him, and I and I just didn't had any issues with him. I then followed on old boy, and old boy's like, oh my god, I'm like what? An old boy actually, he um lent him $600 and hadn't received it back in over a month and, and still hadn't received it back. So that's when I knew, man. I was like, if he's if he's borrowing money off old boy, he plays micro stakes, by the way. He hasn't got, he plays micro stakes. This is, Alex is meant to be a high stakes reg from the UK. This is what he introduced me as, a high stakes reg from the UK. Um, that- Uh-oh. <laughs> so the high stakes regular actually played micro stakes when they looked him up. Oops. I don't know why they didn't look this up and see this that's what i'm kind of wondering like if somebody came to me and said they were a high stakes regular and i wasn't aware of them i'd say okay and then google them and try to figure out if they really were a high stakes player i wouldn't just take their word for hey i'm a high stakes player like if i'm not doing any financial transactions with them or vouching for them then that's one thing but if i'm going to do any transactions with someone and believing they're a high stakes player i'm going to want to verify that they are 
that's when I knew. So yeah, when I, when I obviously when I put all the evidence together, I then got added in the Discord with a load of people that were owed money by Alex. Um, so my goal now was I didn't want to. This was the most stressful time of my life because I was, like I said, I was mourning my nan. I didn't want to let um, Andy's mum know about all this because I didn't want to stress her out. I knew she was organising Andy's funeral. I, I honestly didn't know what to do. So I got advice off people and stuff. So my strategy was to keep him sweet and not let them know that we're onto him because I really wanted everyone to get their money back because I felt like if I just went straight in and go, you owe everyone money, you're a scammer and accuse him, you'd just go off the face of the earth. So my strategy was very... Keep him friendly, but like try and push it. So I tried to push it, tried to push it, confronted him, um, let him know Karen hasn't received the money, blah, blah, blah. It's all on the document you can see. And, um, and then it went on for a space of like a week or two. I think it felt like a week or two anyway, but it was definitely over a week. He just made excuse after excuse after excuse saying as all his bank accounts are frozen because his family are taking him back to the UK to go in a trial against them because they're suing him for frauds and all mad shit like this. His own family, by the way. Um, and this is why he couldn't pay everyone back. But he ben eventually did pay everyone back. Um, I actually went to the police with the document that I created. This is why I created the documents. Like I said, it's took me about 15 hours and, um, yeah, the day I went, the day after I went to the police, the police were like, there's not much we can do because it's actually not that much money. Um, but, but they did look into it and then I obviously contacted them. Uh, I'm surprised they said that. I would think this would be enough. Apparently the, uh, money is not as much as it sounds like to Andy's mom because some of that money was money he had pledged himself. I'm talking about Alex Jones. So you could say that if Alex Jones pledged to send such and such to Andy's mom and then just thought better of it and didn't send it because he changed his mind, that's a dick thing to do, but it's not something that's a crime. It would be a crime to take other people's money that was to be sent to Andy's mom for Andy's funeral and just pocket it. So of this $6,300 about 3300 of it was something that Alex Jones apparently promised himself. So you can say the amount stolen there was really about 3000 However, that's still enough for the police to take action. I'll admit this is not going to get their interest as much as like a million dollars scam. But it's not like you're going to them over a $30 scam and they go, we're not going to investigate this, it's too small. I would think 3000 is enough to investigate it. Often these poker scams don't get investigated because, one, they're kind of too complicated for the police to really understand with a lot of these gambling elements and staking and all that. Like To you, it may seem pretty straightforward. To the police, they don't really know that world. So unless it's something huge, they don't really want to learn it. And also... Because there's a lot of he said, she said in there, and even though we can listen to all this and determine who's probably right, the police, they don't want to really get involved with other than just super, super clear evidence to just like outright theft. And it's too bad. And believe me, 
I wish this was different, and I wish the police would take a little more time. And, of course, this is a different country he's talking about, but really this is true worldwide, that the police just don't take enough interest in these poker and gambling scams when they really should. And in a lot of these cases, it could be a slam-dunk criminal conviction. And in many of these cases, it's for money a lot more than this. But even 3000 I think, is enough to be worth investigating. But I guess over there they said no. Um, basically, and said that he paid the money back. Um, before he paid the money back, actually, so all these excuses, you can see in the document, he gives so many excuses. He actually said he was going to um, sell and get a refund for his fiance's engagement ring for about $24,000, wherever it was. Um, so I think in total, we figured out that in total, he owed people, let me just see. He owed people in total, including the 3,300 donation that he promised to give Karen was $19,000 overall. Um, but he ended up did paying all that back. So this is the reason why I didn't go public because for me, he, um, he paid everyone back and I I rarely wanted to go public because I wanted to let people warn people about him in case he ever did this again. But my thing was he paid everyone back, so I can't really come out and, and say that he's a scammer when he's actually paid everyone back. So what I did was I DM'd as many poker streamers as possible um, and basically warned them about him so he couldn't do this to any other communities again because this was a strategy, right, was to... Go in a, and, and I figured out this is why he, he was so nice and, and, um, donated all this money and stuff. His strategy was to get you to trust him of donating this money. It's like, cause what, what other high stakes regs is going to a random kids who's playing micro stakes and donate them a thousand dollar ticket? Like, it's just not, it's just, it's mad. Donate all these subs, um, give them a thousand dollar ticket. And because the thing is as well, this money's donating. How do we know he's then not? stealing that from other people to do this right this is it, and what, what when the tinder swindler it's mad because this is like the poker tinder swindler when the tinder swindler come out which is a lot of people have watched it reminded me so much of this because what the strategy is is they get money off other people to then use against other people to then get more money off other people so this is again why i'm sharing this publicly because i want to try and try and basically warn as many people as possible and try and it, maybe people can come out and, and and see how many people are actually owed money by Alex. We, we don't know how many people, how much people are owed money by Alex, um, which will get me onto the next update. So I basically sent him one last message, which you can see in the document saying I'm blocking him, blah, blah, blah. Um, I then just thought I'd never hear of him again. He'd just go off the face of the earth and didn't hear anything from him. No one heard anything from him. Um, like I said, I warned everyone by via DM as much as I could, done a message in my Discord, and then just didn't say anything about it, to be honest. But then, yesterday, so I then get a message off Baruzi, who is a well-known poker streamer, and someone I really trust that he's just he's just well-known in the poker industry for, for just being a top guy. Um, he basically messages saying, how close were you were, how close were you with Exhibit? I know he did some shady stuff, and I think he's back under a new name trying to scam Please keep this to yourself. So, um, yeah, this <laughs> then, I then start having a conversation with Baruzzi where we basically find out he's, he's working under a new name called Scary Poker. Okay, so let me stop right here for a few things. First of all, Trader Ruski, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, have you heard what's going on here, what I'm playing with this uh, Englishman talking? 
I heard just kind of half the, the half of it, so I'm a little in the dark, but I'm continuing to figure it out. I'm assuming it's not the Alex Jones. The uh, no, that, the, then it would be a bigger topic here. It wouldn't be towards the end of the show, but yeah, this looks like one of these scams where uh, because the money wasn't huge, once the jig was up here this guy probably realized it was to his advantage to pay this money back and uh, get everybody to go away and not aggressively come at him and uh, expose him everywhere. So that's what's funny. In in this scam that this particular guy dealt with, uh, people got made whole, but then they found that uh, he changed names to this Ascari poker from before that he was uh, exhibit a poker. So, and then he was basically running the same thing. And this really frustrated this guy, Lucas, because he just dealt with all this. He felt that they kind of got their money back and ran him off. And all he did was change names and tried to run this again. By the way, he mentioned about trying to return the engagement ring that he had bought for his fiance for $27,000. In these documents that this guy posted, it was kind of hard to find the interesting stuff to talk about because, believe it or not, the documents he provided, it was was 102 pages, which is insane. This guy's got to learn how to take the bullshit out and just put in the important stuff and then maybe post the 102-page document for people who really want completeness. But this isn't a big enough scandal to where anyone wants to read 102 pages. At least I don't. Now, a lot of this are pictures and screenshots, but there's no way I'm freaking reading 102 pages about this. Anyway, I was skimming through it, and I found the Tiffany & Company refund, which I'm trying to determine if it's real or not. But the date of this seems to be before all this trouble occurred here. This was... uh, it says uh, 17 August 2021, and it says, Dear Alex, this is from a person named uh, Tessa Douglas, who supposedly sent this to him. Dear Alex, please find below confirmation that we have received your Platinum 1.11 Emerald Cut Novo SDR on the 15th of August and have approved a refund of a value 26700 Due to unforeseen limitations on our merchant terminal, we were unable to successfully transfer the funds to your account today. In saying this, a refund of 26.7 will take place tomorrow morning, either directly onto your bank card or via wire transfer. We apologize for the inconvenience of the merchant terminal limitations and hope to have the funds tomorrow morning. Kind regards Tessa, and it has all her information there. So he says in this document... As you can read, here are his excuses for this day. He now states he signed papers with the bank. However, this won't be fully active until tomorrow. So in the meantime, has refunded his fiance's engagement ring and will receive the 26700 tomorrow. Let's see what supposedly happened with that. And then he showed a receipt for the refund that went back to his visa. And then I, I guess... I'm not sure if he... Oh, I see. So he did actually pay. That, that actually was... Uh, what made him finally send Andy's mom the money. So I guess I guess this was real, the whole thing about the ring. I guess that's how he got out of this, was by returning his fiance's ring. That wasn't totally clear from the video, but uh, that's apparently what happened. 
I was about to say before seeing that that was the final thing that happened before Andy's mom got the money that was pledged to her that this looked very authentic and I would have been very surprised if this was phony and I'll tell you the reason I'll tell you what really jumped out at me why this is so authentic aside from like all the contact information of this Tessa Douglas from Tiffany who emailed him if a scammer is going to falsify this uh, money coming to them they're never going to put in this whole convoluted thing about uh, due to unforeseen limitations on our merchant terminal we're unable to transfer the funds but uh, it'll take place tomorrow blah, blah, blah. like you may say well that could stall a day that, that's not what they would do because you don't need to give that whole story there what, what a scammer would write there would be uh, we will process a fully a full refund of 26700 to your account tomorrow morning. It wouldn't have all this nonsense about why it can't happen today because you wouldn't even necessarily expect it would happen today. It'd be perfectly reasonable if you shipped back a ring to Tiffany and company to get a refund and they said, okay, we've received it. We're going to send it to you tomorrow. Like nobody would call up and say, what? It's not today? It's tomorrow? That's unacceptable. No one's going to say that. So they're saying that there for completeness and so, so the customer fully understands what's going on, which is great, but a scammer wouldn't even think of writing that. And the whole thing just looked very real to me. So I look for little details like this, and it actually is a lot harder than you think to produce a phony email like that that will come off as authentic because uh, when you're trying to create something phony, it's just it's just very hard to think of that type of language to put in. Like even if someone asked me to create a phony email like this, I wouldn't think of writing something like that. Because I would think it's just pretty straightforward that the money would come back the next day. So I wouldn't even think of writing like why we can't send it today. And just the whole way the, the language was put there, it just really looked like kind of corporate speak. It just really rung to me as true. And it was. It looks like they really sent him back the 26-7. That is probably what resolved that. But then he apparently moved on to this other screen name and started the whole thing all over again. At least Andy's mom got the money. But uh, still. Um, I laugh, by the way, because this is fucking crazy. And I thought this was I was never going to be hair from this guy again on his name. And I, to be honest, it actually makes me physically sick bringing all this information back because, like I said, it was the one of the worst f- months of my life when all this was happening. And, oh, I just can't believe he's back scamming people. And I'm so now happy that I finally get to come out publicly and share all this information with you guys because my 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 aim is that this scumbag never scams another person in the poker industry ever again. And this is what I'm saying. Please, if you can, just share this video. Share this document with as many people in the poker industry as you can. Um, so then- yeah, I'm going to suggest to this guy, because I, I admire what he's trying to do. His heart's in the right place, especially because the money that was scammed when he was involved uh, was recovered, thanks to this ring. But he is... I understand he was so sickened by the whole thing as it was happening... And it was the worst time of his life, and it humiliated him in front of his dad. And then 
he finally gets that resolved. <laughs> he finds out the guy's under a new account doing the same thing, and he's like, oh my god, I, I, I can't stay silent anymore. So great. And I encourage this being publicized, and that's why I'm putting this on this show, even though I don't even know this guy. I don't know anyone involved here. They're not even in my country. But you don't put out a 102-page document. Like, even in a major scandal, it's going to be hard to get people to read a 102-page document. It's just people don't have that high level of interest. To you, it's very interesting, because it happened to you. I could write a 100-page document about people who screwed me over. I know no one's going to want to read that. So what my suggestion to you is, is, is that you condense this to the main points and then also make the 102-page document available for completeness if people want to read more. The problem with the 102-page document is people are going to go, oh my God, 102 pages? I'm not, I'm not reading that. And Bruzy basically says that Bruzy's got obviously more information on this than me. This is for coming from him. He basically finds out that he... Um, Alex, um, he knows for a fact that Alex owes two people 1K each. Um, and then he basically does, um, he basically says we need to act fast going publicly because he's basically, he was two or three days away from scamming other people for five to 10K. Again, don't really know the details behind that, but I'm sure Bruzy can, can tell people if they want more information on that. Bruzy then shares a Twitter thread, which obviously I think people potentially have seen, um, which I have put into the document. Ape Styles then um, comments basically saying that he's owed $4,500. So the story behind Ape Styles is um, I warn all these streamers about, about him and Ape Styles actually messaged me back and says, I'm willing to give him a second chance because I feel like he's probably got a bit of an issue in terms of maybe a gambling issue or whatever. And Ape Stars had had help in the past with this type of stuff. And um, so Ape Stars is just an amazing person, to be honest. So he was willing to give him a second chance, which I was like, you know what? I respect you trying to give him a second chance, but I was like, I'm just really warning you that he's a scumbag because he's tried to scam the family of someone who's died you know what i mean he he, he did pretend you know I, i'm surprised at this too if this story is accurate and i have no reason to believe it's not ape styles has been around a long time and i'm shocked that ape styles after hearing the story and seeing so many people like this in the poker world would then say you know what let's give this guy another chance he probably just has a gambling problem well yeah but so do most scammers in the poker world that's how it starts. They attempt to gamble. They lose. They need to keep in action. They don't want to get a job, and they scam. These people aren't necessarily irredeemable, but you don't keep feeding the money. Ape Sal's real name, by the way, is John Van Fleet, and he's been very successful in poker, and he's written books, and it's nice that he wanted to give this guy another chance, but it's also foolhardy to do if this story is accurate could have got away from it if we didn't chase him up for so long um but then yeah i basically didn't didn't speak to ape stars about that until until now um so i dm'd ape stars about this and i confirmed via dm from him that he is owed four thousand five hundred dollars from alex and the last thing he heard from him was that alex was in a motorcycle accident or whatever and this is why he's now not heard of him for months and months and months so yeah um so we now know officially that he is that Ape Stars is owed four thousand five hundred and 
I'm, I'm, who, who knows how many more people in the poker industry um, is owed money by Alex? We, we just don't know, do we? So this is exactly the reason why I'm um, sharing this information. In the Google document as well, I actually shared information that we potentially found that he is um, was using the dark web to sell fake bank accounts and stolen goods. That's not officially confirmed whether it's him, but it was an account called Exhibit A. And it has the exact same backstory um, and name in terms of he was in the armed forces for five years and blah, blah, blah. But you can see all that information on the documents. I wonder if he really was in the armed forces for five years. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of scammer tropes in this whole thing. Uh, scammers will often like to claim they had a military background. Scammers will often like to claim they got in some kind of accident or have some kind of medical problem when they're called out for owing money. Scammers will like to use a religious angle if it's going to work. It's not being used here because that doesn't work well on poker players because most poker players aren't that religious. But in spaces where that does work, scammers love to claim that they're religious Christians or whatever it might be so they can try to get the trust of their potential victims. So, hearing a lot of things that sound familiar. Um. And yeah, that like I said, all, all the information's on there. There's pictures, there's images, there's an image on here that I maybe will will put on the screen. If not, there will be um, obviously images on them in in the Google document. Um, yeah, and like I said, his full name is Alexander Harry Jones. Goes under the name has gone under the name of Exhibit A Poker and Ascari Poker. And um, yeah, I basically just wanted to do a YouTube video on explaining this and, and explaining um, about this person so this never happens again. Okay, that's nice. That's something I like to see. I hope this happens more often. I don't know any people involved. This is a pretty young guy. I don't know how old he is, but he's in his 20s. And you see how this devastated him. He was just a low-stakes player who was streaming a ton on Twitch and gets approached by the supposed high-stakes player who wants to put him in 1K events and actually sends him money and sends him money on behalf or um, for his dad to play too. And then then they he helps organize this whole fundraiser for this guy Andy Mack after he died so his mom could afford his funeral. And then the mom doesn't get the money. And it was only because of pressure from all these people that... Uh, that ring was sold and then the money appeared probably because he didn't want to be exposed. So I'm glad he's being called out. I, I am going to message him. I've seen him on Twitter, the guy who did this whole thing. And I'm going to suggest that he modify that document. because It's a pretty obnoxious document. And this comes from a guy who does eight hour long radio shows. Even I would be, uh, overwhelmed by this i was overwhelmed by this i'm just scrolling and scrolling go, oh my god how long is it go 102 pages Ugh. everybody has a limit and that far exceeded mine but otherwise good job all right so moving on there are some new theories though nothing's been proven about who was in that barrel that was found in Lake Mead because of the very low water level. And these theories are quite interesting. 
and I'd like to share them with you. These were published in the Las Vegas Review Journal. Though what they did is they kind of told the whole story, and then they went over the different theories and what they believe to be the case. But there's nothing that's been verified yet. It may eventually be verified. The police are working on it, even though this is a very old case. Because clearly whoever was murdered there, it happened like early 80s at latest. So, as I've talked about before, with Lake Mead's level being as low as it is, there are some things happening that we haven't seen. Number one, some intake valves that take water out of the lake are now visible. So the water level is actually below some of the intake valves, which is kind of weird to see. Number two, if it loses too much water beyond what's happening right now, it could actually threaten the hydroelectric power being generated by the dam. We're not there yet, but it could happen. So you don't want it to get below that level. That would really be a disaster because then uh, the dam will not work as intended in the first place and it won't be generating power. We've, We've talked about this when we discussed what was happening to Lake Mead. Something that was also assumed but not yet occurred was that bodies would be found in the lake, bodies that were dumped a long time ago when the lake was much, much higher. In fact, at one point, 150 feet higher than it is presently. But that the lake has gotten so low that some of these bodies may appear. Well, it finally happened. There's actually been two bodies that have been found, but the One that's the most interesting is the one that was found first, which was a body actually in a barrel. And that was the exact way that bodies were often disposed of by the mob in Vegas when they would murder people and stuff them in a barrel. And the person who was murdered was also shot in the head that was found from the corpse that was in the barrel, even though it was very old, they were able to determine this. So someone was shot in the head point blank and stuffed in the barrel and dumped in Lake Mead. That's for sure. So it really, really looks like a mob hit based upon that information. But it's not just that which makes it look like the mob hit. It's also the time period. Now, when I heard a body was found in the lake... I thought, okay, I bet it was late 70s or early 80s. And I, I felt so proud of myself when I when I saw that's what they assumed it was based upon the clothing that was found on the person. The person was still wearing clothes. They weren't naked. So the clothes, I guess, were preserved well enough in that barrel to where they were able to determine not only the time period of the clothes, but that they were actually bought at Kmart. They determined these clothes were sold at Kmart in the mid-70s. But that doesn't mean the murder happened in the mid-70s because... You know, you, you, you have clothes that you wear years after you bought them. So it's very possible this person bought it in, say, 1975, 1976, and was murdered in 1982. But the reason I thought it was the 70s or 80s was that that was the time that the mob was most violent in Las Vegas. The mob had a tremendous presence in Vegas then. And there were a lot of murders happening during that time. It was a very violent time in Vegas, especially related to mob-related murders. 
this is not a factor anymore. The mob got pushed out three decades ago when the corporations took over and the mob's influence was pretty much gone. But in the 70s and 80s, boy, was this violence taking off. And the movie Casino, which came out in 1995, even though they changed the names of the characters involved, they were all based upon real people. And the one that was played by Joe Pesci was the real-life mob enforcer known as Tony the Ant, who was whose real name was uh, Tony... Spilotro. And the name of the character that was supposed to be similar to him in Casino was Nicky Santoro. But it definitely was based on Spilotro. And Spilotro is considered a suspect in 20, in 20 mob-related murders from just 1975 to 1977 alone. But he just kept getting out of being convicted for them. He also had a pretty specific M.O. where he had a twenty-two caliber pistol and it was equipped with a suppressor and then he would kill his victims point-blank to their head. In fact, this was popular because it was found that uh, if they were shot this way that it would prevent as much of a mess from happening. That the splatter of blood and brains everywhere wouldn't happen shooting at a certain place in the head point blank. So it's a lot easier to clean up the scene. Now, there's actually a, an interesting history as to what led up to all of this. The big uptick in violence in the 70s and 80s in Las Vegas related to mob activity. The mob was there for quite some time before that. The mob came to Vegas in the 1940s. However, unlike in other cities in the 40s, where the mob was very uh, turf-hungry, and uh, the different mobs, it wasn't just one mob, the different organized crime families would not share turf. So different cities would become the property of different organized crime families, and they would... uh, stay out of each other's way, and if they didn't, then there would be wars between the organized crime families. Las Vegas, given that it was a newly developing city, it wasn't like something such as Chicago or New York, it's because Las Vegas was just developing, they tried a new concept. Las Vegas was known as an open city, meaning that organized crime could show up there and just all do their own thing. Nobody had turf. It was just open for any organized crime family to go in there and do their own thing and not interfere with each other. It's kind of an organized crime experiment. However, in the uh, 1970s, the Chicago outfit, which had been uh, in Chicago for uh, quite some time in other parts of Illinois for at least 50 years. They uh, established a dominant presence in Las Vegas. And they had a corporation, which was really the mob, called Argent Corp, 
and they owned the Stardust, the Hacienda, and the Marina, as well as the Fremont downtown. In the movie Casino, you may remember a character played by Robert De Niro named Sam Ace Rothstein. That was actually supposed to be Frank Lefty Rosenthal. And he was hired to run the Stardust, which was, at the time, the best hotel that Argent owned. And uh, then what happened was that law enforcement decided they're going to scrutinize these casinos more. There was a lot of skimming going on. They were aware of the mob's control of these casinos. The FBI and local law enforcement, everybody was aware of this open city situation, and they were starting to get tired of it. So they started to look at these casinos more closely. What happened was that uh, in the 70s, as there were already starting to be some corporate purchases of Vegas hotels and resorts, uh, there started to become more street crime because the mob's total control, and I say the mob, I mean all of organized crime, but uh, especially this, uh, this Argent Corporation, their total control of the city was uh, starting to wane. Not like it did in the 90s when it abruptly rained, when the corporations uh, ended up fully taking over. But some of the fringe members of the mob were losing their positions, and they went out on their own. So that's when there was this big increase of uh, thieves and hustlers and uh, loan sharks and burglars, arsonists, gambling cheaters, bookies, pimps, just all that, drug dealers. A lot of that were former people who worked for the mob that now had to strike out on their own. So this really caused a big increase in street crime in the 70s. Then the mob realized that this became a big problem. So prior to the 70s, the mob had enough control of everybody to where uh, things were a lot more peaceful. But everything fell apart in the early 70s. All this peace fell apart when uh, all these different uh, low-level criminals started operating and, and causing trouble in the city. So the mob decided that they needed to put a stop to all this. So anyone they thought was... Uh, causing a problem, started disappearing. Between 1971 and 1974, Las Vegas saw more mob-related killings than the previous 25 years combined in just four years. So that was the start of just the massive mob violence, which began to try to control what was going on in, in Vegas of people who were formerly affili affiliated with the mob, with which uh, struck out on their own. So this began a long streak of uh, a lot of violence taking place in Vegas, whereas before that, because of this whole open city concept, the mob was really avoiding killing anyone. They didn't want to rattle any cages. They didn't want to get law enforcement's attention. 
They didn't want to cause any kind of uh, wars between the families. They they really tried to stay out of each other's way as much as possible. I'm not saying there was no violence, but there was, it was a lot less than in the 70s when all hell kind of broke loose and the whole open city thing fell apart. And this continued all the way through the 80s and then finally stopped just because the corporations completely pushed out the mob in the early 90s. That was when that finally ended. But let's get back to this barrel that was found in Lake Mead. So it it seems pretty likely, it seems very likely this was a mob hit. But who was it? Who did it and who was the victim? So there's been a lot of research since then to try to figure out, number one, who disappeared at the time, who was known to associate with organized crime, what were some unsolved murders or disappearances, I guess it has to be disappearances because if it was a murder, they'd find the body and it wouldn't be that person. But there was an unsolved disappearance around that time and was that person associated with the mob? And if so, how likely was it that they were the victim in the barrel? And three names have come up. So here's the first one. George Vandermark, also known as Jay, vanished in 1976. So he was hired by Lefty Rosenthal in 1974 to skim, and he skimmed between seven million and fifteen million worth of coins out of the slot machine—actual coins—in the, in the 1974. And this continued for two years until the Nevada Gaming Control Board figured out what was going on in 1976. So they subpoenaed Van as a witness to the skimming. Well, he didn't exactly want to testify against Lefty Rosenthal and the mob. So he booked it not just out of town, but out of the country. He went to Mazatlan, Mexico. And there's even a rumor that he went from there to Costa Rica to make it more difficult to find him. Not only that, not only was the mob worried that he could possibly testify against them, but they also looked into it and figured out that he ripped off almost half of what he was skimming that they believed that he pocketed uh, at least $3 million for himself during the skimming operation. So they were really pissed off at him. His son, whose name was Jeff, was actually cooperating with the Nevada Gaming Control Board and was trying to convince his dad to come back to the U.S. and testify against the mob, probably get a new identity and all that. Of course, there's still plenty of risk in doing that. And he actually did come back to the U.S. In September 1976, Vandermark was seen at a Phoenix hotel, a nice hotel. And then he disappeared. So, what happened to George J. Vandermark? We don't know. He disappeared. Now, there were two hitmen who took credit for... uh, Actually, it was, it was not a hitman. A, uh, a different hitman claimed he knew what happened to Vandermark. This was a hitman named Nick Calabrese, who eventually worked with the government, and he said that the Chicago outfit had him killed at that hotel in Phoenix, which was called the Arizona Manor, and it was actually owned by someone who was associated with the outfit named Emil Vashi. 
I don't know if he knew that when he went to go stay there. But that they sent uh, hitmen John Fecarada and Jimmy LaPietra to meet up with and kill George Vandermark. I'm not sure why he uh, met up with them if he was running from them. But uh, the claim from this Calabrese guy was that they killed Vandermark at this hotel and then they buried his body in the Arizona desert and it's never been found. This claim is mostly believed to be true. The actual hitman who supposedly did it did not admit to this, but this guy, Nick Calabrese, claimed this is what happened, and they thought this was probably correct. As a weird postscript to the Vandermark story, in April 1977, not too long after that, we're talking about uh, seven months later, Jeff Vandermark, his son, was murdered at his Las Vegas apartment. So it looked like the mob rubbed him out, too. Remember, he was helping the Nevada Gaming Commission to try to get his dad to come back and testify against them. But Las Vegas police claimed that this was a robbery and had nothing to do with the situation with the mob. Now, maybe that wasn't correct, but they were saying that they concluded with certainty that this was a robbery. In fact, they arrested someone who is not mob-affiliated. I guess it was possible there was some police corruption and they arrested someone who they pinned it on, but that was the claim at the time that it was a coincidental murder and it had nothing to do with the mob. However, in case this guy, Nick Calabrese, wasn't telling the truth or he just uh, heard an incorrect story, it is possible Vandermark was the guy in the barrel because it did match the time period. However, since he was last seen in Phoenix, they would have had to bring the body all the way from Phoenix to Lake Mead, which is a pretty long drive. We're talking about 250 plus miles. And that's kind of unlikely. He probably was not the one in the barrel. Second one, William Crespo. William Crespo was arrested in 1982 when he was fl- flying from uh, Miami to Las Vegas with $400,000 of cocaine, which is worth close to a million today. He was offered an immunity deal to be a federal informant and that they would change his identity as long as he would testify about this drug ring. The U.S. government spent $13,000 to relocate him, and they were going to have him appear at trial in mid-1983. They indicted 10 defendants, thanks to his information he gave. One of them was someone who was involved with this Argent Corporation, this uh, corporation that was really the Chicago outfit. And this is a guy named Victor Greger, who is an executive of Argent. So he was one of the people who was indicted. William Crespo never appeared at the trial. He vanished in June 1983, and they had to drop the charges against the seven defendants who pled not guilty. Three of them pled guilty, so they were still able to get them, but the three who pled not guilty all got off scot-free because Crespo disappeared. Could Crespo be the one 
in the barrel? Possible. But that's not the most likely. Most likely is Johnny Pappas. Now, not the PPA head. That's just John Pappas. I'm talking about Johnny Pappas. Johnny Pappas actually had a boat on Lake Mead. Hmm. Las Vegas journalist John Smith actually knew John Pappas as a child. And he said, Johnny Pappas, whose real name was uh, Johnny Panagostikos, P-A-N-A-G-I-O-T-A-K-O-S, Panagiotakos, I guess. He was an employee at various casinos, such as Castaways, the Las Vegas Hilton, and Caesars Palace. And then he had moved over to manage the Echo Bay Resort for the Argent Corporation, which was uh, at Lake Mead. It doesn't exist anymore, by the way, but it was a hotel and and boat launch. And Pappas also had a boat there, as I mentioned. He vanished on August 18th, 1976. He told his wife he was going to JoJo's Restaurant, which is near downtown Las Vegas, to meet someone interested in buying his boat. Four days later, after he vanished, his car was found in the Circus Circus parking lot, and he was never found. So it is believed that Pappas might have been lured to sell his boat and to uh, meet up with these mob hitmen who wanted to kill him. And it was confirmed that he did, he did have some mob connections. So he wasn't just some random that they killed. He not only was managing this Echo Bay Resort, but he, he had other connections that if they wanted to get rid of him, that someone could have feigned interest in buying his boat and he could have met them at the restaurant and he could have even gone with them to uh, see the boat and then they could have uh, killed him there and then they could have taken his own boat right there and dumped him. So it would have been pretty easy for them to do. There wouldn't be a lot of transporting the dead body. They could have all willingly gone there to Lake Mead and gotten on his boat, killed him, and brought the barrel on board and then uh, taken his boat out and dumped his body and brought his boat back. So this is still being looked into, but that is the leading guess right now. That is this Johnny Pappas. The second most likely is this William Crespo, and the third most likely is this George Vandermark of possible people. Now, it could be none of these three, but I'm saying as far as names that it's believed to be, those are the three leading names right now, with Pappas being the leading one. The one who did it is thought to be most likely Tony Spilotro. And that is because of the way the victim was killed, whoever it was. That it was a point-blank shot to the head from a twenty-two, And that was exactly what Spilotro did. 
And while other hitmen eventually did this as well, he was the one most known for it. And that he was a very prolific killer in the 1970s and 1980s until he was murdered himself. He was repeatedly arrested, but he was never convicted of murder. And the Chicago outfit just got tired of him. They just thought he was a liability, that he was a pain in the ass. They thought he was too high profile. They, they, they didn't like the way he operated as a hitman. They, they needed a hitman who was more low-key, and he was the opposite of that. So what they did was they beat him and his brother Michael to death in Chicago in 1986, and then they buried them in an Indiana cornfield. So that was the end of uh, Tony Spilotro. Now, how will we get the final answer on this? The Clark County Coroner's Office is working on this, and they are going to examine DNA in the same way that they've been examining DNA in recent years to determine the killers and rapists of cold cases in the past. You know, all these people who've been arrested for their crimes, who are now old men, that murdered and or raped people in the 70s or the 80s, and that they've been able to take this DNA that's been well-preserved since then and go through family trees from sites like 23andMe and then able to work from there and figure out who it has to be or come down to a, a few likely suspects and get their DNA somehow and then arrest them when they get the right one. And yeah, the way they do that in those cases is they secretly follow the person and wait till they discard something that would have their DNA on it. So like if they use a napkin when they're at a fast food place and they discard it, anything like that, anything that would have someone's DNA on it, or they go through their trash and find something, they just, they find sneaky ways to do it. The The thing where they discard something in public is the most legal way to do it, because when someone discards something in a public trash can, then it is legal for the police to take it at that point without a warrant and analyze it. So that when they suspect one of these guys, that's often what they will do first before arresting them and before letting these guys know they're on to them because these guys believe for decades that they got away with murder. Anyway, in this case, they're trying to locate not the killer necessarily, but they'd like to find that out too, but they're trying to find out who is the victim. So there's no one to arrest here as far as the victim. They're trying to find out who's dead here. But they, they can do something similar by finding the DNA and seeing who they're related to and then say, okay, well, who went missing in Vegas during those years? So let's say they look at this DNA and see it's someone related to Johnny Pappas. Well, then they know it was Johnny Pappas. They can't say 100%, but it's very, very likely at that point if they already think it was probably him or he's one of the possibilities. And then the DNA, it turns out it's a relative uh, they find through one of these sites that a relative matches the DNA as a fam familial relationship, then that makes it fairly certain that's who it is. So they may do that. They probably will do that. But they still say it may take 
as long as a year to find this out. So in the meantime, local journalists are kind of just trying to figure it out. So a pretty interesting piece in the Review Journal about this. This was on May 19th. And the, I guess, actually, this was an article that was from the Daily Mail that the Review Journal got permission to use. Either way, pretty interesting. I don't think they'll be able to arrest anyone for this because I, I believe that whoever committed the murder, first of all, if it's Tony the Ant, he's been dead for 36 years. And second, even if it wasn't a hitman who was later murdered, there's a good chance he just died of old age because it's so long ago. So, Drop, do they know who the other... You said there's two bodies, right? Do they know who the other one is? Or is it two out of the three? No, I haven't heard anything about the other one. I just heard one was found. I haven't heard... The other one wasn't in a barrel, so that one really could be anything. That one could have been just a body that was dumped that had a as a murder, nothing to do with the mob. This one got a lot more attention because of the barrel. Right, and it's probably much more well-preserved in the barrel, so they may be able to get evidence they couldn't just for the one that wasn't. Yeah. I haven't heard much about the second one other than there was a second one, but it was not a barrel. And they assume there will be more that will be found. And it is assumed that when this body was dumped, that it was dumped into more than 100 feet of water. So the barrel went down 100 feet. (laughs) They probably figured the only way it's going to be found is if someone goes fishing or something and and runs into it with their fishing line or something along those lines. I'm sure they would have never guessed back whenever this happened that the lake would go so dry that it would actually appear that way. But that's what happened. So this will be interesting to find out, but don't expect any arrests because I really, really, really doubt that the hitman is still alive, no matter who it was. Especially if this was a hit in 1976, because if it was in 76, we're talking about 46 years ago. So even a hitman who was like 35 at the time would now be over 80. And a lot of those hitmen eventually get hit themselves as we saw with uh, Tony Spilotro. So I wouldn't count on the murderer being alive or even the person ordering the murders being alive. I think there's not going to be any justice to be had here. I think it's just information. A Japanese man has done something pretty bad, like a major degenerate. He hasn't committed any acts of violence, But I would say he has misused some funds because a man in Japan gambled away an entire town's COVID relief money. So the money that was supposed to go to helping people in the town cope with the financial impact of COVID, uh, that money is all gone. And it went to the casinos. So here's what happened. A 24-year-old man received $360,000 worth of funds due to a, quote, clerical error. And he noticed this. He wasn't supposed to get this money. And then he went and uh, loaded it onto online casinos and chunked it off. Didn't even do this in brick-and-mortar casinos. I don't know if they have brick-and-mortar casinos in Japan. I don't think they do. He went to online casinos and chunked it all off. 
the money was actually supposed to be for 460 low-income households in Abu, Japan, and that 3,300 people, which is a lot of people for 460 households, were supposed to receive $780 each, but somehow all of it went to one guy. It's a pretty bad error. So somehow the system just coughed it all up to one person. <laughs> and he's like, oh, sweet, $360,000. Okay, let's load this onto online casinos. That's a good idea. No way I'll get scammed there. So I don't know if he got scammed, but online casinos are never a good thing to use because they're not regulated and they can do whatever they want and you can't really prove anything and you can't do anything about it if you do prove it. Now, at least this wasn't uh, massive money. I would think the government could just eat this. I mean, of course, they can charge this guy, but it's not like this is money that's unrecoverable for a big government like Japan. But apparently this is a pretty big scandal, I guess because they screwed up this badly and because this guy went and took all the money and chunked it off. He said he wants to pay it all back. He said he'll pay it back little by little, but good luck with that. I mean, who's going to hire him? He's only 24. So, like, can you really see this guy getting a high-paying job after he did this? Well, if they give him a bankroll, maybe he could uh, get it back. Yeah, I can load it into bed online, play that same blackjack tournament I did. And the town sued him for actually more than what he chunked off. He chunked off uh, 46.3 million yen, which is actually a little short of $360,000. But they're suing him for 51 million yen because it includes legal fees. They said, we want to trace the flow of the money in the lawsuit. I want him to return it if it's not too late. Yeah, good luck with that. I wonder which casino he lost it at. Maybe it was bet online. On April 6th, what happened was that instead of transferring 100,000 yen, which, remember, was uh, not that much because uh, a yen is worth less than a penny, but uh, it was worth about $780, was supposed to go to uh, each of these residents, and uh, a town official accidentally did a single transfer to the first person on the list, which was him. Ten days later, it was just about all gone. There was only about... Uh, 600 bucks left in the account 10 days later. That was all they recovered. Now, I will say that it's possible that he did not know that this was what the money was for. Maybe the money just appeared there, and he's like, okay, sweet, I got this gigantic transfer. I'm going to gamble it away. Uh, not away, but maybe he wanted want to gamble it. And it's possible he did know what it was for, but just thought that he got a mass amount of money and everybody else would get their money too. Maybe he thought that somehow they just overpaid him big time, but not that he's taking it from everybody else. Because even I wouldn't think that. Let's say they were going to be distributing money to my small town for COVID relief and I get this massive sum of money dropped in my account. Well, I know there was a mistake and I know I'm not entitled to it and I know it's a crime to take at that point. However... I would not think, well, okay, I bet everybody's money ended up in my account and nobody else got anything. Especially because I doubt he knew he was first on the list. It's probably just random. So 
I would just think he'd believe it was a bank error of some sort. And that it's not going to affect anybody else except for the government there that was providing the money. So that makes it less egregious. This just makes it look like someone taking money that wasn't supposed to be theirs and was accidentally given to them and chunking it off rather than someone heartlessly taking everybody's COVID relief funds. So I think this is being exaggerated a bit of how terrible this was. But apparently in Japan, everyone's really pissed. I wonder what happened to the guy who accidentally did this. <laughs> At the very least, he was fired, but I wonder if he can be charged in any way for the negligence of this whole matter. I still want to know which casino it was, though. It's really where my curiosity is. And what was he playing? Was he just doing this like online slots? I, I can't stress how bad online casino games are on these unregulated casinos. They're really, really bad. All right, finally, we're at the end here. Finishing off. I want to talk about monkeypox. Is monkeypox the new disease to worry about? Should Omicron take a back seat to monkeypox? Monkeypox has some similarities to smallpox. And there was once a vaccine for smallpox. And the vaccine ended completely in 1972. Now, I was born in 1972. So I wondered if perhaps I got the smallpox vaccine, but I didn't know much about it. But I learned about it. I actually learned something new this week because of monkeypox and because of hearing the vaccine ended in 1972 for smallpox, not monkeypox, but they have some similarities. I actually asked my mom about it if I got the monkeypox vaccine. Sorry, the smallpox vaccine. I know I didn't get a monkeypox vaccine. And I had assumed it depended upon when in 1972 they ended it. Now, when babies are born, they aren't vaccinated immediately. They get their vaccines at the two-month mark when it's safe to vaccinate them. Prior to that, they are assumed to have some protection from the mother's milk that gives them antibodies. So they're not completely vulnerable. But my point is that this would have been done two months after I was born, so that made it a little less likely that in 1972 I got it, though I was born in early 72, which is why I'm 50 right now. However, I found out that smallpox leaves a, the vaccine left a scar on anyone who got it. It's kind of a round indented scar. It's not a dark thing. It doesn't appear the same way a scar would be that uh, looks like a burn mark or anything. It, it looks like just a small indentation, a kind of circular indentation on your arm. And anyone who got the smallpox vaccine had that. And in fact, it stays with you for life. So I don't have that. Traderuski, you are older than I am. Do you have that scar from the smallpox vaccine? I do not. Okay, so this goes along with what I've been hearing, that it's completely stopped in 72, but it was being phased out before then. So 
even though you were born you know, years before 72. You uh, probably were born late enough to where it wasn't happening where you were born. And it was understandable because smallpox was uh, pretty much a dead disease by then. And I have to imagine just the scar alone, they started questioning, like, why are we doing this? Why should we induce a scar on these kids if we don't need to? And indeed, we are both in our 50s now, and we have never had smallpox. There's also some question whether those who were vaccinated more than 50 years ago would have any protection anyway because it's been so long. I mean, look at the COVID vaccine and what happens to it after six months. And I know it's a completely different disease, but a vaccine over 50 years ago, you can't necessarily say is still going to be working great today or working at all. The point of the vaccination then was not to give you protection 50 years later. The point was to create herd immunity and kill the disease, which was successful. So smallpox disappeared. There have been cases of monkeypox before, but it never became a big thing. In fact, in 2021, there was uh, a case in two different states of people who had traveled to Nigeria, in Texas and Maryland, but nothing further. And until the monkeypox case that was found in Massachusetts this year, which was a male who had traveled to Canada, there had not been any found in 2022. And the UK has found a number of cases, but not a ton. I've seen nine here, but I think there is more by this point. It is not considered something that uh, transmits all that easily. At least the strains of it that are known do not transmit the same way COVID does. COVID can transmit through uh, respiratory methods very easily, especially Omicron. Monkeypox isn't like that. So it usually transmits through uh, sores or through respiratory droplets, but only from uh, prolonged face-to-face contact, meaning uh, if somebody uh, a few feet away sneezes on you, you're not going to get enough of it to catch it. So it doesn't transmit very well. And most monkeypox cases are not that deadly. They have like a 1% death rate, which is actually kind of similar to the original COVID. However, it's much less transmissible, so it's much less of a big deal. The 1% death rate becomes uh, much more concerning when it's something transmitting all over the place, when it's something that is pretty rare to get and hard to get, then the 1% is much more tolerable because the chance of getting in the first place is very, very low. And it's also not that hard to tell that you have it because uh, you'll get first flu-like symptoms, which of course could be a lot of things, but then it'll be uh, lesions on one side of the body and eventually spread to other parts of the body. So if you don't get these lesions in your body, then you probably don't have it. And there are ways to treat it. Now, the one aspect of this that people didn't expect, but is starting to become possibly the case with this one, 
is it actually might be a form of a sexually transmitted disease. It has been found that the people who have come down with monkeypox are mostly gay men who recently had sexual contact with other men. And in fact, uh, it's believed that some of them were at a gay event in Canada where some of this occurred. So there is some belief right now that if you're not having gay sex, that is gay male sex, if you're a lesbian, you're fine, but uh, if you're not having gay male sex, that you're probably pretty safe from this. It's not sure, but there is some belief that this is the way this one is spreading. And there may be other ways to spread this, but it seems a little suspicious that so many gay men are coming down with this compared to non-gay men. Now, overall, there's not a large number, but just of those who have it, there's just way more gay men than there are in the population, like tremendously more. There were some explanations like, well, maybe it just happened to spread at these recent uh, pride gatherings, but then you have to ask, well, what about the women? Why aren't yeah, there were women at these things. Why why were women not catching it? And why was it only gay men who had sex with other gay men? Why was it not just gay men hanging out at the Pride Parade? So it looks like that for the moment, that that's the most likely way this is transmitting. Which I have to imagine for most of our listeners is not going to be a problem. I was actually initially a little bit worried before the whole gay sex thing. I was a little worried with the World Series because we have a lot of people from other countries, especially the UK, where this has been seen the most, that come to the World Series. And I said, uh-oh. Now i got to worry about this too? They're going to have people from the UK come in and maybe spread monkeypox? Otherwise, I don't have too much contact with anyone from the UK except for Colonel Fabersham. I don't think he's going to get it. Now it's really starting to be believed that this could be a primarily gay male disease. In fact, it could even be more so than AIDS was and is, because uh, AIDS was definitely primarily a gay male disease, but people who used intravenous drugs got it, and some heterosexual women got it from men who had it. Straight men actually were not much at risk from HIV or AIDS unless they used intravenous drugs. And that wasn't something that was uh, publicized very well at the time because they wanted it taken seriously by the public and they wanted to get funding to fight AIDS and felt that especially in those times, that if it was seen as a gay disease, that it would not get such funding. So that's why I was kind of suppressed, but that was the truth. And nowadays, they're not even covering it. <laughs> and they're not even trying to imply anymore that AIDS is really uh, a thing that heterosexual men have to worry about that much. And like this drug prep that you can get to prevent getting HIV, it's just marketed directly to gay men. It's not even marketed at all to straight men. With uh, monkeypox, it does seem from what they're seeing so far, at least this uh, version of monkeypox, I don't know about the other monkeypox in the past, but at least this version here seems to be transmitting via gay sex. So that's good news for straight people. I don't know if 
women will have the same threat that they did from HIV, where if they had sex with a bisexual man or a man who used intravenous drugs and got it that way, if they would be susceptible to it, or if this is really a thing that requires gay sex. I don't know. But I know as a straight dude, I probably don't have to worry about it, unless they're wrong about this. A statement from the UK said, uh, recent cases predominantly in gay and bisexual communities or men who have sex with men, parentheses, MSM. Now, first of all, I thought MSM meant mainstream media, but putting that aside, uh, wouldn't men who have sex with men be the same thing as gay and bisexual men? Like, what other men would have sex with men other than gay and bisexual men? And I don't quite get that. Maybe this is just because of this, everyone being so careful what they say so they don't offend anybody. Like, well, we don't offend any trans people, so we better clarify that uh, it's men who have sex with men. But I guess if they really want to be complete, then they'd have to say, well, but not trans men who have sex with men. That would be biological women who transition to be male, but then have sex with biological males of which there are in fact there's more than you think that that's that one always kind of gets me i know we're getting a little off topic here but i always pictured that a woman who would transition to become a guy would at the very least be someone who's into women and sometimes they are but sometimes they're not sometimes they're only into men so it's like these like formerly straight women who want to become a man, but still are only into men, still don't want to have sex with women. So I I guess those men, the trans men, I guess they're probably safe from this. So I guess this claim by the UK, they're they're being uh, trans insensitive here because they are saying men who have sex with men, but that's not true if it's trans men. Unless women can get it through heterosexual sex, and I guess trans men are in danger. I guess if they want to really, really be accurate, and not offend anybody. They can just say, well, uh, two penis-having people having sex with each other can transmit it. In the UK, they also said the virus does not spread easily between people. But since most recent cases were from the gay, bisexual, and MSM communities, I still don't get why that's separated. And as the virus spreads through close contact, we are advising these groups to be alert to any unusual rashes or lesions on any part of their body, especially their genitalia, and to contact a sexual health service if they have concern. I'm going to be looking at the World Series of Poker and see if any guys next to me have lesions all over their body. Then I'll ask for a seat change. They'll say, sir, we don't give seat changes in tournaments. They'll say, no, I think you should here. They say, I'm sorry, we won't do that for you. I'll say, okay, well, I think I'm going to let my stack blind out for a while. Apparently, according to this article I'm reading, monkeypox has never been described as a sexually transmitted disease before, even though it has been acknowledged to be transmissible during sex. But it is possible that this strain does transmit primarily this way. It's also possible maybe they just didn't realize this before. I don't know. That's the weirdest thing. That's what I'm not getting here is why why are they just learning this now in 2022 about monkeypox? 
Again, unless this is a different strain that does it this way. But usually when you see these patterns at the beginning, it means something. Like Omicron. Remember at the beginning with Omicron? We're hearing out of South Africa, oh, it's not as deadly. Oh, most people who are showing up with it aren't being hospitalized, and it's a lot more mild. And you heard a lot of doubt on that. Oh, well, these were younger people. So, of course, it was more mild. Like a lot of different excuses about why Omicron probably wasn't as mild as they were saying. But no, it ended up being 10 times less deadly than Delta was. So exactly what they reported at the beginning was true. Not that it can't kill you, but that it was 10 times less likely to kill you. So that was pretty significant, right? That's a pretty good evolution, especially an abrupt evolution like that. But at first that was being doubted. At first there were a lot of excuses. It's okay to be skeptical and say, well, it's the very beginning. This may not mean anything. We don't have enough statistical data yet to analyze here, and there could be reasons for it. But it really seemed like there was a lot of heavy doubt about this and a lot of questioning about the methods used in South Africa, blah, blah, blah. Now, they were right. And really with COVID, as we've seen, every time we see something at the beginning, that pattern turns out to be true. We've had some assumptions about COVID at the beginning turn out to be false, like transmitting on surfaces, but that was reasonable to assume because other viruses that were respiratory viruses were also transmitting on surfaces, like the cold, like the flu. So if those transmit on surfaces, it made sense to think COVID would too. It just doesn't. So that took a little while to realize it was a new virus. Monkeypox is not a new virus. That's why I'm so confused, though. Like, why don't they know this already? Monkeypox actually originates in animals and then spreads to people. And this is one of these diseases that can do that. A lot of diseases cannot spread to people from animals or vice versa, but this one can. Rodents actually cause a lot of uh, monkeypox outbreaks, not monkeys like you would think from the name. Usually they start in Africa, in Central and West Africa. The worst of the two variants, there's two main variants. There's other variants, but the two main variants that are known are the Congo strain, which kills about 10% of the people. And then there's the West African strain, which kills about 1%. It was first identified in 1958. And the reason it was called monkeypox is because monkeys had it. But the first known human to have had it, that doesn't mean it's the first time it happened, but the first time it was known was in Congo when a nine-year-old boy had it. I don't know what happened to the nine-year-old boy, but it was in 1970. And it is in the same family as smallpox, but it's not as bad as smallpox. So I don't think this is anything to worry about, especially if you're just a straight dude, which, to be honest, is the main demographic of this show. Most people listening to this show are straight dudes between 35 and 65. Though we do have some gay listeners. I know that for a fact. So if you are one of our gay or bisexual male listeners, then uh, watch out for those lesions. That's all I can say. Especially if someone has been to one of these uh, pride events in Canada or the UK recently. But so far, there's only one US case. And as I said, unlike COVID, which... Yeah, they were slow to 
really identify cases here, but because it was known already from China to be so contagious, it was hard for me to understand how they thought this was going to be brought under control, especially because the transmission of COVID tended to be pre-symptomatic. So it was very hard to get people to stay home or even to force quarantine them if they've already transmitted a ton before they realize they have it. That, that's why really COVID was impossible to contain in a country like this. It was destined to spread like it did. And it was really impossible for any country to stop it. And any country that has a lot of individualism and a lot of value for personal freedom, there's just really no chance to stop it. And it can feel good like that you think you're stopping it, but you're really not. And we saw that. But monkeypox, it probably is not going to spread very much just because it, it can't. It's, it's hard to spread. And that's why there's been a lot of other disease threats that have come to the U.S. over the years that you hear about and then you forget because you never hear much beyond that because they don't spread very much. COVID was the unusual one because it combined deadliness with the ability to spread very well. And that's uncommon. Usually they go one of two ways. They're either deadly but don't spread much or they spread a ton but aren't deadly. COVID kind of had this sweet spot where they had both. And that's why it became such a huge problem. So I think monkeypox, uh, first of all, I don't think this strain is all that deadly. I don't think it's this Congo strain. In fact, I know it's not, from what they can tell at least. And second, it just doesn't look like it's going to spread much. So I wouldn't worry about this. The only chance this could be a problem is if this is a weird strain that is different than the others and spreads a lot more than the others, then it could be a worse problem than we're thinking right now. But again, this does not appear to be something that can spread anything close to what COVID does. So I wouldn't really worry about it. Gay sex or no gay sex. I I wouldn't really worry about it. It just doesn't have the potential to do the spreading like COVID did. And that really is the key with these pandemics. They have to be able to just rapidly spread and become very difficult to control. I think everyone's just kind of on edge because we had COVID and all these people died and we were helpless to stop a lot of it. So now every time you hear about another disease, you go, oh crap, now here comes the next thing. But keep in mind, we've been hearing about these things for a long time. Keep hearing about you know, such and such disease showing up. And think about all of them we've had over time, even just the last 20 years. So I just wanted to get all that out. I haven't looked into it because the World Series is coming up. So if any place diseases could spread, it's there. But fortunately, I don't know about you, Trader Ruski, but I am not planning upon having gay sex in between events of the World Series. That's, that's not my Las Vegas plans. Absolutely not. And I mean, now, are you going to wear a mask while you play? Or Well, no. that's an interesting question. During the main event, I had a mask with me, even though it was not required. And I would put on the mask during hands that I was in, and I would take it off when I was not in hands. Sometimes I'd forget and leave it on for a little longer, but 
for the most part, it was on during hands and off when I wasn't playing. In fact, people kind of laughed. Like, up oh, the mask is coming on. He's got a hand. Like, I, I wouldn't telegraph I had a hand. Like, I'd wait until my turn to act. But uh, it would, like, fold, 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 and it would come to me, and then there'd be the ritual. Put the mask on, and then put out chips. <laughs> so as soon as I reach for the mask, they know I'm not folding. So anyway, why did I do that? Because some people at the table had masks on the entire time, and I didn't want to give them an advantage that I didn't have. So while I didn't enjoy wearing the mask, and that's why I took it off when I wasn't in hands, I wanted to have the same facial covering that those who did have the mask had. And since it was allowed to wear a mask, I don't want to give other people the advantage, especially in the main event of the World Series. So that's why I did it. And nobody complained. Nobody said, oh, you're a dick to do this, or we, you're doing this just to cover your face. That's not nice. Like, No, because anybody at the table had the option to do the same thing or wear a mask the entire time. Anyone could have done it. So it's not like I got special permission to do this and no one else could. Anyone could do this too. And it was within the rules to do, and nobody even complained because they knew it was in the rules, and they knew they could do it too. So I might do it this time. The exception might be at limit events where, like, tells are less important. And uh, I might just forgo the whole thing there. At no limit events, I probably will put the mask on and off, as stupid as it will look. But I'm not going to wear it for safety purposes. However, there is one benefit you do get from wearing the mask, and it's not related to COVID. It is uh, preventing other viruses that do transmit on surfaces. Because a lot of the times, the way you get a cold and the way you get the flu is by touching something that is infected with that and then inadvertently touching your nose or mouth, which you'll just kind of do when you're sitting there for a long time without even thinking about it. So the mask prevents that. The mask blocks your mouth and nose so you don't end up touching them. So I do believe that those masks really do help prevent colds and flu, which transmit a lot at the World Series. So that is a big reason to wear one, believe it or not, to prevent that. But I just find it so uncomfortable, and I'm so not used to it either. I guess if you're at a job where you have to wear it every day for eight hours a day, it can become easier to tolerate. But I just find it very unpleasant. So even though I would gain from not getting a cold or a flu as easily, and I, I got a cold last time I was in Vegas and played poker. So I didn't catch Omicron, but I caught a damn cold. And that can easily happen at the World Series. Now, the difference is, not only is a cold not as bad as Omicron, but if I get a cold, I don't have to drop out of the event. Where with Omicron, I do. But I still rather not get a cold there. So that is one advantage the mask brings. But that that's probably my plan. So, uh, Trader Risky, what are you going to do regarding the mask at the World Series? Um, not sure yet, but uh, probably wear it in situations where it's real dense and others I might feel comfortable taking it off, but... We will see. Yeah, I mean, like, whatever people want to do. I don't. I really don't care what other people do at the table with wearing masks. And that was the way I treated it in November when I played the main event. There were some people who wore it the entire time. There were some people who didn't wear it. And I think I was the only one I saw who was pulling it on and off based upon being in a hand. 
but that's my right to do also. And anybody else who wants to do that, I encourage you to do so. Okay, well, that's all I've got here. I hope you enjoyed the uh, monkeypox discussion. And World Series is coming up in now nine days. I believe it starts on the 31st. It's now May 22nd, early in the morning. And we will have a show before the World Series starts. We've got one more show. I don't know how much I'll be talking about the World Series before it starts. I don't really have that much to say this year. At least not yet. I'm sure I will once the series starts. I actually have more advice for the World Series when it's at the Rio than this, because I haven't been there yet. I haven't been to the Bally's in Paris World Series. Nobody has, so I can't really give advice. So I guess I'll have advice after I experience it myself. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of fail. I'm sure there's going to be times that I wish it was back at the Rio. There'll probably also be times I'm happy it's not at the Rio, especially that if I want to step out to the rest of the strip. Like, there's good things about not being at the Rio anymore. But it kind of sucks to have to learn everything new. I kind of feel like someone who is being moved to a different town and just doesn't know anyone or know anything and has to learn everything all over again. Except everyone's in this spot. But I guess everybody had to go through that in 05 when it moved to the Rio from Binion's, where it had been for its entire life, from 1970 all the way through uh, 2004. I did not play till I was at the Rio. I played in the Rio's first year. That was when the inaugural bracelet winners at the Rio. I guess this could be uh, a sign that I'll win a bracelet this year, because I won a bracelet in the first year of the World Series at the Rio. And now this is the first year of the World Series at Paris and Bally's. And I did not have the opportunity to win one the first year of the World Series at Binion's because I was not born yet. So this this could be the pattern, maybe. Now, it'd be a sucky pattern in one way because if it stays there for a long time or for the rest of my life, I'll never win another bracelet after that. But I'll, you know, I'll, just, I'll take a second bracelet under these circumstances. Even if I got to stop it too. All right, so remember the next scheduled show is a week from today, Saturday, May 28th, around the same time. And then the next one will be June 5th. That's what we have on the schedule right now. Good luck to Eric Benzamokin and the big hearing about arbitration with PayPal. Hopefully they will be told... No, you cannot compel arbitration. And we will see, and I will let you guys know when that decision comes down. I assume it's going to come down the same day, but I'm not sure. I forgot to ask Eric that. I guess, finally, before I close, uh, would I recommend getting the fourth Pfizer shot now that I got it? And my answer is, if you have some kind of uh, vulnerability that others don't have, such as being uh, very old, or if you have a weak immune system, or if you have other reasons that you're more vulnerable to COVID than the average person, and if it's been seven or more months since your last shot, 
then yes. Otherwise, unless you're going to be in a risky situation like the World Series of Poker, I would say no. I would say to wait for the better shot that will come later this year. Which, of course, I can still get too, but I would say, you know what, I'm just going to go without this additional shot until that comes out in the fall. And if I happen to get Omicron in the meantime, then whatever, but uh, I don't want to put myself through this additional shot if it's not going to do me that much good. But you know, because of the World Series, then I, I felt this was the right thing to do. And if you don't get side effects from it, or if the side effects are very mild, then yeah, go ahead and do it. It's been six or more months. Yeah, go ahead. Especially if you're going to the World Series. It's a much easier decision if you don't get bad side effects. So a lot of that is the way you react to it and how much risk you're willing to take, how much extra protection matters to you versus whatever risk comes with the vaccine and whatever side effects come with the vaccine. So I've gotten to the point where the risk of the vaccine is not what's concerning me, it's the side effects, which I hate. But I will say that uh, taking the Advil really uh, moderated it fast. So that really made a big difference, and that'll be helpful to know for next time. And I'm, again, next time not going to jump to the Advil right away. I will give it some time without the Advil. But at least I know that as I get to the end of a full day with these side effects, if I'm just tired of dealing with it, I can just pop the Advil and it'll greatly improve. Not completely go away, but become a lot more tolerable because, boy, was that a big difference. But I just couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, I had people telling me, oh, it, you know, it probably won't be this way this time. Oh, I know people who got the fourth shot. It was no big deal. And then... And I said, do you know anybody who had like almost identical second and third shots that the fourth was no big deal? Well, no, but I go, okay, look, I, I don't, I appreciate the optimism, but I don't share it. I, I just am pretty sure I'm going to get this. And I was right. And it wasn't psychosomatic and it wasn't a placebo effect. It, it was not, nothing like that. Well, it couldn't be a placebo effect because it wasn't a placebo, but you know what I'm saying. It, it wasn't in my head. Like the 103 fever was not in my head. That just seems to be what happens from the Pfizer COVID shot. Someone said, why don't you try the Moderna one? Which I could. I said, no, I don't even want to see what that one does. I've heard the side effects are worse in some people with the Moderna one. And the one thing the Pfizer one really hasn't done to me was nausea. I got a little bit of nausea after the second shot, like near the end of the side effects that were happening, like a few days in. And... I had like a mild version of nausea briefly this time, but really for the most part, there was no nausea. And that w I was thankful for that. And I also didn't get any headache that came directly from the shot. I got a headache every time from being in bed so much because I was so fatigued and I could barely get up. So eventually I got a headache from just being constantly in bed. It was a tension headache, which I'm very familiar with, but I didn't get a headache actually from the side effects but I've heard the Moderna can do that to you too more often than the Pfizer does. So like, you know what? I, I just stick with what I know here. I'm afraid I'll hate the Moderna one even more. So yeah, I mean, if you're going to the World Series, 
then it's not a bad idea to get if you qualify for it. Otherwise, probably just should wait till the fall. Trader Risk, you're one of the fortunate people. You you don't get the side effects. No, just a little uh, little tired, but it wasn't too bad for all of them. Yeah, like that's that's what I would get at the beginning is the tiredness. And then I go to sleep and I wake up and then I wake up to the bad news that it's a lot more than that. But I, I expected it this time, so it wasn't like... It was not a shock. It was not a shock to wake up and feel all the body pain and it wasn't a shock to watch the fever rise. It did tease me this time, you know, to wake up with a 99-degree temperature and I go, oh, this is much better than last time. Nope. Just uh, delayed a bit. So... That's all. Thank you for listening. And await the announcement about the hats, which is coming soon. I will tell you when to send me your address. Then you can receive your Poker Fraud Alert hat. I will be wearing a Poker Fraud Alert hat at the World Series, but I will be wearing an original Poker Fraud Alert hat. That looks newer than it is because it's sat in plastic for many years. But we'll have the new ones pretty soon. And all of the Poker Fraud Alert radio co-hosts will uh, definitely be getting them. But I think all of you will, too. If you'd like to text me and just express interest, if you haven't yet, you're welcome to do that. But don't give me any info yet. Okay, well, thank you, Trader Ruski. He just hung up. I think it's because they can't really hear me over this. It's that one limitation that Skype has that when I play anything, they can't really hear me talking over it. They can hear what I'm playing, but it it drowns out what I'm saying for the most part. Keep in mind, 2008 Skype did not have this limitation. That worked perfectly. Well, at least I can still make use of it. Skype is unfortunately still an essential element to this show, the way it's set up. I mean, there's technically other ways around it. You don't have to have Skype for a call-in show. But the way I have it all going, it's the easiest thing to do, even with all of Skype's fail. And I've had people say, well, what about this? What about that? I go, but these don't have a phone number. Well, you don't need a phone number. Who knows the phone number these days? He said, no, no, I want a phone number. I want this to be a call-in show, not a, not a connect-through-an-app show. I want this to be accessible to everybody with just a phone. Which it is. Like, you could use the call-to-listen line to listen. You can use your phone to call in. You can interact in every way except for the chat room without even a computer. Without even the internet. Think about it. I don't know how many more Druffy Time theaters I have in me. I'm really running out of stuff here. But, you know, I'll just dig deeper and deeper and come up with stuff to say. Won't have it every week, though. All right. Should be a week from now. We'll be back. Shalom.